Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Hellas. This is being recorded live and broadcasted live on October 29th, 2021. The time right now, 9.27 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. We have a free roll, and believe it or not, it has not begun yet. It's waiting to start in three minutes. It starts at 9.30 p.m., on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, we are giving away $50 this week, which came from Shoeshine Box, a very nice guy. I've met him a number of times at the World Series and around Las Vegas. 25 for first, 15 for second, and 10 for third are the prizes. You have 25 minutes to get in with late registration, which means that if you're not in by 9.30, it's no problem. As long as you make it in by 9.55, you will be able to play. Calwatt, Hello. How you doing, Dress? I am doing well. I'm glad you have been able to stay up till this late hour on the East Coast to join us as we're just beginning the show here at around uh, 1230 Eastern. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. I don't know how long I'm going to make it, but, uh, you know, we'll try it for a little bit. Yeah, you can just fade off, vanish as you do when you uh, get tired here. This is the only poker show or podcast in the world where the co-hosts fall asleep, but that's okay. I've come to accept it. I've come to... Understand it, and um, I'm, I'm happy to have anybody who joins me. And uh, you're, you're a very uh, popular figure in the show. People always enjoy when you are here. I get messages about it, so I'm glad you could join us again this week. As you have uh, a few times uh, in recent episodes we've had. So uh, anyway, just uh, introducing to introducing the free roll, which is starting in one minute. You have till 9:55 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time to get in. That's 25 minutes of late registration. And uh, I already gave out the prize pool. Go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, to understand the requirements to qualify for the free money, which I can pay you by Zelle, by Cash App, by bank transfer, by one of several cryptocurrencies, or even some other methods you might be able to think of where people send money back and forth online. So PM me Dan Space Druff on the forum if you win. Or if you really must, you can email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, or you can text me, 775-372-8355, if you win. But I really prefer on the forum, because it's easier for me to keep track of that way. It will be a delay till you get your prize. I kind of do it in batches every so often, but you will get your money. I promise you that. We have a chat room. If you'd like to chat in there during the live show... Just click on the chat button near the top of the screen. You do need a Poker Fraud Alert forum account in good standing to get in there. As I already mentioned, we have a phone number you can call and text. 775-FRAUD-55 is the number. 775-372-8355. That has been our number for our entire run of this show, which is now over nine and a half years. You can also call the Mount Charleston line, which has been here the whole time as well. It's an old 70s rotary phone, which sits on top of Mount Charleston, which is a mountain near Las Vegas. It'll have snow on it soon enough. 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the number of the Mount Charleston line, which cannot be texted, but it can be called. Separate line into the show. The call to listen line is something you can use to listen to the show at any time, from anywhere. Does not require a smartphone. Does not require a data plan. Does not require a computer or the internet. No, 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 no. Any phone that can dial the U.S. can listen. And as long as you don't have T-Mobile, if you can call the U.S. for free, then it's free. And if you have T-Mobile, it's one cent a minute, which I don't get. 
The phone numbers are 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736, and the alternate number 641-741-1095. They never buffer, never freeze. It's been around for four years now. The four-year anniversary will be in November. And never once has someone messaged me and said, you know what? It froze. It buffered. No one's ever said that because it's never happened. And that's a great way to listen to streaming content without the buffering and the freezing, especially with shoddy cell phone connections that you may have driving around if you're listening to the show that way. So, Druff, um, your experience in the free roll, what does minbet, minbet, shove mean? I don't know. I never play it. <laughs> you have the free roll experience. I have none. I actually have none. So it is up to you. You've done very well historically in it, so I think you can figure it out. I don't Has, know, man. I've struck out the last few times I've played. <laughs> that's true. You are on a losing streak, so people can try to take advantage of his waning confidence in the free roll. We have two Week 5 World Series of Poker topics. That's it. Just two. One just broke today, and I thank the person this is about for announcing it today, just in time for radio, because if she announced it tomorrow, then it had to wait another six days, and we'd only have one topic to talk about. So, Vanessa Cade has become the first known poker pro to have COVID during the World Series of Poker. We're going to discuss all about that. And the main event is in question now, whether she will be allowed to play. She thinks that she will be allowed to play, but hmm, I don't know. Why would she be allowed to play? Well, she may not be testing negative in time. We're going to talk about it. It's, it's in question because the main event's coming up very shortly. She is currently in her room with a positive test for COVID with symptoms. So we'll talk all about that in our Vanessa Cade COVID segment. And by the way, it's very appropriate that Vanessa Cade is the one to be the first player, the first known poker pro to have COVID during the World Series because drama has surrounded her so much over the past year. So it's fitting that it's her rather than someone boring. So I appreciate that she could volunteer to make that happen and that she could announce this on the day of radio. Very nice of her to do that for this show. MJ Gonzalez, who's a poker pro, has done something very nice and generous. He has bought in a man who has terminal cancer into the WSOP main event and lets the guy keep all the winnings. So we will discuss what happened there. And what if, what if this is a scam? We're going to discuss that, too. Two recreational players at last week's Hustler Casino Live game, which was announced by one Bart Hansen. That was a very highly promoted and highly anticipated game. Two players at that game were in the news after that, but it was neither Ivy nor Duan, nor was it even Garrett. No. It was two unknown players who actually we're in the news, the mainstream news, and not for very good things. So we're going to talk about that. I don't blame the Hanson kid or Ryan Feldman for any of this, by the way. It's just the way it played out. So we're going to discuss the weirdness with uh, two players in that game a week ago. Nah, let's blame Bart. Let's blame him. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be nice here. I don't, I don't want to lose uh, any more listeners than we've already lost. Phil Ivey has hosted a 2000-style lavish poker party to promote his new shoe-based NFT. And I didn't misread that. 
You didn't say, do you mean uh, show-based? No, I mean shoe-based. There's actually an NFT that uh, has been launched and that Phil Ivey is associated with. I, I won't say he created it because he obviously didn't, but uh, there's a Phil Ivey-promoted shoe-based NFT that he had a party for. <laughs> and I say 2000s era because there were a ton of those type of parties during the World Series in the 2000s, and then they kind of went away when the excesses afforded to online poker sites and online poker players who are putting these on kind of vanished after Black Friday. So we haven't seen one of these in a while, but uh, there was one just the other night to promote the shoe-based NFT. So we'll talk all about that. A Minnesota man found a way to obtain other people's accounts on the four major sports streaming platforms. We're talking about baseball, basketball, football, and hockey. But Rather than just steal their credentials and get to watch for free, he decided to illegally stream their content, and that wasn't enough. Even though he made money streaming the content, even though he was getting people's credentials somehow, he decided to take it up one further and try to extort money out of Major League Baseball with the threat that he would reveal how he did it to the public. Not very smart. You can imagine how that ended for him. So we'll talk about that weird story. Remember when uh, Zappos founder Tony C died in kind of a weird situation where he locked himself in like a shed and was doing whippets and then somehow a fire started and he died of smoke inhalation? Very odd story. And then some things came out about him, about uh, drug addiction and about uh, Elvis-like uh, hangers-on that just enabled him. So some pretty disturbing stories came out. Even one of them involved singer Jewel, who to her credit was uh, trying to stop him from behaving this way and finally disassociated herself when he wouldn't. But uh, there's more to this saga. And I'm going to tell you about the Tony Shi saga involving allegations, and these are allegations in court now, that he was manipulated by close associates for millions of dollars at the end of his life. Pretty crazy stuff and various lawsuits about it. I'll try to clear all this up for you, and you can hear about the ongoing legal battles involving uh, Tony Shi and his uh, very large estate. And now uh, this guy, who really was uh, very good at business, was very bad at managing the rest of his life, and he let himself basically descend into madness. Speaking of descending into madness, uh, Alan Kessler has been battling a Vegas Burger King on social media. I kid you not. This is actually going to be a topic here that shows you how we're kind of short on topics this week. We're going to talk about Alan Kessler's battle with a Vegas Burger King, and I will give my opinion on the whole thing. Resorts World is getting desperate. They may have to open a Burger King inside to make some money because uh, they're now offering new deals for locals to come by there. When the Resorts World opened, I did not picture they were going to be worried about locals coming there and trying to entice them in. But now they're trying to do that. They are getting desperate to get people down there during the week, and that's where they are counting on the locals, and the locals aren't coming. So we'll talk about uh, the ongoing saga of Resorts World and how it has definitely not lived up to billing. Atlantic City casinos were scammed for over a million dollars by a bad check scheme. And it sounds a little simple, in my opinion, how it was pulled off, but I'll tell you what happened there. Remember I told you 
a number of months ago about Yasiel Puig, former Major League Baseball player, who looked like he was being sued by a woman who set him up. Basically, she had a consensual sexual encounter with him in a bathroom and then made it look like he followed her in there and raped her. And from everything that came out, it looked like he was being set up. Well, he settled with her. He settled with her for uh, not huge money, but uh, some money. And uh, I'm going to give you my opinion on the move he just made. This was just announced today. And I think he made a mistake. Two coronavirus topics we will talk about, in addition to the Vanessa Cade topic, which is a topic by itself. So, speaking of which, let's talk about Vanessa Cade and her uh, her COVID. Someone said to me, oh, you know, there's a good chance it's not. And I said, no, I, I think it probably is. I, I will explain why there's a little doubt that this is the positive COVID uh, diagnosis. But if I had to guess, I'd say, yeah, she has COVID. So anyway, uh, Vanessa Cade was an unknown in poker for the most part until late last year. And uh, in December of 2020, she got into the poker eye because she had a little uh, dispute with Dan Bilzerian. And uh, she said that he was a uh, misogynist and shouldn't be representing GG Poker. And then he wrote back, uh, shut up, ho, nobody knows who you are. And people didn't appreciate that and thought uh, Dan was being a jerk, which he was. And uh, and he also was punching down what he shouldn't have done. He was the big name that everybody knew, and she was not known in poker, so he was kind of punching down. And he, you know, when, when you're Dan Blazerian, you've got to ignore the trolling on Twitter, and he didn't do that, and that was a mistake, and uh, especially in this day and age, you don't write that sort of thing to a random woman who criticizes you. Anyway, uh, this elevated her into uh, notoriety. She got a very good reaction for the way she handled it. We discussed that on this show. Uh, she started to erode that re- that uh, goodwill a little bit by kind of overdoing it. She kind of ran with the whole uh, feminist banner a bit too much. People thought she was kind of exploiting it for attention, which I kind of agree she was. But uh, for the most part, she still had a good reputation. Then she did lose some people when in, back in January. She got into more drama by posting about how she was basically looking for a, a boyfriend in poker and listed like a lot of really specific requirements. And, and implied that pretty much all guys in poker are trash, and why, why couldn't I find like a guy like this? And it didn't go over well, as you might imagine. So that started to erode some of the goodwill. And then then it came out that uh, she was collecting money from GG Poker as an affiliate for a long time, even after she had uh, complained about them. So And that once they revoked it, she was mad, and people thought that by not disclosing this during the whole Bilzerian thing, that, w- that was uh, kind of shady-looking. So... Uh, just as her reputation was starting to uh, slip, she had a major win on Poker Stars. She won like one point something million on Poker Stars in in the uh, one of their really big Sunday Million events. Not just a regular Sunday Million, like a like a major Sunday Million they had. I forgot the occasion. So she beat a gigantic field, and uh, this really rocketed her into popularity again. And she happened to have signed with ACR as a sponsored pro about a week before that. So it wasn't even from that. So between those two things, she pretty much became a fixture on uh, poker social media. And she gained a ton of followers. I mean, she has 22,300 followers. I think she had like two or 3,000 before all this. I think even less. So the, she's really rocketed into notoriety and she's become a, a pretty well-known poker pro 
whereas before December 2020, barely anyone knew who she was. Now, I actually followed her before that, but uh, most people didn't know who she was. And, uh, you know, I've had uh, mixed opinions about her since then. My opinion of her was uh, actually more positive prior to all this stuff. And uh, since then, I've been critical of some things she's done and said. I don't think she's a bad person. I don't think she's shady. I think you can trust her for the most part. I think uh, you know, there's a lot worse people in poker than Vanessa Cade. At the same time, she has made some missteps, in my opinion, with how she has uh, behaved on poker social media. There's been a lot of hypocrisy about a lot of things. And uh, as I said, not a bad person, but I've, I've kind of uh, been at odds with some things that she's done and said. And... I know she's not all that thrilled with me because I've stated these things and she didn't appreciate the criticism. Now, uh, to her credit, she's never blocked me or anything like that. So uh, that's more than I can say for certain people, <coughs> Kate Hall. <coughs> but uh, she made an announcement today, just in time for this show. And what was weird, she made the announcement and then she deleted the announcement and then reposted the announcement, which I don't quite understand. She said, reposting... Because I realized I played the shootout and the six max symptoms at home on Wednesday and Thursday. Just don't want anyone else to get sick if you were around me at all either of those days and don't feel well, please get checked. Thanks for the kindness and see you at the main event. And then she posted a picture of a home COVID test, which honestly looks like a pregnancy test. It uh, has a very similar look with the two lines, the, the she control on it. I, she must have, yeah. I mean, it, I, I don't know if that excites you, but. Uh, yeah, she no, did. not at all. Okay, <laughs> she she <laughs> not did even a little bit. She she did uh, presumably pee on this. I think that I've never used one of these, but I presume that's how it works. It looks just like a pregnancy test, but it <laughs> says a uh, Binax now COVID nineteen AG card, and it uh, shows that she has a, a positive test. Now, if someone told me these things are kind of garbage, that they don't work very well, and that possibly she is not uh, positive, which yeah, that might be true. But I will say that she did have. COVID-like symptoms from what she described, including the tweet that's gone now. I can't quite understand why she did that, but uh, she's not hiding anything. I think she decided to rewrite her tweets. She did say, also, I had such a bad fever yesterday, I was struggling to figure out how I was going to get tested. My friend showed me you can order a test directly from Walgreens website. It gets delivered by DoorDash in about an hour for $30 here, and she put the link. That's that's what she ended up getting. And I, I can understand that. If you're feeling really sick, going over to a test location is not easy. In fact, uh, when I had my reaction to the third shot, I got sick enough to where I could not drive. I, I was, if I stood up, I was dizzy. I could walk around the house carefully, but there's no way I could have driven anywhere. And I, I have to assume that's how she was feeling. And I had a high fever as well. Except mine was from the vaccine, which went away after a few days, and she has uh, actual COVID. So I believe she has COVID. There's, there's a chance that she just has something else and that uh, she happened to get a false positive with that home test that she got off Walgreens. But I, I would have to guess she probably has COVID. She said in the tweets that I seem that I can't find anymore, I presume they were deleted, that she was uh, not feeling well and wasn't understanding it. But now she knows why, because she took that test and sees what she has. I don't know exactly uh, when she first got COVID. I don't know when it actually started, and she doesn't know. She doesn't know where she got it. She doesn't know if she got it from the World Series, of course, or if she got this elsewhere. I don't know what else she's been doing. I don't know how much she's been out and about around Vegas. She didn't give that info. She didn't say what kind of vaccination she got. Remember, she's Canadian. 
So she could have gotten the AstraZeneca one. She also could have gotten the Pfizer, the Moderna, or the Johnson & Johnson, because she does spend a lot of time in the U.S., so it's very possible she got one of the American vaccines. She didn't say when she got vaccinated. She did say that she was vaccinated, and she also mentioned that she thinks she had COVID before people knew what COVID was. And the last part, I know she thinks that, but I'm very skeptical of that. A lot of people insist that they had COVID like in November or October of 2019. And the first uh, verified COVID case in the U.S. was in February 2020. I'm willing to believe there were some before that, but I don't know about like November or October of 2019. The problem is there was apparently a pretty nasty flu also going around that had some COVID-like symptoms to it. So unless you have something very telltale, like a very nasty flu that also had a loss of smell and taste back in late 2019, if you had that, I'm willing to believe you that maybe you had COVID. If you just had a really bad flu-like virus that was uh, the worst you've ever had, I can't give you credit for having had COVID. In fact, uh, I know some people who listen to this show that had some very bad virus in January of 2020, early January 2020. And um, one of them since got COVID. And uh, so I don't believe that person had COVID initially either. So uh, I'm just saying that I think that uh, a lot of people are confusing what was seemed to be like a bad flu around that time for COVID. And I think that's probably what she was doing. But I, I do believe she probably has COVID now. And there's something that we should acknowledge now. You know, I'm going to say something in her favor about this whole thing, and then I'll get to some criticism I have. The thing in her favor is she came and was public about this because she didn't have to be. It's the right thing to do, but she could have hid in her room and just kept quiet about it, waited until she felt good enough to start playing again, and then quietly returned to the World Series and started to play. And no one would have been the wiser. So she came out publicly because she was concerned that maybe she infected people and she wanted anyone to know that's played with her recently at the World Series that uh, they may want to get themselves checked out. And that's good. That's nice. That's, that's showing concern for her fellow human beings. And she didn't have to do this. And there's many in poker who would not have done this. And I will acknowledge that and I will give her credit for this because... She was in her room and nobody suspected she had COVID, so she easily could have hidden this if she wanted to. With that said, she seems to believe that she can return to play the main event. And maybe she's right. Maybe she can play the main event. Maybe that will end up happening. However, this brought up in my mind and some other people's minds some concerns about whether she should play the main event and whether the World Series of Poker will let her play the main event. And there's a lot of question, which has not been answered to my knowledge right now, as to what the rules are at the World Series of Poker. Now, remember, at the World Series of Poker, there is no mask requirement because there is a vaccine requirement that you must be vaccinated and you must be able to prove you're vaccinated to play at the World Series of Poker. We've discussed that at length on this show. And my attitude about that is fine. And in fact, the relatively few COVID cases that have happened at the World Series, in fact, this is the first one of a known pro. I'm not saying this is the first one that happened, period, but this is the first one that has occurred to a known pro and may have been caught elsewhere. That is very much saying that the World Series did the right thing, that instead of becoming a disaster of people 
in the same space, thousands of people together for 10 hours, 12 hours a day for all these weeks, you would think we would have massive COVID outbreaks. Instead, we didn't. In fact, the opposite occurred. We hardly had any cases. So the World Series of Poker's rule about this has resulted in success. And I can say that right now before the World Series is over. Even with what happened to Vanessa Cade, I can say that right now that their plan to prevent COVID has been a big success. In fact, a much bigger success than I would have guessed. So you can't say they did the wrong thing. However, there are some people who had to stay home because they would not get vaccinated. Uh, Kristen Bicknell and Alex Alex Foxen are the two who are best known for publicly refusing to take the vaccine and therefore, despite being very good tournament players and they would have loved to have been at the World Series, they cannot play the World Series. And they haven't played the World Series because they will not I get vaccinated. I do not feel bad for them at all. I, so I don't feel bad for them, right, because they made the choice. Yeah. But here's where I feel a little bit bad. And that is if they let Vanessa Cade play too early with a verified symptomatic COVID case and Kristen Bicknell can't play without COVID and Alex Foxen can't play without COVID just because they could potentially have COVID, I think that's very unfair. I think if the World Series is going to be serious about preventing COVID at the series, and as part of that serious attempt to keep COVID out, they're making everyone get vaccinated, fine. Fine. I'm okay with that. But then you also have to take very seriously any known COVID cases, even ones where people broadcast it themselves when they didn't necessarily have to. Once you know that someone like Vanessa Cade has COVID, which she does, and she has symptomatic COVID, I would say, and this is not up to me, obviously, so I can't make this decision. I can't even influence the decision, but I can give my opinion on the decision, which I don't know yet. But I feel that she should not be able to take a seat at the World Series again until she presents a negative COVID test. That has yeah, 100%. I but, mean, that sounds obvious. Well, I, I wish it were. So uh, before I go on, I just want to point out that Major League Baseball has this rule. I believe the other major sports have this rule, that if one of the players comes down with COVID, they have to leave the team until they test negative again. And there are some people, like Master Scaler was one, who get better, and for whatever reason, weeks drag out before they can test negative again. That can happen. And if it does, so, well, that's unfortunate, but, but tough luck, <laughs> right. So yeah. I, I would not feel comfortable having her at my table until she has gotten a negative COVID test. I think it's much more dangerous to have Vanessa Cade with symptomatic COVID very recently at your table without a negative test than it is to have someone like Alex Foxen or Kristen Bicknell at your table who's just unvaccinated, but you see no evidence they have COVID. It's, it's much worse to have a verified COVID case right there unless you know that they've tested negative. So we don't know the rule on this. So this guy named a Midwest Slot King, I don't know who he is, but a Midwest Slot King is one of the anti-vaxxers who did not go to the World Series because he would not get vaccinated. So he was uh, irritated about this. And he wrote, and, and he, he put a screenshot of the World Series of Poker Rules about COVID, which I'll read you in a second. But he said, Fuck that. I'm sitting home, not playing any WSOP events because I'm unvaccinated, and here you are testing positive for COVID and playing. Get the fuck out, he said to her. So he's referring to her plan to play the main event. She's not playing right now. She's in her room, but her plan is to return at the main event, which you may wonder, when does that begin? That begins on November 3rd, 
but she doesn't have to play on November 3rd. Because they added those days, you have all the way up until November 9th um, to play a day one. I'm sorry, it begins November 4th, not November 3rd. So November 4th it begins. November 9th is the final day one. That's day 1F. But then you can also enter a day two on November 10th. So November 10th is the very last day she could possibly enter, and then she'd be entering directly into day two if she wants to enter day one that she has till November 9th. So that's the deadline here. Uh, This is presently October 29th. She claims that, uh, quote, Wednesday or Thursday is when she uh, realized that she had symptoms, but hadn't realized quite what it was yet. This kind of when it started. So let's just assume she got symptoms on uh, Wednesday the 27th. But she tested positive, I believe, today, the 29th. And the very latest day she could enter, November 10th, is uh, 12 days away. So that is uh, not quite two weeks. And listen to this rule from the World Series of Poker. We ask that you not attend if any of the following is true for you or anyone in your party. And then, number one, within 14 days before attending WSOP, you have tested positive or been exposed to someone who's tested positive for COVID-19. So I won't read the rest because it's not applicable to her. But this rule says they're asking you you don't play. I don't know what they mean by asking you. Are they are they saying you can't, or they're just saying, you know, it'd be nice if you don't play if you had COVID. <laughs> That's a weird way to put it. We ask that you not attend. How about just you can't attend? That'd be much clearer. But whatever. We ask that you not attend if you tested positive of COVID within the past 14 days. Well, she just tested positive for COVID on October 29th, which 14 days after that would be after the final day she could possibly enter the main event, even on day two. So by... This rule, if this is the rule they're going to enforce, she cannot play the main event. And I'm wondering now if they're going to do it. Because there has not been, to my knowledge, any situation this year where they've had to enforce someone not playing the World Series because of a positive COVID diagnosis, especially because it's self-reported. So if you want to be a scumbag and say nothing and play anyway, uh, you can get away with it. They're, They're not forcing anyone to test for COVID. But she did it, and she made it public what those test results were. So now you can't take that back. Nor do I think she would ever do that. I think she was uh, putting it out there and was, was honestly putting it out there and not uh, trying to pull anything shady. So, okay, October 29th, she has a positive COVID test. Does she have to wait two weeks? And in my opinion, though again, my opinion doesn't matter here, but in my opinion, she should at least have to get a negative test before she can play again or maybe a negative test or two weeks. I'd prefer just a negative test. But if you're going to have an either-or, that two weeks or if you could show a negative test, you can come back. That's fine to me. But uh, just, hey, I'm going to wait it out to the main and start playing, I don't think that's okay. Now, she defended herself by some people criticizing this, like this Midwets uh, Midwets guy on Twitter. She posted a screenshot of the CDC's guidance on this, which says you can be around others after 10 days since symptoms first appeared. Well, okay. If it's 10 days since symptoms first appeared, and it also says that you have to have 24 hours of no fever without the use of fever reducers and uh, other symptoms improving. So provided she has those three happening, 
the CDC seems cool with her coming back, but they're not making the rules here. These are CDC recommendations, which I don't really agree with. I, I would not feel comfortable with her being at the table with us if she's testing positive still. I just wouldn't. I think that that should be the requirement, and that's what they're doing in the professional sports leagues. And nothing against her with this. I, I, in fact, it's positive that she reported this to the public. But now that she has, while I'm sure it upset her that she can't play the main event, that's just the way the cookie crumbles if she can't do it because she's still testing positive or because 14 days haven't passed. I mean, that's just... Remember that guy uh, who last year couldn't even play at the final table because he had COVID? What about him? Just tough luck on him, right? That's what happened. Well, she hasn't even entered yet. So if she just can't play, that's the way it goes. And, you know, forget about the actual ramifications. I mean, first of all, I totally agree with you that she should have to show a negative test before she can play. And that's something that the World Series of Poker could just say, like, this is what's going to happen. And I agree with you 100%. That's what they should do. But in addition to that, like just the optics of it, like it just looks terrible. You know, they, they just there's, there's no way they should do that. Yeah. And this is going to present a controversy for sure if they say she can't play, because as I said, she's pretty popular again. And she will obviously make a big stink about it, saying, hey, the CDC says this. Why can't I? And you're going to have these people, the CDC cheerleaders saying, oh, well, CDC says it's fine. Let her play. And you're going to have others going, wait, this is crazy. She can't show a negative test and she, she wants to sit down and play while positive for COVID, while unvaxxed people who aren't positive for COVID can't play? Like that's, that's Just that part of it makes it unfair. Imagine if you're sitting out the whole World Series because you're unvaxxed, and you're seeing someone with a positive COVID test being allowed to sit down. I mean, th- that's just insane to me. This isn't even yeah. like it's a wild, wild west where anybody can sit. They're being very careful here. So that has to include keeping positive testing COVID people out until they test negative. And Maybe that'll disincentivize people self-reporting like she did, but she's already done it, so that cat's out of the bag, and that's what I feel should have to happen. I tweeted to the World Series asking for comment on this rule, but they did not answer. In fact, I'm wondering if they are kind of deciding what to do. They must know about this by now. It Um, it seems incredibly obvious to me what they should do. Me too. I I agree with you 100%. Surprisingly, a lot of people think, oh, she should be able to come back if, if it's 10 days since the first symptoms. I'm like, what? No. I don't want her at my table if it's like that. That would be disturbing well, and other to people see. Are gonna other people that are there are going to have the same opinion you have. You yeah. Know? That's and why I've jumped. They've jumped through all the hoops. They've gotten vaccinated. They've done all their stuff, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody could argue that a person who is testing positive for COVID is a hell of a lot more dangerous than somebody who is unvaccinated, but you have no evidence they have COVID at all. I think the positive tester of COVID, vaccinated or unvaccinated, is the most dangerous to be around here. So so we need to see a negative test, Vanessa, and I don't know if you're going to get one. And I don't know what the World Series is going to do, but I know what they should do. Your your girlfriend or, you know, someone that you're having sex with tells you that she's got gonorrhea. I, I would wait until I had sex with her again, until I got a test back saying it's gone. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm just saying, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it seems reasonable. Yes. You know? it, it's crazy to me that people are even debating this, given the way the World Series is handling COVID 
and the cautiousness that they are using, which I know they're not doing because they care about us. They're doing it to uh, allow people to play with no mask and have like the maximum number of people interested in playing. But it happened to work. It happened to be successful in preventing major COVID outbreaks at the World Series. So congrats for that. But now they've got to do the second part. They've got to keep the people out who are testing positive. To me, there's no question. So she seems very confident she can play the main event. She wasn't like, oh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to look into if I can play the main event. If I can, I'll see you there. It, it wasn't like that. Or oh, I hope I'm better by the main event. She's like, okay, see you guys at the main event. I'm like, wait a minute. It's October 29th. The main event begins November 4th. The last day you can play is November 10th. Like, what? What do you see you at the main event? That's, that's not quite automatic here. If she got this on October 1st, yeah, sure. See you at the main event. But end of October? No. So yeah, we, pass. we shall see. <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest. I, I wouldn't want her at my first day table anyway because she's a good player. I'd prefer to have a table full of fish. But still, I would be very disturbed to see her at my table at the main event day one at this point, given what uh, she has revealed here. It is good that she was public with it. It's good that she wanted people to be aware so they could look into it and I, I want everyone to understand here that this is nothing against her in fact I'm saying something positive that she came forward with it when a lot of the others were would not have done so but now that she has now it must be treated in the proper way I think that's all we have to say about that at the moment but the, the first instance it took all the way till the end of October but we have our first instance of a known pro with COVID and now we will see what the World Series of Poker does about it it will be interesting, and I will report back next week. Let's move on to a more uplifting story, rather than the story about someone who might be kept out of the World Series who really wants to play. Let's talk about somebody who will be in the World Series that thought he may not be able to play. We had our uh, stories in the past about uh, Kevin Roster, who went by Kevin Rax, who had sarcoma and wanted to play the World Series as basically a final thing that he would do before getting a, a medically-assisted suicide in California. He wasn't from California. He actually went to California to get the medically-assisted suicide because he was suffering so badly from sarcoma, and uh, he played the main event as just kind of a bucketless thing and, in fact, wasn't even able to uh, really finish it because he got it to be in such bad shape on day two, despite the fact that he was doing pretty well. But he uh, somehow during the dinner break, he really went downhill on day two and then just uh, couldn't bring himself to come back. And uh, So he didn't cash, even though he probably would have if he were able to at least be like okay enough to continue playing. But everyone gave him props for trying, and uh, he said he was doing this to bring awareness to sarcoma, and that was really the main reason he was doing it. He was trying to get uh, stories out about him just so people could understand sarcoma better. And then he did pass away a few weeks after that through this uh, medical-assisted suicide. So that happened in 2019. And uh, unfortunately, we have another person who has cancer that he says is terminal. Again, not a known player, but someone who uh, put out on Twitter that he has uh, terminal brain cancer. This is a poker player named uh, Michael Graydon. He is not old. I don't know how old he is, but he's a uh, younger guy who has young kids. So this is a very sad story that he has this. He has something called low-grade gilloma. And low-grade makes it sound like it's not a big deal, but that's just the name of it. It doesn't mean it's uh, low-risk. And it's some kind of brain cancer. I don't know much about it. 
uh, I Googled it when I read about uh, low-grade gliloma, which I found out from his GoFundMe page. And from what I Googled, many who have low-grade gliloma can actually be cured. However, there is a certain percentage of people who have low-grade gliloma in a location in their brain that cannot be uh, treated. And he is in that situation, that he's in the incurable situation. Now, this is not like uh, pancreatic cancer where you're dead within months, but uh, the average time that you're going to live after uh, this diagnosis is, uh, if it's incurable, is 4 to 13 years. Now, you may say, oh, 13 years, and it's a crappy if you're a young guy, you get the diagnosis, but you know, he may be around for a long time. But I'm not sure how far along this is. This could be much farther along than something that was just uh, diagnosed. I'll read to you from his... Uh, GoFundMe, which his wife started, says, uh, Michael Graydon, birdies for brain cancer. If anyone, oh, it's actually his his, uh, sister, not his uh, wife. If anyone knows my brother, Michael Graydon, they know he loves life, maybe to a fault. As much as life has thrown him, he goes through life with a smile and positive outlook. Michael and his family have already been through a significant medical circumstance with the kidney transplant and ongoing medical attention required of his five-year-old daughter, Rin. Wow, that's pretty bad. So he gets brain cancer and he has the young daughter with major health problems. Ooh. On top of this, Michael was recently diagnosed with low-grade gliloma. It's a slow-growing growing cancerous tumor that doctors say is no cure for. Michael is currently going through radiation and chemotherapy in an effort to kill this tumor. We're believing God will work everything according to his will and for his glory. In the meantime, we are requesting help for Michael and his family as medical bills begin to arrive and the energy to run his landscaping company is depleting quickly. Please prayerfully consider helping any way you can. He has raised uh, 22000 of the uh, $30,000 goal. He is from Alabama, and this was started back in May of 2021, this GoFundMe. At the time, uh, nobody in poker really knew about this, and he is not a known player. That's why you haven't heard the name Michael Graydon before. So what he wrote on October 26th was, In March of this year, I was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. Okay, yeah, this was March. I was missing that somehow. Due to the location of my tumor, there isn't anything medically that can do. This year, I want to play the World Series main event. I need your help. Selling 70% at no markup. Just love to play. DM to book. Please retweet. So he was just hoping to get $7,000 raised to play the main, which apparently he's always wanted to do, and he's afraid he's not going to be able to do it for that much longer, given the uh, terminal brain cancer he has. So I guess he was able to put up 3K of his own, and that he was hoping to have investors cover the other 70%, the other $7,000 total, and then they would own 70% of him. He's not charging markup. So basically he'd be selling 70 and then he'd pay out 70% of whatever he ends up winning. Well, uh, poker pro MJ Gonzalez did something very nice. He responded back. And this is after some people already said that they're going to be buying pieces of him. MJ Gonzalez said, to all the people that offered to buy pieces, does anyone mind if I just put him in for the whole amount and let him keep 100% of himself? If no objections, consider it done. Michael, DM me. So that was a very generous offer. He's just basically giving away 10K here. He's just handing uh, Michael Graydon 10K to enter the main event and says, okay, you own all of yourself. Whatever you win, you just keep. So if, if somehow Michael Graydon wins the main event, which would be a very feel-good story, of course, then he, uh, let's say it's $10 million for his prize, and he just keeps the whole $10 million and uh, MJ gets nothing. So he's just doing it to be nice because he's been successful, and uh, 
he's giving $10,000 away to this man with cancer so he could play and have all of himself and uh, not worry about giving away 70% of the prize. Of course, everybody in that thread was happy to do this, to allow this to happen. And a lot of them said what they're going to do is they're going to take what they were going to buy of his main event and instead just donate it to his GoFundMe. I don't know how many actually did that, but that's what some were saying. So that's a very nice story that uh, MJ Gonzalez is doing this. Uh, it, it would be an epic scam, I will say, if uh, if this whole thing is just to get a free main event seat. Can you imagine if that happened? If the, if, if someone just uh, claimed they had cancer to, to get some uh, poker players to buy them in, and then when they win the whole thing, they go, ah, psych, I'm totally healthy, thanks to the 10 million chumps, and then they disappear. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be happy about that story, and I'm sure I'd be bashing that person pretty hard on this show, but uh, I would at least give them credit for uh, pulling one over on the community pretty well. But I don't believe that's what's happening here. I don't think there's uh, very much of a chance of that. I, I believe uh, Michael Graydon really does have the uh, terminal brain cancer that he says he does, and uh, very nice of uh, MJ Gonzalez to come forward and do this. And uh, there, there are a lot of generous people in the poker community who, when they see something like this, they want to do something nice. They want to give back. And, and that's very good. And I, I like to see things like this rather than stupid things, like when all these idiots were donating to that uh, Minnesota Freedom Fund to bail out rioters in Minneapolis. And you know, a lot of dummies in poker donating to that. And then a lot of bad things came out about what that fund was doing, like bailing out child molesters and serial rapists. So that's a stupid thing to do with your money. You know, people can spend money how they want, but I, I think it's much nicer when there are targeted uh, charity efforts, even not, not like official charity efforts, but targeted efforts to help someone just out of generosity. So MJ Gonzalez is is doing well in poker and he uh i think he has uh, a, a poker training company anyway he's doing well and he says okay you know i'm just going to do something nice this guy has terminal brain cancer he's a young guy he has a young daughter very depressing story i i'm, I'm going to make his day i'm just going to give him 10k to play it that's that's the type of thing i like to see and obviously there's no uh, political implications to this it's just someone being nice so that was, you don't want to spend money bailing out child molesters, Jeff? What are you talking about? Yeah, that's that, that hasn't really been the top priority of my uh, budget here. But uh, he said, so then uh, MJ Gonzalez gave an update. He said, okay, dope. What are you, Prahlad Friedman? Okay, dope? Okay, I'll, I'll excuse it here because of what you're doing. Okay, dope. Seems like everyone is okay with Michael keeping 100% of himself. Love to see it. And I guess somebody else now, I didn't see this till right now, but uh, uh, someone else named uh, Jonathan Deppa, who seems to be more of a, a crypto guy, he said, Jonathan Deppa messaged me privately and asked to pay for half of it, so we'll be chopping the main event buy-in. So good luck, my man, win all the money. So this Jonathan Deppa came forward later, apparently, and said to MJ, hey, you know, I want to do this too, but I see you've already committed your 10k to it how about we just pay five and you know we just split this to be nice to the guy so i guess we have Did one say what's up everybody <laughs> yeah you know, I, I i'm donating 10k to them because i want to do something dope and uh this is my way to atone for making you all play on ub 
and say it's a new UB when it's really the OUB and they steal your money. So now, now all these years later, I do something nice for you. I'm being dope. Y'all forgive me now, right? Actually, if he did that, I'd actually say, okay, you know, I finally bought some goodwill here, but he did not. MJ Gonzalez doesn't even owe any goodwill. I haven't heard anything bad about him. So, anyway, let's uh, move on here to the uh, Hustler Casino live story, which... Uh, oh, yeah. That's, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> uh, because this was something that was anticipated by a lot of people. And uh, Ryan Feldman, who we had on this show, he did a long interview with us for about an hour and a half and uh, said a lot of interesting stuff. He's done a great job with Hustler Casino Live. He's brought a lot of interesting players to the game. He just instantly made it very, very competitive with Live of the Bike. Let me let me say that. And, oh, yeah. Uh, and, and our, you know, the Hanson kid has been commentating, and he's loving, <laughs> he's loving Hustler because the, the action they've been bringing, he's even been running promo spots on their live stream and uh, it, it's been fantastic for him too yeah the Hanson kids actually gotten some props here on poker fraudler people were saying they they enjoyed his commentary they th- they thought he's good at it so the Hanson kid uh yeah he's been commentating on there and in fact he even uh spammed it on poker fraud alert which which i was fine with i didn't uh mind his spamming but uh the, the hansen kid actually promoted this uh, ivy and dwan game that was going to yep. be happening which I, I thought was fine because he was first of all yeah he's a friend of the site so i have no problem with him doing that but but second uh this was interesting in itself like this is yeah even so like it, people would want to know about that you know what i mean right. if i was a, a poker enthusiast i would love to know that that was uh, a thing that was going on i don't I don't. I'm never. I'm going to deny having said this, but the Hanson kid is very, very good at doing commentary. He, he is. He's, yeah. He's, no, he is. That's true. So uh, he uh, he promoted this on Poker Fraud Actually, instead of getting the usual trolling, people praised him for uh, bringing this to everyone's attention. And uh, this was a an epic game that was going to feature, uh, of course, of course the. Uh, Usual Garrett Adelstein, but ones who are not very usual in that game, Phil Ivey and Tom Dwan, and then also a, uh, a Euro player named Mickey, who, M-I-K-K-I, who was, uh, brought an interesting style to the game and, and shook that things up. That great. And, and then uh, <laughs> even Matt Berkey was there. So, like, so you had a number of uh, names in this, some big, some huge. So, like, Ivy and Dwan, of course, being the two biggest names by far, and they don't typically appear on these things, especially together. Yeah, I, so I, told, I, I watched the beginning of, of that video. I didn't watch the whole thing. And I saw that this Mickey guy, who's this tattooed guy who clearly is not a poker professional, he was just owning everybody. Yeah, he was. Like, oh, this is wonderful. This is wonderful, <laughs> you know? So, people were uh, excited to see this game, and this was uh, last week on October 22nd. But of all things, the two biggest stories that came out of that game had nothing to do with any of the guys they just named. Not one of them. I mean, it was interesting they were there, and that got a lot of eyeballs to the game, and it was great that uh, Ryan Feldman was able to put this together and shows you what kind of job he's doing there for uh, Hustler, Hustler Casino Live. But... The two big stories that came out afterwards that actually were uh, mainstream news stories were about two people in the game, totally separate from one another, two separate stories, who were really nobodies. So, a story first came out about something that happened at a Lakers game on uh, that same night, on uh, October 22nd. 
And what had happened at this Lakers game, and this is not just being discussed in poker circles, it's being discussed uh, all over social media. This is a, a pretty big uh, story that uh, Rajan Rondo, who just came back to the Lakers, that uh, he had an altercation with a fan. And that uh, a fan was ejected from the Lakers game at, at uh, Staples Center for slapping Rajan Rondo's hand. And uh, that, that's always a pretty big story when a fan makes physical contact with a player, especially a hostile physical contact like a slap. Now, it wasn't as bad as it sounded from that story because, uh, and I still don't exactly know what precipitated this, but somehow the fan who was sitting courtside got into an issue with uh, Rajon Rondo and was probably talking trash to him. Uh, You can see in the video that Rajon Rondo goes to the ref and appears to complain about that player and points over to him. And uh, then a little bit of time passes, maybe 10 seconds or so, Rondo ends up over there where the player is again, and uh, they start to argue. And Rondo points his finger at the player. I think he was trying to say, there he is, he's doing it again. I think it's something like that. He points it, but very close to the guy's face. So then the fan slaps his hand away. <laughs> just pretty unbelievable to see here. You can see this on, on the video of the game. They actually had two camera angles of it. The first one kind of cut away. You didn't get to see what happened, but then they had a second angle of it where you actually see the fan slapping Rajon Rondo's hand away. And so the security rushed over and ejected the fan. And that uh, was a story that went around. Now, it's unlikely the guy's going to be arrested. It's not like he ran on the court and slapped Rajon Rondo, that would get him arrested. Here he yeah, could say slapping that... Slapping his hand away is not the end of the world. Yeah, it's not the end of the world, and, and his fing- Rajon Rondo's finger was right in his face, so he could say a few things. He thought he was about to be poked in the eye by him. Uh, uh, he, he just felt he's getting his personal space invaded and trying to push his hand away. Uh, there's a lot of things you could say to where it would be hard to press any kind of assault charges for this. With that being said, I'm sure the Lakers are not going to let this guy back because it's up to them who they want to allow in Staples Center, and since he did slappers on the Rondo's hand, uh, I, he probably isn't going to be allowed to come back in there. The I, I have to imagine he, he got a ban for life. I, I actually heard about this before I knew anything about its connection to poker, which <laughs> I'm sure you guys already know where I'm going with this. Well, it turns out that uh, the fan who did this was one of the people in that Hustler Casino live game we were just talking about, and he actually left the game and announced that he's going to watch the Lakers. Man, I'll tell you what, Feldman's a genius if he got this guy there on purpose. You know what I mean? <laughs> that would be that would be next level shit right there. Yeah, what if what if Feldman just saw it coming? He knew the guy was going to uh slap Rondo's hand later in the night. He could see the future and says, let's let's get this guy. Nobody knows who he is now, but he's gonna be known as the player who slaps an NBA player. So, nah, like you know, slip him a few bucks to go get in an altercation. You know, make some noise. <laughs> so, so yeah. So it was uh, of all people. I mean, just it, it could be one of so many people who would do this. Of all things, it happens to be someone in that Hustler Casino Live game who actually left the Hustler Casino Live game to uh, go watch the Lakers and then gets into that altercation where he slaps a player's hand. So that uh, that was the first weird thing with uh, with that whole stream and something that happened with someone but nope that was not the only thing a totally separate thing happened i shouldn't say happened but was discovered about one of the players in the game 
There is one who they referred to in the game as Lucky. And Lucky was not a poker pro, you could tell by, by his play. But uh, something came out about Lucky after the game. Now, I will say that he didn't do anything in the game or after the game, so this isn't anything Lucky did uh, presently. However, listen to this uh, news report. I'm going to read it to you. From yeah, no, no guy named Lucky is ever anything other than the spot in the game. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's just, it would be great to have someone named Lucky who's like just the best player at the table. Who's like <laughs> just a crusher who just also gets lucky. I have known people who are very good. And it's like every time I play with them, they're also getting lucky. But uh, anyway, but they're not known as lucky. They just are lucky. In 2017, this was up on uh, ABC7Chicago.com, which is the website of the ABC affiliate in the Chicago area, Channel 7. Northwest Indiana police announced charges Tuesday regarding the, quote, sweetheart swindler, a man who allegedly exploited several women sexually, emotionally, and financially. Hobart police said 32-year-old Lenar Adams, a.k.a. Lucky, doesn't say that, but that's who it is, the same guy, (laughs) has been charged with rape, kidnapping, fraud, intimidation, and theft. The charges were as a result of accounts from at least four women, according to police. This guy did it all. I mean, usually a rapist, that's all he does is just rape. Or usually a scammer, all he does is scam. But this guy was charged with rape, kidnapping, fraud, intimidation, and theft. So what was he doing? Good, good to hear that they're still getting quality people at the poker table. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it says... Uh, He's charged with crimes that occurred between November 2016 and last month, which was in uh, late 2017. There's like a year period from late 2016 to 17. Lieutenant James Gonzalez of the Hobart Police Department said in most cases, Adams told women he was a neurosurgeon who needed to buy children gifts for charity. Adams obtained at least $67,000 worth of cash, electronics, jewelry, and other items from women he either scammed or intimidated. Investigators it all off at the poker table. Yes. Investigators believe there are more than than the four victims who were exploited by Adams over the last year and are asking him to come forward. Police said so far six more women have come forward with allegations against Adams. We understand that if there are additional victims, they may be hesitant to report any crimes committed against them because they may feel embarrassed, fearful, or ashamed, but we want to really encourage them to come forward and speak with law enforcement. So apparently, in addition to all – I don't know why this article doesn't mention this part, but the rape part came in to where I guess once he milked them for all the money he could, then he would rape them. So this guy just ran the gamut of everything here as far as victimizing these women. So this is the same guy. This is the guy on on the stream. And so while he didn't rape anyone at the Hustler or afterwards, this is who is at the table in addition to the guy who slapped Rondo's hand. These guys were, these two were at the table with all the ones who were supposed to be the interesting players. So the the, the two nobodies at the table actually weren't nobodies after all, but, but not in a good way. At least the second one. At least the guy who slapped Rondo's hand, you can kind of Make some excuses for him, but uh, the, the the whole thing with the the rape, kidnapping, fraud, intimidation, and theft. Uh, there's not much you can say about that. And uh, so, so I he would steal their money and then rape them. Uh, apparently, yeah. Apparently, that he the, he was doing all these things. Yeah, that uh, at first he would seem like this nice guy who's a neurosurgeon. I wonder if he stole this uh, this idea from Ben Carson. He's like, well, Ben Carson's black and he's a neurosurgeon. Maybe I'll, I'll just be one too. It'll be believable. So, like, I don't know why, why a neurosurgeon, but he was a neurosurgeon, which of course he really wasn't. There was a story, and then um, 
he would claim that he's trying to raise money to donate uh, to children in hospitals and uh, these women would, would give the money and then I guess once he got the money out of them that he could then then the rapes would occur. It sounds like a very nice guy. So that's, that's who was at the table. I, I don't blame Ryan Feldman or anyone else at Hustler Casino Live for this. Uh, they can't do a big background check on every player of the game. They can't really do any no, background check. No, no games would run if they did background checks. Enough. You know, I've wondered sometimes with people at... Uh, games I've been at who seem like uh, very shady characters and I go how is this person able to play 400 800 limit hold'em like this just doesn't seem like the type of person who who would just have this type of money from legitimate means and come on you know how <laughs> and and uh, you don't see them for very long but it seems more than just someone with a gambling problem it seems like someone with a gambling problem and uh, probably obtained the money uh, not very legally is that's uh, a staple of every casino that I've ever been to is that there are regulars there or, or people that just show up or a particular type of character that clearly are involved in illegal activities. And, you know, people that are playing there are like, oh, you know, it's kind of just like, well, we're, we're not going to judge anyone because they're, they're dunking off all their money, you know? Yeah, that's what happens. And then, then you've even oh, had yeah. some, some worse cases. You've had these, uh, there were not just one, but two different guys in the late 2000s who murdered their parents for a bankroll. The, yeah, one, the one that was about that. the one that was best known, really the only one that is well known, is uh, Ernie Shearer the Third, who who murdered his parents and is currently in prison for that. But there was a much lesser known case of an Asian guy. I don't know what happened to that case, but th- they actually came and arrested him out of the Commerce two hundred four hundred limit game, kind of around the same time as as Ernie Shearer's situation, and they just pulled him out of the game and arrested him for killing his parents to get the inheritance to play in that game, and. Uh, Somehow that one never got a lot of publicity or any publicity, and I don't even know the guy's name, so I can't even follow up what happened with him. But he was arrested for the same thing. So I go, wow. I wonder, like, are these the only two who've done this, or are there more people who've killed their parents for a poker bankroll? I think it's a point you got to draw the line, though. I, th- I think if uh, if the person at the table has obtained their money through raping women, scamming, and then raping women, or by killing their parents, I think at that point, even if they're a donk, you have to say, you know what? I, I think we shouldn't have them here. But, of course, they didn't know that at uh, Hustler Casino Live. I can't imagine he's going to be invited back after that revelation. But, boy, what a lot of stuff to learn in a short time after this game. This is not what they expected to be stories coming from that game. But I I don't think they're going to be able to top this game. Imagine a game where you have Phil Ivey and Tom Dwan where you have one player who's apparently a convicted rapist. He was convicted for this, by the way. It wasn't just an allegation back then. And, uh, and, and not just a rapist, a convicted rapist and scammer at the same time. And then one who actually left the game to go to a Lakers game and slapped the hand of one of the players. That's going to be very hard to top. Yeah. I, but, Ruff, in the scenario you painted before, you know that if there's some guy at the table who had a ton of money on the table and was just donking it off everywhere... And someone came in and said, oh, this, oh, is this the guy that murdered his parents? You know, we, we shouldn't play with him. There'd be a number of people at the table that'd be like, ah, oh, well, you know, let him stay. He seems okay. You know, you know that that would happen. Yeah, probably. No, I, but I, I couldn't bring myself to, like, try to win that money anymore if I were to hear that. Like, I, it's I'm, one thing I'm if it's... saying you, yeah. but you know that there would be people at the table. Oh, of course. Like, no, he seems like a nice guy. Of, of course. <laughs> Like, I, I'm willing to put aside 
the concerns like okay this guy got this from dealing drugs or or whatever like okay whatever like first of all i don't know for sure but second like that's that's one thing just you got it from dealing drugs or some other illegal means and then donking it off to me and other pros at the poker table it's another thing if it's uh from uh, a combination of raping and scamming or uh, or murdering one's parents that's uh that's the next level there as far as getting the poker bankroll yeah for sure for sure and and apparently uh lucky was very very generous with the tipping which by the way is very common among scammers yeah so the staff isn't going to want him to leave you <laughs> i'm sorry They're apparently he, he gave 2k to the dealer in one of those pots what does he care <laughs> yeah, that, know, he just, exactly he just got it from donations from some uh, woman who thought she was giving it to kids charities you know that's what's funny. Like, like, I think the people who are like really, really cheap at the table regarding tips, they're probably most likely to have uh, earned the money themselves that they're playing with. I think the, the more effort you put to the uh, earning the money, the uh, more likely you are to be frugal with it. Not everybody's going to be frugal with it, but like someone who is frugal probably feels like they put a lot of effort to earn the money and, and doesn't want to give it away. Whereas someone who's like overly generous, that starts to raise the chances that they are scamming, unless they're like just super rich. But uh, yeah, uh, other th- I was going to say either either they have more money than God, or yeah, they 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 got the money some illicit way that they they don't value it at all. Yeah. You know? So anyway, uh, I, I give props to Ryan Feldman for putting this together, even with these uh, some of these characters that. It was unexpected what was going to happen, but he's he's done a great job with with that Hustler Casino Live. When that was first announced, uh, even though I I knew Feldman did a good job with with producing these games, I'm like, well, this is a whole new thing. I don't know if it's going to catch on. I don't know if people are going to want to watch it with Live the Bike already there. But boy, this thing just took off immediately, and bikes got to be really kicking themselves for letting this happen. They didn't have to let this happen. And they did. Well, my my understanding is that there, uh, there were some non geniuses that were kind of running, <laughs> running the show over there. So it doesn't surprise me at all. You know. Yeah, it, it kind of seems like that. So they they've just uh, they pretty much just enabled a competitor in the same market to just do what they're doing, and that that was not but smart. They, they're getting all the business from commerce apparently now, right? Yeah, so no, that was the smart there. thing they did. They 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 did yeah. cannibalize commerce. They're like like you know what. We might have been stupid with Life of the Bike, but we're going to be smart with the middle stakes and high stakes action that Commerce is stupidly driving away, and we're just going to scoop it up, and uh, Commerce is going to well, become again, a has-been. As you mentioned, I think, um, Live at the Bike, a lot of people think it's run by the bike, but it's not. It's a totally separate company that runs it. So yeah. the fact that management at the bike is doing something good doesn't mean that they have anything to do with Live at the Bike and the, the silly decisions that they're making, you know? Yeah, but apparently they did something else involving Ryan, which wasn't good either. It drove him away from, from being involved with the bike at all. So I, I know it's two totally different oh, things, okay. but uh, it was somewhat the bike too. But I, I will give them credit, though. They they did what I thought would be very difficult to do, and that was take Commerce's action. But then they didn't. They successfully did it. As soon as the mask okay. mandate disappears, I'll, I will go down there and start playing. I just don't feel like wearing a mask there. For, I don't for, blame you. Yeah, I, uh, I told you that was one of the motivating factors for me. Not wanting to go over to Amsterdam is just, you know, I just don't feel like wearing a mask all the time. You know what I mean? If it were a little Uh, closer to me, bike, like, or bike or commerce, if it still had games, then I would take more of a shot with, okay, maybe I'll go down just for a short time until I get sick of the mask. But the fact that I've got to put such effort to drive down there and drive back, 
Uh, I wouldn't want to just be there for an hour and go, ah, I, I can't stand wearing this mask anymore. I'm gone. And like, I, I, like, I feel like I wasted my time coming down there. So that, that also really keeps me away. So, but hopefully this, yeah. this changes and then I can go there. I'm feeling confident again that I've gotten the booster. So just waiting for the mask thing to disappear. We will see what occurs next on Hustler Casino Live, which is now uh, very much a fixture in the live cash streaming world. And very quickly. Okay, so let's move on to the next subject here. I want to talk about Phil Ivey's uh, shoe-based NFT. I didn't think I'd be seeing a a shoe-based NFT. Uh, NFT being the uh, non-fungible token. And these have become all the rage in uh, 2021. Some people believe they began in 2021. That that this is when they were invented. That's not true. They actually go back years. Just nobody's paying attention to them until 2021. And 2021 has been kind of strange for that sort of thing. Just a a lot has been happening in 2021 where value is assigned to something very arbitrary that doesn't appeal, appear to really have value. And it kind of started with the whole AMC and GameStop, GameStop stock thing that happened, I think in February. And then it just took off from there. Just everything, a lot of things started happening where just things were assigned value with really no utility and Really, it's even hard to explain why they're valuable. It, it makes Bitcoin look like it's tangible. And, well, and- it's been going on even longer than that. You know, if you think about it from a, a human nature point of view, pretty much everything has an arbitrary value assigned to it. You know, like uh, my, my son is studying uh, the gold rush. And when all everyone ran out there to get it, and he's like, well, why, why is gold valuable? And I'm like, well, <laughs> it's valuable because people think it's valuable. You yeah, know? and if you and that's really the same thing with the NFTs, you know. Yeah, diamonds are even worse. They even have less utility than gold, and if they're they're even more valuable than than, than gold. Well, and there was some, uh, you know, shall we say, insider trading with De Beers and a whole bunch of shit that went on there, which arguably is also what is going on with NFTs and crypto. Yeah. Know? So anyway, a lot of people are trying to get in on the uh, NFT fad. A lot of NFTs are be, have been created in 2021. For the few of you who do not know what these are, uh, NFTs, again, stands for non-fungible tokens. And, and just very simply put, it gives you ownership of uh, something that's on a cryptocurrency blockchain that uh, you have ownership of that entity on the blockchain. And usually it's some piece of art or something like that. But you don't necessarily, ha- and usually, in fact, you usually don't actually own the rights to whatever is being uh, depicted there. So you, yeah. you it's it's like kind someone of- could put up a picture, Druff, and they could issue an NFT for it, and someone could buy that NFT, and it would say, "This is the one person in the world that owns this thing." But then the peop- the person that actually owns the image, can just delete it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like there's like, nothing stopping that from happening. Yeah, and so you don't own you don't own even the copyright to whatever image no. that is associated with the NFT. You just uh, it's just you own the NFT itself that is associated with that image. It's a very strange thing to me. When I first heard about it, uh, it, it seemed really strange. The first one I became aware of was actually NBA Top Shot, which made a little more sense because it was more comparable to baseball cards or basketball cards. And, and then, uh, but but it was kind of weird because you own like a video moment, which then you could just go 
find on YouTube and anyone can see it on YouTube and you don't really own rights to that moment. You just own the video of the moment that's uh, that's being given by Top Shot. But other than that, you have no rights to it. It, But at least I could kind of compare it to baseball cards. But Sort of, except you don't own the card. Yeah, and so, but, but then it got <laughs> so even weirder. Someone made a really good analogy, and I want to see if this resonates with you. They said that NFT todays are kind of analogous to some things that happened decades ago in terms of where you could um, name a star, right? Oh, so yeah, you, the, you the, the send, star naming, yes, I remember that. You send money off to a star registry, and they would say, okay, you own that star, and you can name it whatever you want. And also there was a similar thing that was going on where you could name porpoises, right? And, or dolphins, I'm sorry, where you either were trying to raise money for, you know, wildlife or whatever. And, uh, you know, for a certain amount of money, you could name a dolphin. And then the dolphins got that name. And there, it actually is kind of similar to the, the star registry and naming a star. You know what I mean? It's yeah, that was such a big a scam. I, in fact, a lot of people stupidly believe they were really naming stars. They just thought there were so many stars out there that somehow this is being sold where you can officially name them. But no, it was just the, the registry itself would put down that uh, you're naming this star that, but it meant nothing. Which is exactly analogous to the blockchain registry where your NFT is. Yeah. Exactly. It's a registry in both cases. Yes. So Phil Ivey is now involved in this. This is not surprising. Now, Phil Ivey's not technical. He did not design this NFT. If you think he was sitting there in front of his computer uh, putting this together, you're wrong. Uh, to my knowledge, he's not even artistic in any way. Uh, but Phil Ivey is something, and that is he is always willing to lease out his name. He's one of uh, several poker pros who, if offered money for something, will typically say, yep, let's do it. And he will stamp his name on it. Cough, help, help me. <laughs> well, uh, Johnny Chan is one who's uh, notorious for that. Uh, the grinder, Michael Mizraki, is notorious for that. So Phil Ivey is another one. And, and there are plenty of poker pros that would love to be able to be one of them. Yes, true. That, that's also true. Yeah. Uh, so Phil Ivey, it's funny. You'll hear he's associated with something, and people will sometimes really believe that like it's his and he made it. Here, at least, you can kind of say, okay, I kind of can't picture Phil Ivey created this. But there's other things that are less obvious, like poker-type-related products, where you kind of think it really is Ivey's creation. And no, it's just someone approached him and said, hey, how would you like to be the face of this and have it? be the Phil Ivey yeah, this. Like okay, sure. Ivy poker that he did a while ago. Yes. Yeah. And, and almost not, all not, these fail. Sorry, not, that, not he did. That he, <laughs> that someone paid him to use his name for. I yes. Should say. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, for some reason, an NFT sneaker has been made. I kid you not. An NFT sneaker. And uh, this was created by Dominic Chambrone. C-H-A-M-B-R-O-N-E. Dominic Chambrone created this uh, NFT sneaker. And Dominic Chabron, who I hadn't heard of before, he likes to be known as the shoe surgeon. (laughs) Sounds legit, man. That's that's who uh, apparently approached Phil Ivey. And uh, supposedly Ivey, quote, helped create it. But uh, I think he helped create it the same way that uh, your three-year-old kid helps you uh, cook dinner. He didn't help create anything. (laughs) So they they had a party for this. And you have to understand 2000s poker to know what these parties are like. And and I refer to 2000s poker because it really reminds me of 2000s poker. And I went to a lot of parties in 2000s poker. It was kind of cool in a way. You just be there at the World Series. And I was fortunate enough to live in Vegas during all this. So I was very available to go. And and usually you just had to hear about it happening. There was really... uh, 
uh, not much gatekeeping involved either. But, but it wasn't even like I was sneaking in. I wasn't even crashing these parties. For the most part, like if you knew about it, you could go. Or it was very easy to get invited to it. Or if it's just someone you know is invited, they can bring you. So I went to a lot of these parties, these very lavish parties. A lot of times with good food. A lot of times with, with surprisingly uh, uh, big or medium name acts. Like acts at the party that you've, like names you've heard of before in, in the entertainment world. And uh, it just looks a ver- like a very expensive thing. And they always were sponsored by some sort of uh, poker site or, or, or poker media or something that seemed to have a lot of money to uh, sink into these things. And they had a lot of them during the World Series of Poker. They even had some World Series of Poker house parties. Like Steve Zolotow, ha- Z- Zolotow had one uh, every year for a while for 4th of July. And I went there one year. Very lavish party again. So a lot of parties in the 2000s associated with poker, most of them took place during the World Series because that's when a lot of poker players are in town. So that's when they would schedule them. So I would describe this as like a 2000s era party for something happening in 2021. And I haven't seen one of these in a while. Maybe they've gone on without me knowing about it, but I hadn't seen one of these in a while. But uh, apparently they had one to celebrate the launch of this NFT. And uh, they did invite Poker News there to report on it. And they they had an interview with Phil Ivey. So listen to this interview. This is with uh, some Poker News girl that I've never seen before. I, I don't really keep up with who their interviewers are nowadays. Uh, you know what? Uh, Tiffany Michelle has come back to Poker News, apparently. I, I just heard that recently. She's not the one doing this interview, but it, uh, I found that interesting that T- Tiffany Michelle has returned uh, after all this time. But let's uh, let's play uh, the interview here with Phil Ivey at Poker News, who was invited to this party. For the Hall of Fame this year, are we able to ask him to go? Uh, my vote? No, no, I'm going to keep that. I'm going to keep it. Yeah, but I do have a pretty big opinion on that. Right? I'm not going to Okay. And second of all, um, we saw you last weekend at Hustler Casino. Have you been playing much poker lately? Um, yeah, I've been playing a little bit. Um, uh, during the World Series, uh, some side games um, lately, the last week or so. And uh, I intend to play you know, quite a bit the rest of the way out. This looks like a very awkward interview. Not only are the questions kind of boring, but Phil Ivey's like standing with his, like, his hands to his side. He really looks like he doesn't want to be there. And he's giving just kind of very stilted answers. He, Phil Ivey's always been someone whose uh, results have done the talking. He's never been very interesting personality-wise. And this, this interview really says that. But uh, the, interview, the interviewer could be doing a better job with, with some better questions. Let's, let's listen it to this. sounds like it was recorded on like a speaking spell well, or something. That's the other problem. Is it's super soft, this interview. I'm playing it as loud as it can go, and Lots it's super soft. Lots of background soft. noise. Are there any, yeah, right, there right. Microphone? What the hell are they doing? She has a microphone, but I don't know what's happening. Yeah, it really sounds uh, like it's being recorded on like a... it's not plugged in or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like uh, I mean, it sounds like that it's being recorded on like a, a 1984 speakerphone. That's what I'm saying. I think that probably they had some kind of audio fail. I'm sure she has a microphone. She does. She's holding one. Yeah. I don't think it was hooked up. Yeah, it's, it's terrible sound quality. Okay, let's let's go on yeah. here. Final ten seconds. Seeing you at the World Series of Poker in the coming weeks. Uh, I'm not sure about that yet. Uh, I, I'm going to make a decision whether or not to play the main event. Uh, I'm just not sure. Mm. That's the only interesting question, if he's going to play uh, the World Series. I I guess he hasn't been there. I I didn't really think of that, but he hasn't been there, even though he can be, because he settled with Borgata, so they can't take his money anymore. 
he, he stupidly played that other year where they, they just swiped whatever money he won. And he's like, oops, I shouldn't do that. And then, oddly, he entered the main event that year anyway. I think it was 19. He entered the main event and just, like, shot off his money. Like, why even bother entering at that point? He just, he just apparently, like, played terribly and just people couldn't believe it. And it was because the Borgata had just taken his money from that other event and he realized whatever he wins, the Borgata will take. But, like, why not just unregister when you see that? Anyway, uh, back to this party. Apparently, uh, they invited some big names there. Uh, a former star NFL running back was there. Not sure who, but... Uh, oh, yeah, that's what, it was uh, Marshawn Lynch who was there, who was uh, on the Seahawks and the Raiders. He's pretty well known. Yeah, yeah, he is, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doubting that. And then he was at... Uh, and then also they had... Uh, some uh, models there, and I, I don't know how many big-name poker pros were there. Like, it's mentioning this article that Ebony Kenny and Jamie Kerstetter were there, which, okay, like, we know who they are, but if that's the only two they can really name that were there, that's not that's not an A-list uh, poker crowd. Yeah. Then, um, but apparently hundreds of people were at this uh, party, which was in a 8,300-square-foot uh, mansion, and it uh-huh. went on until uh, the middle of the night. Of course, was uh, lucky there? I I think he would have been if uh, the word hadn't gotten out about him. Then apparently there was an open bar. You could just drink to your heart's content. And then there were a lot of uh, body paint models wandering around the home. They must have been paid to be there. But, uh, you know, just these hot chicks who are just wearing body paint instead of clothes. Imagine they're just kind of like milling around there. <laughs> like, what the hell's going I'm on here? I'm pretty sure they're not doing that for free, Drew. Yeah. And uh, then uh, apparently this whole thing was to promote this shoe NFT. He calls it a, a multiverse NFT with a, a sneaker that was created by this, this Dominic guy. And in fact, the... Multiverse? Yeah, and, and uh, these these sneakers, you actually could see physical sneakers here. It's, it's, I see a picture of it. So these these are sneakers with um, a keychain with a poker chip on them. I'm not sure if that comes with the sneakers normally or just for this picture. But there there were there were two sneakers here that are kind of they're multicolored. They're red laces and a red inside and a red back. But then there's blue on them and black in the front and the rest of them white. Uh, they were positioned in a case of cheap poker chips. I kid you not. You know, like those really cheap poker chips you can get at the at the Gambler General store or whatever in Vegas. Uh, they yeah. they had one of these cases of cheap poker chips, and the shoes are sitting on top of them in kind of a, a posed fashion. And uh, and then as far as Ivy's involvement in this, this is what was said uh, by this guy Dominic. Oh my God, so much. He was really involved. If you look at the details, the cards behind the tongue, they are both the actual hands played in the NFT moment. (laughs) Okay. And uh, so apparently um, there was uh, a moment from High Stakes Poker from a while ago where Tom Dwan attempted a huge bluff against him and he called down with just a pair of sixes and won the hand. So that I guess the sixes are in this shoe somewhere. But that that doesn't really mean he did a lot to create it. That's like, uh, hey, Ivy, can you tell us about like something memorable that 
you did that should be a moment on this NFT? Oh, yeah, there was this hand I had with Tom Dwan a long time ago. Got it. Like, it's got to be something like that. And uh, no, his it. involvement was, you know, maybe maybe he sat in on one meeting and he said, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. that's, that's literally, I'm uh, sure, okay, extent cool. of his involvement. This is really clever, though, because I don't know if you know, but there's a huge economy out there of people that buy and collect these limited edition shoes, you know, and they, I, I'm sure that that was the pitch, you know. Someone sat down with Ivy and he's like, hey, man, you know about all these these rare Nikes and Air Jordans that they sell? Imagine that mixed with crypto. You know? Yeah. And that was the pitch. Yeah, it had I mean? to be something like that. And he's yeah. uh, he uh, actually had what was probably an advertorial in Poker News on uh, October 27th. In fact, I have to imagine Poker News probably collaborated with this whole thing. They were probably – not only were they invited, they were probably uh, – paid to write these articles about both that uh 100% that's a thing. So the yep. the chump here is me by reporting on this and getting nothing for it. But uh um the uh, on October 27th they did what seems like an advertorial and uh, Phil Ivy had tweeted on that same day looking forward to what's ahead with at Moments Auction. It says Phil Ivy introducing the f- world's first multiverse NFT. I think they're calling it multiverse because there's actually real shoes associated with it. So uh, I think they might be calling it multiverse just to play off of the the hype around uh, Marvel and uh, all their movies. Yeah, they're doing the multiverse stuff. I think it just sounds cool, and it's something that's on. Well, actually, mind. it looks like it looks like I'm more correct here because I'm seeing now. Oh, really? I'm seeing here on a uh, graphic they made. It says that uh, the world's first multiverse NFT, and it has three elements to it: iconic video moment, uh, metaverse sneaker. And high stakes event, which is a quote luxury weekend in Las Vegas. So, okay. uh, so apparently the uh, um, not only will the one who wins that moment of this legendary bluff uh, get that NFT, but apparently they're also going to get the the sneaker, and they also get some kind of uh, uh, some kind of all expense paid trip to Las Vegas to meet and compete against Ivy in a high stakes cash game. But that like, do you, do you, not who I'd want to compete with. Well, right. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't want to win that. I wouldn't want it for free. Like if someone says, say, sit down and play Ivy heads up in a high stakes cash game, I'd say, nope, no thanks. If you want to give me the money yeah, for it, fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you want to give me the money to do it, I'll do it. But I'm, I'm not going to put my own money. That's not an exciting thing. At least in this case, you get a pair of sneakers. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's true. You don't I mean, walk away empty handed. Well, because, you know, the NFT, I mean, who, who the fuck knows? It's all speculation, you know, in terms of whether anyone else is ever going to want to buy that particular nft moment from you but at least you got the sneakers you know and and maybe they'll increase in value at some point you know yes <laughs> and the, the sneaker had its uh, grand reveal at that party by the way that, that party that just uh, took place so that- they're only selling one they're selling one or they're selling a number of nft moments um, see, I'm a little confused on this one. Now, apparently... W- That's though, a lot of money to spend on promoting one NFT in one pair of shoes. No, it, it's probably a number of things, I, but that's a good question. I, I'm having a trouble understanding this from that article. Uh, now, apparently he was part of a previous NFT back in uh, in June. He was part partnered with something called Eternity, or Eternity Chain, not not uh, Eternity. It's supposed to be like Eternity, mm-hmm. but it's uh, for Ethereum, the Eternity Chain. Uh, and that was some kind of NFT to commemorate his uh, his career. 
And the collection was entitled The Royal Flush, which is pretty lame. And it How had, much did it go for? <laughs> it, uh, it, at the launch, it ranged from uh, $199 to 4000 And what you would be doing is you'd be buying a card towards the Royal Flush. The 10 was $199 and the Ace was uh, $4,000. I don't know what's happened with that NFT since because it's been several months since then. But I guess now this is the second NFT that he's part of. And I have to imagine there will be a third. Yeah, I'm not sure about how many shoes are. This would be a huge party just for one NFT. It says it's launching a unique NFT via Moments Multiverse NFTs offers collectors three dimensions to allow them a historical moment. So it looks like several moments, probably. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense. But yeah, so that that was done, and and I stupidly advertised it for free there. So that it's me and who it gets laughed at at the end. Some idea of what they're assuming their profit margins are going to be if they're throwing parties like this at an eight thousand square foot mansion. You know. Yeah, that's that's true, and. Not only that, I'm still thinking about what a chump I was here. I, I need to start doing something different. I, I need to start <laughs> contacting these uh, poker-adjacent businesses and say, look, this is what I'm going to do here. I'm going to be appearing to make jokes about your product and kind of uh, be laughing at it and uh, point out some absurd things. But in reality, I'm giving you exposure. And no one's going to suspect it because this is not going to come off like an advertorial. It's not like I'm, I'm playing it out for, for comedy purposes and as, as something to snicker at. But then people will become aware of it and say, hey, I want those shoes that uh, the, the sneaker, uh, what is it? I forget the guy's name now. <laughs> the sneaker king, whatever the hell he is, uh, designed for Phil Ivey. And now I'm going to get them. So this would be like a backdoor advertisement for them and then i could complain during the segment that i'm actually getting zero point zero in reality i could be pocketing all kinds of money and people will say druff why do you do do this hire some intern druff and have him go through all the past nine years episodes and then dice them up into individual segments and then sell an nft (laughs) for each of those individual segments Put them on the mar- just flood the market with poker fraud alert NFTs. I should. That's... I mean, it's literally what is is going on here. I know. You know. I mean, so why not? <laughs> why not? You know, it, it's it's not even completely a joke because I I have considered should I create some NFT and associate it with poker fraud alert? I just I just feel so cheap doing so. It just I, I feel like I'm just entering a fad and throwing another. Useless NFT who, into the who mix. Who wouldn't want to own the NFT for when I sent Brandon out to some ghetto Seven Eleven? Yeah, that might have that. That might have to be the most expensive one. Someone's going to want to own that. Yeah, that might have to be the most expensive one. That'll be like the Ace of Hearts here. So anyway, there's, not, not to, there's no difference between that and what's going on here. You know, they're just like let's let's pick a moment and we'll we'll sell people and we'll tell them that they own it. You can name that star whatever the fuck you want to name it. It's all yours. Yeah. You know? I, I I just wonder when this is all going to end, when this is all going to collapse. And, and if it does collapse, then are we going to be left with a few of them that are still very valuable, like the, the punks and the and then the bored apes and those the big ones? Are those going to at least hold some value while the others crash? Or is the whole thing going to fall apart? It's, it's hard to believe in, in like 10 years that, this is still going to be the same as it is today or even further expanded 
Maybe it will. Maybe I'll be wrong. I used to laugh at Bitcoin uh, 10 years ago. I go, come on, in 2021, yeah. what's, who's going to be using Bitcoin? Or who's, who's going to want to have Bitcoin in 2021? Yeah, man, I told you I threw millions of dollars into a trash heap. But you did. Human beings are funny. You know what I mean? It, it sounds crazy and it sounds so illogical. But as long as people associate some kind of value with it and as long as there's some kind of buzz around it, 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 it could sustain itself for sure. You know, Or it could also just as easily if people are, are fickle and they decide, oh, that was dumb that we were doing that. It could totally implode, you know? Yes, Definitely could. That's why it's so hard to predict these things. And uh, just when I think that a bubble is going to come and it's going to all crash down, it just gets bigger. You just never know. Well, yeah, sure. But I don't know. I mean, if someone approached me and it was like, hey, uh, do you want to own the, the moment that Phil Ivey, you know, caught a bluff from Tom Dwan? I'd be like, no, I don't I don't really know. <laughs> but clearly someone cares. Yeah, I know. That, that's my attitude. It just doesn't interest me, but. I guess some people do, and some people also do it for a speculative reason. They think, oh, I'm going to buy this, and one day it's going to be worth way more, and I'm going to make all this money. So even if they don't have interest well, in, what it is. in the whole thing themselves, yeah, that's that's what's driving most of it. That, that's what crypto and NFTs really are. It's all speculation, but that's not, it's not, <clears throat> excuse me, it's not crazy to assume that speculation could continue. You know, I mean, speculation is done on stock market and all sorts of other things, you know? Right. As, as long as money keeps getting pumped into it by people who are interested, then it can go on for a very long time. Basically, the whole process, even if it eventually crashes to zero, can occur in very slow motion to where it, yep. it can appear to have some staying power. And that's I, I've wondered that about cryptocurrency. Like A lot of the problems that cryptocurrency claimed it was going to solve, the biggest yep. cryptocurrency out there, Bitcoin – now has those same problems. So it and it's not really being widely accepted anywhere. Like we've already been through the whole thing where merchants don't really want to accept it and it really doesn't have yep. much practical use except for uh gambling and sending people uh money money online, but it's got to be large money if you want to send bitcoin because otherwise it's- the fees are too high and then uh, and, and then also I guess buying things illegally but you can't even completely do that because there's still ways to trace you down unless you're really really careful. So uh, there's there's a lot of things with bitcoin where it's just not practical and a lot of the predictions about how it's going to be intertwined into regular life just never came true and yet it's it's worth over sixty thousand dollars per bitcoin so uh, well pe- and that's exactly what it is though it's speculative right it's a speculative investment it's not as you said you can't use it for too many practical things but enough people have faith in it and it, it has become a speculative investment that's made a whole lot of people a whole lot of money yeah and, and for me, it's a lot more useful practically than most people because I, I gamble with yeah. it. I can send it to people uh, when I owe them money or when they owe me money, they can send money. So I can send it to me. So like for, for me personally, there's a hell of a lot more utility than the average uh, person who, who gets it. So, But yeah, for most people, it really is just uh, speculative. Speaking of which, this is related to that. What's going on with that horse thing, man? I, I'm oh, the Zed run. Um, well, they're, it's, they are really screwing things up. I, I haven't talked about it out here just because yeah, it's kind of been quietly doing it in the background, but they're making a lot of just mind-bogglingly stupid decisions that nobody likes and that don't require a lot of effort to do the right thing, but yet money's rolling in investment-wise. So they're getting a lot of marketing partnerships with, with major players, things like NASCAR and Atari. They're doing some great <laughs> partnerships there that are bringing in a ton of money. Yeah, and yet basic things they're screwing up. 
So I'll tell you quickly what is one of the major problems there. They have a class system where every horse is either class one, two, three, four, or five. And that is supposed to be representing how good they are. And it's supposed to be restricting them to only race against horses that are comparable. So a class one horse can only race, race in class one. A class two horse can race in class one or two, et cetera, et cetera. A class five horse can race anywhere. So once your horse does well enough, then it gets upgraded in classes. And this gives the horses that aren't as good a chance to race against one another without always getting crushed. Well, Is class one the best class? Yes. So, oh, they fucked that up. Right. They well, really fucked that that's, up. that's just very low on the list of what they screwed up. So the problem is that people realize very quickly that it's very easy to manipulate that system and to force your horse down to lower classes to have easier competition. And it's through a process that is being called sandbagging. So you see your horse isn't good at a certain length. So, for example, your horse is a very good runner at uh, 2,600 meters, but is terrible at 1,000 to 1,200 meters. It's just a good distance racer. So what do you do? You keep entering cheap races over and over, or even free races over and over, to lower your rating. You lose on purpose. <laughs> you lower your rating, and then you enter more expensive it. races at the lower classes and crush everybody else. So the problem is the lower classes at everything but the very cheapest races were having these crusher horses that were just destroying everybody. And all they've done is they keep claiming they're going to address it, but all they've done is made it worse. So they came out with a new thing called tournaments where you have to uh, – qualify by winning a certain percentage of races at, at a certain length and and uh, so people were excited about the tournament so in order to make it easier to get into races they added a ton of free races so what do you think people did with the free races they just used them to purposely lose of course and they compounded the problem by decreasing the number of paid races because they had so many free races going so now the few paid races going just had the very top horses on the site at all classes and it was impossible to win so, like, this type of boneheaded stuff happens. And now, there's a lot of smart people in the community, not people who work for Zedron, but people who use Zedron, who have given them a lot of great suggestions on how to solve things like this. I have even given suggestions on how it can be solved. I won't bother to say them on here, but it's not even incredibly complex. So, they have implemented none of them. And this has gone on for months and months and months, and people complain about it, and they do nothing about it. So that's one of many problems. And another weird problem here is the breeding issue. So one thing interesting about Zidrun, in addition to just the fact that you can uh, do something with the NFTs you own, it's not just you're not just collecting things. That's why I was attracted to it. You can actually you know, race these horses and breed them. So you can actually create other horses that you own in your stable from horses you have which, of course, is also unusual in the NFT world. So people like breeding, and the prices for breeding for a long time was mostly free market. They had floor prices, meaning for, for each type of horse, there was, a, there was a minimal price that you could get. But for the most part, uh, the floor was not that high. So uh, you could breed with uh, horses for under $100 and create a new horse. And... This included all the way to the top horses, that if someone wanted to set the price low enough, they could. So it really did create a free market approach, and it worked. Well, all of a sudden, one day, they announced, oops, we didn't mean to make the prices this low. And we originally had intended to set them this way, which was much higher. 
And this was an error on our part, which I actually believe. But it was actually a happy accident because they created a free market system with breeding that made it to where those who uh, wanted to just quickly sell their horse, uh, this their horse's studding service could and not get top dollar. And other ones who want to try to squeeze out top dollar can wait longer. And it's a, pretty much every horse uh, was priced appropriately for what they were worth. And if they weren't, nobody would breed with them. So it was it worked. It was, it was the free market. Well, they removed all that. They set the floors really high, especially for the, the, the better types of horses, to where only the very best horses that you could easily sort through third-party sites that would do this sort of thing, uh, only they would, would uh, end up studying. The rest, nobody could uh, could sell any kind of uh, studying to anybody else who wants to breed. No one's going to want to breed with your horse if it's expensive to breed with all the horses on the system. So if it's so expensive, people are only going to do it with the ones that are the most expensive. So the breeding went way down, and anyone who had bought male horses to breed, thinking they're going to get a passive income from that, we're now screwed. And so I was saying, look, I don't care what was intended in the first place. What you had before was a happy accident. It was working. You just ruined it. You ruined breeding. And they didn't care. It's still that way to this day. Also, money's flowing in. What do they care? Also, with breeding being the way it is, to where now breeding horses isn't worth it as much, and between that and the the whole situation with, with the racing being screwed up the way it is with the class system, guess what? Now the secondary market has cratered, and while you used to be able to sell your horses for a lot of money if you wanted on the secondary market, that's gone way down. So they're just sitting there letting Rome burn, and they're not doing anything about these things, and there's all these people calling it out going, you gotta change this, you gotta fix this, here's how to do it, and they do nothing. So they they have a number of employees there, and they're actually hiring people. There's actually like a lot of positions they're hiring for, they have a lot of money flowing in. So me and under others have wondered, what do they do all day? What do they do all day at work there? Like, if, if they're not fixing these simple things that would be quick fixes, to like discuss how to fix them and do it, what are they doing? And I wonder that. That's a, I used to wonder that about Bill Reaney with WSOP.com. Like, what did he do all day as, as the card room manager of WSOP.com? Well, like, I'll tell you what they're doing. They're raising money. Yeah, <laughs> they're really good at it, apparently. Well, right. It's a, it kind of looks like, looks like that all they're concentrating on is making partnerships and then just uh, sitting there and, and, and rubbing it on their titties all day. That's, that's what it looks like. I've so. known businesses like that that have really good people involved in the marketing and the fundraising and just absolute crap on the tech end of thing. I actually worked with uh, a fintech company that was kind of like that. And, you know, as far as they were concerned, as long as the money was rolling in, you know, no problem. I would think that when you've got the whole community telling you this situation sucks. We all hate it. Fix it. Here's some ways to fix it. And the ways they're proposing are intelligent and make sense. They're not just idiots proposing dumb things. That you'd say, okay, yeah, we're going to implement something like this. Yeah, let's do it. And then you do it very quickly. Like You don't just sit and do nothing. It's, and then they come out with some like new features that, like this tournaments, which, which fine is kind of mildly interesting, but that's not what's needed right now. So it's, it's very weird. So I, I'm still part of it. I haven't uh, liquidated my stable or anything, which I could still do for a good profit if I wanted. But, uh, but, but do you do anything? Do you race? Do you breed? Do you do anything? Or you just, well, I, I actually, I, I was, that, this cooked the fun out of breeding for me, so I haven't bred in a while. And, and now the racing, I've kind of, uh, I pushed away from that somewhat. Like I go through these periods where I get frustrated and won't even do it. But I am still kind of like actively involved, and I follow a bunch of people on Twitter who do it. So, now if you could sell your horses now, 
Would you make any money? Yeah, I was saying I could sell it for a decent profit. I just I've become emotionally attached to it, so I'm still there, and it's not huge money we're talking about. So it's not like it's not like I'm risking a ton by not getting out at the right time. And and since there is a lot of money still flowing in, that is the one thing which makes me optimistic that maybe they can turn this around and start being smarter and get this all running properly. And they finally today they made one sort of good decision something that I suggested for a long time about how they price the races. So maybe they're going in the right direction, but boy, there's a lot of things that are being done stupidly there for really no good reason. It's, it's, it's not even as bad as like, like it's worse actually than like Phil Galfon had going on with his site where at least the problems that I talked about with his site and with how he was kind of out of touch with the whole thing, at least fixing them wasn't like a snap your fingers, fix this thing. It was like one of these things right. where they just had to change direction and, and put in a lot of effort to fix it. Here, these are like snap your fingers, fix it things, and they're not doing it, which is very weird. At Z. And I would think from everything that you're telling me with, um, you know, the, the way the breeding has changed and with the way that uh, people are sandbagging with the races, I would think that if you have a bunch of middle-of-the-road horses like you do, I would think that they would be devalued. They are. That, that, that's why everything's been devalued, except for the very top horses. That's correct. That's what's happened is the but middle I'm and low horses. still turn a profit, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, because I got a lot of the original, what's called Genesis horses, that's worth a lot. So okay. that, that's, that's what would make my stable still valuable, but not as much as before. Like if I liquidated, liquidated today, I would have less of a profit than I would have had uh, two months ago. Yeah, that's got to be annoying. Yeah, the whole the whole thing is annoying. So, but that's that's what I chose to get involved with. So I'm I'm sticking with it for now. That's the kind of N- NFT or that model where you can own something virtual and do something with it. That would interest me as well. You know, just owning a moment. Like I just don't give a fuck. But if you could own something virtual, like the horse, like you're talking about, and there's a whole economy going on with it, I, I could definitely see how that would be interesting to do. Yeah, know? that's why I got involved with it because it had some yeah. active element to it. Yeah. So okay, let's let's talk about the story with the guy from uh, the extortionist and Major League Baseball. It's, it's amazing how stupid some people can be with what they think they can get away with, especially when it involves uh, threatening large organizations. So some guy from uh, Minnesota figured out how to compromise the video streaming systems of all four major U.S. sports, which would be Major League Baseball. The NBA, National Basketball League, the NFL, National Football League, and the NHL, the National Hockey League. So those are the four major sports, and they, they all stream games. And if you, you can buy passes to stream these games if you're a fan of these sports uh, on a subscription basis, usually yearly. And this guy figured out somehow, it's not clear how he did it, but he figured out in, with all four leagues, which I have to imagine maybe we're probably all on the same platform or something similar about them, he figured out I'm, I'm sure they were yeah. how to get people's logins and just go on at will without paying for anything and get access to this content. However, that was not enough for him. He wasn't just a sports fan. He wanted to uh, profit from it beyond that. So what he went on to do next, which was already dangerous, uh, legally that is, for uh, his freedom in the future, he, he went on to start illegally streaming all of this content on and presumably he ran some website where he make a profit in some way. I don't know if it was with ads or selling subscriptions to it. Whatever he did, he was he was streaming these for profit, and he was 
doing it with these accounts that he was able to access through whatever this exploit was. So that was the second thing he did. But the dumbest thing he did came after that. He decided what he was going to do was just extort money directly from Major League Baseball. So he went to Major League Baseball and he said, pay me $150,000 or otherwise I'm going to make it public what I've been doing to break into your system and access these accounts and everybody will know. But if you pay me 150000 I will tell you how I'm doing it and you can fix it. So this you cannot do for several reasons. He wasn't going to them saying, "Hey, I discovered a bug in your system. Would you like me would you like to pay me to find out what it is?" That's actually legal. Now they don't have to agree to do it and you can't threaten to harm their system or or distribute the information in any way if they won't pay you, but you can offer that they they pay you a bounty to have found a bug in their system even if you've already found it and there's been no bounty offered. You can say, "I found this. Would you like to pay me to find out what it is?" And that's a big thing. That's actually a whole economy for people that don't know. In the infosec industry, bug bounties are, are things that companies will pay. Like that, that is a thing that goes on. People make their living doing that. Yeah, just don't do it at poker stars. Some guy found some uh, bug in their system that was awarding way too many FPPs to people, and he he told poker stars, "Hey, I figured this out," and and he stupidly told them first without asking what they're going to give him. They they yeah. ended up giving him a, a two hundred fifteen dollar ticket to the Sunday Million. <laughs> I mean, that was his fault, again, for what you said, for <laughs> telling them what it was first. But some companies make it a policy not to pay them, you know? So he definitely should have gotten that worked out first. Yeah, yeah. Like he, he pointed out that they were saving like $15,000 a month from what he found and that this has been done for – this wasn't like an exploit by, by one person who was uh, breaking the law. This is just a, an error in their system that's awarding too many FPPs that have been going on for like nine months. And, and then he said, hey, I figured this out. It's been happening for nine months, and uh, I'm the one who figured it out, and uh, nobody else even realizes this is happening. And, and here's why it's happening. Like He told them the whole thing and said, hey, you know, for telling you there's this like cell phone I want that's in your store. Can you give it to me? It's worth 700 They're like, no, no, we'll give you a $215 ticket. <laughs> he was pissed. He just wanted like a $700 phone they had in there, and they wouldn't give it to him. Anyway, back to this. This guy is named Joshua Strait or Street, I don't know how you pronounce it, S-T-R-E-I-T, 30 years old from St. Louis Park, Minnesota. Not St. Louis, Missouri, but St. Louis Park, Minnesota, which is a suburb of Minneapolis. I actually knew of some poker players from St. Louis Park that used to play in the Limit Hold'em games with me online. If you remember, there's a lot of Limit Hold'em players that came out of the greater Minneapolis area because they had card rooms there, most notably the Canterbury where they spread mid to high stakes limit hold'em, and therefore a lot of the uh, poker players who rose up to become good in the poker boom did it in limit hold'em instead of no limit hold'em. So that's why you have a lot of good limit hold'em players that came from Minnesota. So I, I had wondered, given that this guy was from that area and seemed to have some uh, tech ability, I wonder if he was into poker and he might be a poker player, but he wasn't. He is only 30, so the, the Minnesota era of the, the Limit Hold'em players was more uh, earlier than that, where he would have been too young. But anyway, he, he has no poker results. Presumably, he's not a poker player. But uh, the weird thing was, I thought I found his Twitter. There was a Joshua Strait from Minnesota. 
the only one I could find on Twitter is from Minnesota, so it seemed like, you know, got to be him. But the weird thing was, the guy looked like a jock. He looked like this young jock, not like a 30-year-old computer nerd. And then I looked, and it wasn't the same guy. It was a guy who really was like only 21 and was like a college basketball player. So just coincidentally, it appears there's a, a second Joshua Strait who uh, is in Minnesota and happened to be the one that showed up on Google, but is, is a different guy. He's nine years younger, and I assume couldn't be him. But anyway, he attempted to extort this 150k out of Major League Baseball by saying, if you don't pay me, then I'm going to distribute this to everybody. So you better pay me. Now, you can't do something like that. That's, that's very, very illegal. And Major League Baseball, being as large and influential as it is, obviously can get the attention of federal authorities very easily. If you, if you try to extort money from an individual, then the individual may or may not be able to get the FBI involved. When you do it to Major League Baseball, then they have a direct line to the FBI to come after you for this. So uh, that's exactly what happened. And uh, he was arrested and charged with one count of knowingly accessing a protected computer in furtherance of a criminal act for purposes of commercial advantage and private financial gain. He got charged with one count of knowingly accessing a protected computer in furtherance of fraud, one count of wire fraud, and one count of illicit digital transmission, and also one count of sending interstate threats with intent to extort. Believe it or not, the one that carries the least sentence of these five counts is the threats with the intent to extort. I would think they would get the most of all this, but no, they apparently that has a maximum sentence of two years in prison, where the others have a maximum sentence of five years in prison. Or actually, they all do except for the wire fraud with a maximum sentence of 20. Uh, but he could technically be sentenced for all five of these individually. and could all add up to a lot more, but it's unlikely that's going to happen. I mean, he's definitely going to get some time in prison, I would have to think, and it looks like it's pretty clear he's guilty. Uh, this was announced on the justice.gov site by the Department of Justice. The uh, U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York was the one in charge of investi- investigating this. Apparently, the it says he hacked MLB's computer systems and attempted to extort $150,000 from the league thanks to this office's teamwork with all four major American sports leagues and the FBI straight has struck out on his illegal streaming and extortion scheme. Come on. (laughs) They they have to make baseball references in there? Come on now. Then uh, FBI Assistant Director Michael Driscoll said, we allege Mr... Brody. I don't know why it says Mr. Brody. I don't understand here. I think that's a mistake. <laughs> I think I just noticed this now. His name is Joshua Street. It says Mr. Brody. But there is no Mr. Brody involved with this. It must have been some typo. We allege Mr. Brody, probably Mr. Street, hacked into the systems of several of our country's biggest professional sports leagues and illegally streamed copyright live games. Instead of quitting while he was ahead, he allegedly decided to continue the game by extorting one of the leagues, threatening to expo- expose the very vulnerability he used to hack them. Now, instead of scoring a payday, Mr. Brody, why is Mr. Brody, faces the possibility of a federal prison sentence as a penalty. Who's Mr. Brody, though? I don't get this. Oh, I see. I see what it is. He went by the name Josh Brody, but his real name is Joshua Strait. So I guess at the time, they they still thought he was Mr. Brody. (laughs) I I don't get that. I don't get the Joshua Brody thing. I mean, it makes sense he could have used a fake name, but why would they keep referring to him as Mr. Brody? That does not show a lot of competence on the FBI's part. Some someone here is is inaccurate. Someone whoever's calling him Mr. Street or Mr. Brody, one of those two is inaccurate. I think it's the one calling him Mr. Brody. 
because U.S. Attorney Damian Williams called him Joshua Street, and FBI Assistant Director Michael Driscoll said he's Mr. Brody. I think the attorney is right on this one. The U.S. Attorney is right here. Pretty embarrassing if that's <laughs> one of these two is saying yeah, something that's stupid. Not inspiring confidence. No. How the FBI could do this major investigation is to call him Mr. Brody because he called himself Mr. Brody. So that was a very dumb move on this guy's part. I mean, did he really think that Major League Baseball would go, oh, yeah, yes, um, we're very afraid of you making this public. So here's the 150 k no problem. We're not going to report you to the FBI or anything. No problem. Here it is. Like, what did he think was going to happen? You can't extort a major sports league and think you'd get away with it. What a moron. This guy's 30 years old. How could he not know better? So he was smart enough to hack into these systems, whatever he did, to uh, be able to break into these accounts. But then he was not smart enough to uh, think about how you don't extort Major League Baseball for 150K. And you don't... And here we have a perfect example of book smart versus street smart, right? <laughs> yeah. This whole thing with the exploit is a little bit weird, too, because it's not that expensive to just buy a subscription to each of these and then just stream them if that's what you want to do. I mean, the extortion thing wouldn't work, but if you really just want to illegally stream games, you can just buy a subscription to each of these leagues and then just stream them all. I'm not recommending that because it's still uh, copyright infringement and you'll still get in trouble. But I'm saying you don't need to hack it if you want to illegally stream it. You can just invest like 400 bucks and you'll be able to do it for the whole year for all four leagues. So that's a little bit weird, but my guess is he was just screwing around with it and found this and then thought, oh, cool, I get free access to all this. Oh, why don't I stream it and make some money? And then he put up some kind of for-profit site to do that and then uh, wasn't quite enough what he was making and decided to just go to Major League Baseball and uh, tell them that he wants 150k. I have to imagine yeah, what he was... i guess not a criminal mastermind. No, I, I have to imagine what he was thinking is that 150k is nothing to Major League Baseball and that they'll be so happy to find out what this vulnerability is and put an end to it, and so worried what would happen if he told people that, of course, they're just going to pay him and make him go away. Like, like, What's the chance they would actually go to the FBI and, and get him arrested for this? That would never happen with extorting Major League Baseball. Apparently, the chance is pretty good. <laughs> this, this isn't too different than uh, Michael Avenatti with the whole thing with, uh, that he did with Nike. It was, that was not technical, but uh, Michael Avenatti got in, in big trouble for s- believing he had information about uh, Nike and, and some sort of uh, violations that he thought had uh, occurred involving college sports. And he went to them and said, I know about this. I want uh, $20 million for making this public. And then Nike just went to the FBI. <laughs> so now he's in prison. So All right, at least I can respect him for asking for 20 mil, you know? The other guy 150. Yeah, 150,000. Yeah, that's the other thing. It's a, I I think he was figuring that it's a low enough sum of money to where they're not going to make a big deal over it, but I think he was not understanding you try to extort them for anything, they're going to go uh go to law enforcement about it. It wasn't about the money, they just don't want some punk inf- trying to extort money out of them. That that is the end of that. So that that was not a very bright criminal, even though he seemed smart about uh, what he was able to accomplish technically from the uh, standpoint of uh, what he does with that information. 
and the likely I mean, consequences. we don't know. It could be something really dumb that he uncovered, too. Right, you know that I mean? could be that, too. And it's, a lot of times I'll see that where I'll read about a hacker, and it turns out it's something very simple. In fact, one of the biggest high-profile hacks of the 2010s was actually something very simple. When the DNC was supposedly hacked, and uh, those emails were obtained about how uh, Hillary had uh, cheated Bernie in the debates through uh, getting info in advance from CNN and a bunch of other embarrassing stuff for the Democratic Party. There was a whole talk about how the Russians hacked the Democratic Party, the DNC, the Democratic uh, National Committee, that Russians did this on behalf of Trump. And people were picturing this sophisticated hack. Well, it wasn't. It was actually just a very simple phishing email sent to... uh, John Podesta at the DNC. <laughs> and he just stupidly fell for it and entered his credentials, and then they accessed his email. But that, that was the big hack. So, sometimes these things that are portrayed as these amazing technical feats that these hackers are pulling off, that you, you picture like it's on TV, like just these hackers can just, okay, I want to get into that system. Okay, give me a second. Okay, in. You picture that. It, it's it's not like that. It's never like that. No, it doesn't work like that, and it, it actually makes complete sense, though. I mean, the organization—sorry, no, the organization that was hacked—they don't want to appear as incompetent either. So they're probably totally fine with it being painted as a very sophisticated attack. You know? Yeah, and it, it's funny with these phishing attacks, like. Benjamin will get these emails, or or he'll be playing Roblox and something pops up there that's uh, um, like a, a phishing attempt on there w- within the site itself, and and he'll say, "Oh, come over here, look at this funny scam they're trying. Oh, the, look at this login page; it looks so realistic." And then you know, they, I, I didn't fall for it, but look look how good the job they did. I'm like, "How come a ten year old figures all this out? <laughs> people people working at these high profile jobs fall for it. It's, it's pretty amazing." Well, a lot of, a lot of times, especially older generations that are working in these government organizations. You know, I mean, I think there was even a senator that was bragging about not even using a computer. I mean, they they don't have the same kind of knowledge, you know? Yeah, I know. But some of these people aren't even that old. Like, some of them are not older than me. I, I'm just surprised that this happens as often as it does. And then, like, you know, I have a 10-year-old who just sees right through these things. So it apparently doesn't require, like, a super uh, sophisticated mind to do. But But people around your age now... A lot of them didn't grow up using computers. Yeah, I know, but there's still a lot. There was such a, an explosion of uh, the, the personal computer usage and the internet usage, and at first in the 80s with the personal computers and the, the internet in yeah. the 90s. Uh, You've got to think they'd be exposure by now. Even it, it depends, man. You'd be surprised. Like in, in some of these organizations, the people that are in senior leadership are not necessarily very technically skilled because they always have assistants and other people that do this kind of stuff for them, you know? Yeah, I'm just I'm just surprised that they fall for it. Like, I, I wouldn't expect them to have a lot of technical skill, but I would expect that they'd have the ability to figure out that these like, phishing emails like the are being sent out. the email, yeah. Yeah, like that... <laughs> like, I, Benjamin doesn't even have, like, a ton of technical skill, but he, but he just realizes from, from using computers, he's, he's just come to learn what, what looks like a, a scam page or a, or, or yep. phishing attempts, and I didn't even teach him. He he learned it on his own, and he'd he'd come over and show me. And I said, "Oh, that's like I, I go, oh, that's good. I'm I'm glad you figured it out because you know a lot of adults get fooled by this." 
Anyway, that's. Uh, I'm going to move on here to the next uh, topic. This is this is a weird one. This is an update of a of a story we talked about a while ago at length, but haven't talked about much since. And that's about uh, Tony Shi of Zappos and all the crazy stuff going on in his life behind the scenes. That's even even worse than I thought it was from the initial reports I was reading. So yeah, per- perfect example of how money doesn't necessarily <laughs> buy you happiness. You know? Yeah, this, this was someone that would have yeah. been much better off if if he were uh, like middle class and and never had the success he did. This is someone who just really uh, fell apart because he had so much money and because that attracted a bunch of really bad people that took advantage of him that wouldn't have had such access or or such desire to do it if he didn't have this money to give away. So yeah. He had a lot of uh, very interesting and innovative ideas with uh, not only the companies that he started and, and sometimes sold, uh, but also just with, with work environments and, and trying to make employees happy. And I didn't agree with all of them, but I thought some of them were uh, were good and some of them were interesting, even the ones I didn't fully agree with. And uh, uh, he definitely was, was very, very successful at just about everything he did uh, business-wise. But uh, his personal life was a tremendous mess. And, and so when he first died, it, the whole cir- circumstances were weird, like, like very weird. And, and as soon as I read about the circumstances, before I knew anything more, I thought there's got to be more to this. Because uh, how does someone die in like a house that isn't theirs in a shed from a fire? Like, how does that happen? It would make sense if you were visiting the home and, and, and sleeping upstairs and a fire breaks out and he just can't get out of the house and dies. I mean, that that's something that's much more standard as far as fire deaths. But how are you in a shed where you die from smoke inhalation from a fire? Like, the question is, why not just leave the shed if a fire breaks out there? Why, why would you be stuck in the shed? So a lot of questions came out about that. Uh, it turned out what occurred is he was doing these... Uh, whippets in there which is uh inhaling uh, nitrous oxide over and over and uh somehow a a fire broke out in there and he had locked the doors so, in there do you know why they're called whippets uh, actually i don't all right I, i'm probably revealing too much from my youth <laughs> <laughs> however these were those nit- those cartridges were used to recharge um, whipped cream uh, dispensers. Oh, makes sense. Yeah. So you could buy these little canisters, and you you would just plug them into your thing, and that's what you'd use to make the whipped cream. And then some enterprising kid figured out that hey, you know, if you inhale this shit, you get a wicked buzz. <laughs> so uh, anyway, he was doing the whippets in there apparently, which he did a whole lot and was doing it there. It's it's not clear why he was doing it there in that shed at that moment, but uh either he uh he passed out there and uh, and he had candles in there. So something started a fire like the candles or whatever he had lit there. He had something lit. I'm not sure if it was candles. Something was lit in there. And then apparently a fire started and he was presumably just knocked out and uh and died in there before they could get in there to to get him out once the fire was seen. So that was uh, a tragic accident. There's some said that he committed suicide, but that that seems like a weird way to kill yourself to in, you know, in a fire. It's just not the way people typically choose to uh, kill themselves. Whenever someone dies of like like in a fire or from drowning, you can usually say it's not 
a suicide. It's a very unpleasant way to go. There's a lot quicker and easier ways to go than that. So I, I don't think it's a suicide. I, th- I think it was just an accident. He was just behaving very irresponsibly, which he had been doing a lot of prior to when he died. So he was uh, only 46 years old when he died. After he died, a lot of stories came out about him because he was no longer CEO of Zappos at that point. What he did after leaving Zappos was uh, he was very obsessed with, quote, happiness, with having people around him being happy. That was uh, ingrained a lot in the Zappos work culture. And he wanted to continue that when he wasn't with, with Zappos anymore. And he paid a lot of people, a lot of yes men, to move to a town in Utah where all they were going to do is, is, is sit around and be happy. And of course, a lot of that involved doing drugs and, and other uh, unhealthy activities. And, and the people he was paying, what he said is, you know, he picked these people that he liked and he said, I want to double your salary, but you need to move to Utah with me and just hang out with me all day and be happy. And no one would say anything because he was paying them double their salary. So everybody was afraid to say, hey, you're behaving really irresponsibly. Something bad's going to happen to you. So he just kind of destroyed himself, and there were just yes-men around uh, just validating the whole thing and doing it along with him. And there were very few people that stood up and told him, hey, you're you're ruining your life, and something bad's eventually going to happen. And uh, some pictures have since come out that uh, of him in his final days. He looked extremely skinny, and he looked just very, very unhealthy. And there was a lot of reports that he had a lot of mental health issues that were just getting worse and worse and worse that presumably were worsening because of all the drug use and, and everything else he was doing. And, and the people around him, they were enabling this because they, they wanted the money to keep rolling in. One person who did not want to keep enabling this was singer Jewel, who was friends with him for a while. I'm not sure how he got to know her, but uh, she witnessed all this going on and she didn't need all this money that they like they didn't have a monetary relationship. So she was one of the few to stand up and say, I, I don't think what you're doing is responsible. I don't like it. I don't want to be around it. Uh, you really need to get away from these people who are taking advantage of you. Like she, she wrote him a letter just laying the whole thing out and he just dismissed it. So eventually this led to his death. Now, we talked about this before in the aftermath of his death. We talked about that on this show. I'm just recapping all this. But I learned some new things since then which is why we are uh, having this segment. So uh, this was a year ago when he died. It was in November of 2020. But uh, a lot more has happened since then, and it has to do with his estate, because a lot of uh, people are trying to go after his money, claiming that they uh, have rights to it in some way. And there's been a lot of uh, legal battles for this. One of the people that has been uh, profiled here and in a very negative way was his closest assistant named Mimi Pham, P-H-A-M. And there's an article on dailymail.co.uk, which is the uh, UK Daily Mail, with a lot of detail about what's being alleged that Mimi Pham did, and it, it sounds pretty bad. And yet she is suing his estate, which is really how all this came to light. She is suing his estate for a lot of money that she says she is owed. She claims that she is owed... $100 billion. Close, but $93 million that she is suing his estate for. 
And uh, now his father and brother are alleging that not only that not only shouldn't she receive this ninety three million or anything, but that uh, she actually preyed on his uh, vulnerable drug addled state to exploit him for millions of dollars in the final uh, year or so of his life. The claims are that uh, Mimi Pham, who was uh, a, a close assistant of his, and at first was was uh, only paid nine thousand dollars a month plus travel expenses, which is still not bad. I mean, that's that if you multiply that by twelve, she's still making more than a hundred thousand a year, plus uh, being paid whatever she was uh, having to pay for travel. So it wasn't a bad job. It wasn't big money though. But um, then. In her final year before his passing, her pay shot up to $30,000 per month, which is, of course, three hundred sixty k per year. But the most controversial portion of her pay was 10%, quote, commission for anything that uh, she refers him to. Now, the problem is this is very, very open-ended, apparently. It had uh, no oversight, they allege, and also that uh, it, they say it was for, quote, virtually anything and everything imaginable, which means that uh, anything that he did that made money, she could take credit for and say he owes her 10%. And that this was in the final year of his life as he was getting more and more to drugs and more and more uh, mentally ill, and she was uh, alleged to have been manipulating him into uh, agreeing to these things. She, wh- why is she suing for $93 million? Well, she is claiming that she's actually the uh, the victim in, in this whole thing. That uh, his death, that that this estate owes her money because her company, which is called a Baby Monster LLC, which I think is probably appropriate, that it had a lot of earning potential, and that uh, this earning potential uh, is gone because he died. She is a baby monster. Yeah, so she thinks that because <laughs> really? because he died of a drug overdose or, 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 or of smoke inhalation when he was uh, doing whippets, that now the estate owes her money because Baby Monster LLC could have made uh, so much money. Now listen, Druff, I, I got to run because I got to get some sleep, but I can tell you, I've seen people pass out from doing whippets, and I think you're right on with it not being any kind of suicide. I've seen people just do whippets and Easily what could have happened is, you know, he did him, he fell over, knocked the candle over, and he, he was unconscious, and, and that was that, you know? Yeah, it's easily, something like that. Easily, yeah. I got to run, man. Okay. I'm going to listen. Well, good having you on here, and uh, we'll finish this off without you. All right, good night. All right, we got a while out of Calwatt here, you know. It's, uh, he actually said goodbye. He didn't just vanish. So that's, that's another point to give him in this whole thing. Anyway, back to Tony Shi. Uh, she allegedly had an accomplice in this whole thing. It was her boyfriend, whose name was uh, Roberto Grande, who was a lawyer. I guess uh, Baby Monster, I don't know when that started, but that was the, uh, the, the LLC that was supposedly going to be getting this, uh, this 10% if, uh, from uh, everything and everything he was doing. And uh, Baby Monster LLC retained... Two very well-known attorneys in Las Vegas. Yes, Chesnoff and Schoenfeld. I will say that if 
you have a legal issue in Vegas that seems hopeless, especially a criminal one. If you're accused of a crime in Vegas, it seems like they got you dead to rights. You think you're going to be spending a lot of time in prison, even though they're very expensive. I would call Chesnoff and Schoenfeld, and they are not a sponsor of this show, obviously, but I have seen their work, and I am often surprised at uh, what they get done. I've seen this in multiple cases where they pull off miracles and somehow people don't end up serving time. They end up with a slap on the wrist sentences or, or sometimes no sentence at all. As you uh, might know, Brian Mikon, who I used to do uh, radio shows with, who got in trouble for running an illegal poker site, an illegal Bitcoin poker site in Nevada, he got, used Chesnoff and Schoenfeld and got a very, very uh, light criminal punishment for this. So he made the right decision hiring them. So when I see they're involved, I never know what's going to happen because they, they tend to work miracles. But Chesnoff and Schoenfeld have been hired by uh, Baby Monster LLC. And in this uh, lawsuit that was filed, uh, not sure what date, but uh, it was filed this year. And it says, comes now Baby Monster LLC, by and through its attorneys, David Chesnoff and Richard Schoenfeld, the law firm Chesnoff and Schoenfeld. And uh, then it, uh, oh, I guess this is the, this is their, def- I guess this is uh, actually this is Baby Monster LSA being sued. This is not Baby Monsters uh, suing them. This is them as defendants for, in the case where uh, they're being sued by uh, Tony Shee's father and brother. But it's being alleged that Baby Monster LLC had outrageous contracts that would earn Fam and her boyfriend uh, millions of dollars and that... Uh, Anything that she spent or invested for him, she got a 10% commission. Spent is really crazy. Invested is pretty bad, but spent, like I guess if she spends money, that uh, is, she gets 10% on top of that. Baby Monster LLC invoiced Tony for $1.3 million between mid-September and November of 2020, right before he died, and received, quote, at least $420,000. It is also being alleged that she was monitoring him, quote, against his wishes via a camera in his bedroom in Park City, Utah, where he had moved to, quote, be happy. Also, a $10 million contract was allegedly written on a sticky note to fund uh, a, a film pro- projects for a documentary company called XTR through his uh, pickled entertainment firm. And as part of that deal... Fam's boyfriend, Roberto Grande, was supposed to get $1 million. So you see why that was done. And then there was another company called Mr. Taken LLC. <laughs> Mr. Taken. I wonder if Roberto Grande was supposed to be Mr. Taken, like he's taken by uh, Mimi Fam. Uh, and they would be uh, taking uh, 55% from all those investments. Mr. Taken LLC. Very weird. Mimi Fam apparently charged a further 10% of a management fee for attorney's fees for documenting that million-dollar payment, it says in the filing. Apparently, Tony Shi offered uh, his friend uh, Tony Lee $1.5 million to handle all his finances in Park City, where, where he had uh, moved to, to, quote, be happy. 
Pham and Grande are alleged to have signed a contract with Tony Lee on August 15, 2020 for $4.5 million over three years for, quote, due diligence on potential investments uh, to be made by Tony Shi as directed by Baby Monster and 450000 to Pham and Grande for their 10% commission. Hmm. Now, I don't know if this Tony Lee guy is supposed to be in on it or if they just got him to sign this contract. That's I'm a little unclear here. Now, Tony Lee has his own lawsuit against Xi's uh, state. He said that he should have been bought out of his contract for $7 million when uh, after Xi had died and Xi's father and son took over the finances and fired him. So that's a separate matter. But there's a lawsuit involving that as well. So you see everyone's trying to like dig their hands into that estate and extract money from it since there's so much money that she had that now has to be distributed somewhere. I see a picture of the uh, place where he died, and it's a huge mess. It apparently had lit candles, a propane heater, whippets, a whipped cream dispenser, like Calwatt mentioned, a marijuana pipe, and bottles with alcohol. And there's just tons of trash in there, too. Looks like just an unfortunate accident. Around the time that... uh, he was really starting to go downhill. Friends noticed that he was increasingly agitated and obsessed and sleeping over two, only two, or four, two to four hours per night. And uh, he was eventually convinced in February 2020 to spend two weeks in rehab in Park City. And that these... That his Vegas associates that he was, they were trying to get him away from had, quote, been supplying Tony with ketamine and partying on his bankroll. And that uh, apparently this uh, Mimi Pham helped book the rehab for him and noticed that when he got out of rehab that he was still delusional and just not behaving normally. So the allegations were that once she realized how nuts he was, that she could take advantage of him. That's what's being alleged here. In May 2020, she apparently believed that he possessed psychic abilities and could levitate. And that he was asked to, uh, that actually made his uh, friends take him to a uh, bus trip to a ranch in Montana to try to kind of get back on the ground. That he then boarded the bus wearing only pajama pants with no shirt or shoes and brought only a box of crayons with him with no suitcase, no clothes, nothing other than the box of crayons. And that... He would be appearing in social settings and conducting meetings, he would say, wearing only his underwear, something he'd never previously done. So he was supposedly really going downhill throughout 2020, which eventually resulted in uh, his death. On the bus, I'm talking about the one to Montana, it was said that uh, Tony offered a friend a million dollars to serve as his alarm clock the next morning. And that he started doing this more and more, that he was offering huge sums of money for very minor tasks. So I guess he wanted to wake up early and we didn't trust alarm clocks. He's like, hey, wake me up by 7 a.m. and I'll give you a million bucks. So he's like, okay. So there's, I don't know if this guy actually received a million bucks for doing it, but apparently she was doing things like this. Uh, it was also said that he was doing uh, hallucinogenic drugs on the bus and that uh, once it got to Montana, he was so 
crazy from all the drugs that he thought that uh, someone was shooting at the bus and he was convinced that uh, it was unsafe to get off. And uh, then he ended up uh, physically destroying the tour bus, despite the tour bus. This wasn't just like a regular bus. It was the tour bus that he owned and, and loved, that apparently uh, he destroyed it, believing that he was being shot at. Then I don't know if he regretted it afterwards, but people were shocked to see this because he loved the tour bus is one of the things he loved the most of all the things he owned. He also allegedly said that he wants his friends to join a suicide pact with him while on the bus and said that um, in order to make the suicide pact happen, he would burn the bus with everybody inside. I don't believe he meant like on that trip, but at some point that uh, if they all agreed to kill themselves, that they would do it by burning the bus. So I, I guess that would increase the chance that he did this on purpose in that shed, but I, I still don't think that's really what he did. still think it was an accident. Apparently, he was using uh, up to 50 cartridges of nitrous oxide per day Went back in Park City. That the house where he was staying was uh, littered with thousands of empty nitrous oxide containers, broken glass, dog feces, and rot- rotten food. I don't know why he didn't pay someone a million bucks to clean up the place. If he paid me a million bucks to clean up dog shit, I would. I don't care how long it had been there. I'd clean up the dog shit, the rotten food. I will, I will do any uh, janitorial job for a million dollars. No matter how dirty. If a place is really, really filthy, really, really gross, if you offer and guarantee in some way that I will receive it. One million dollars. If you do that, I will, I will promise that I'll clean anything. But apparently uh, he didn't offer that to anybody because it was just in complete filth. Say so this guy was really just circling the drain in 2020. Said also on one occasion, when with a broken glass in the house, he stepped on the glass and cut his foot, and then walked around with uh, the blood just getting everywhere in the house. And when asked why don't you do something about this, why don't you put a band aid on it, why don't you stop the bleeding, he said that. Uh, um. People could find him more easily when they come over by following the blood trail. He should have thought he's like leaving trails for people to find him. <laughs> Here's a video I'm going to play. It's a minute video of him uh, before his death, not too long before his death. Is this thing on? Is this thing on? It's on, it's on. That's his girlfriend. <laughs> That's him playing uh, the piano. Just sounds like banging on the keys. And then I don't know what that honking is in the background. Then he and his girlfriend both stare into the camera, like, dramatically. This must have been rehearsed. You think they can see us? I don't know which they he's talking about. Probably people in his head. Then he turns and looks at her and then she walks away. Very weird. 
In October of 2020, his family said that his mental and physical health reached rock bottom. And Mimi Pham apparently uh, told his entourage there in Park City that uh, he was running out of money and that she would actually start charging rent in his properties with 10% commission for herself, it's alleged. He obviously wasn't running out of money, but uh, she was allegedly trying to extort money out of... uh, Not extort, but I guess uh, scam money out of his entourage was hanging out with him. She's like, hey, you know... uh, He's not going to be able to pay for you guys hanging out at these properties. So uh, you need to start paying and pay me 10% commission. Trying to make these people charge rent. She was, not he was. It's also alleged that she locked his brother out of the house unless he agreed to pay rent. And that uh, when Tony was questioned about it, he said, "Uh uh-uh, no, we're not charging my brother rent. And uh, apparently... The brother, upon noticing how skinny that Tony had gotten, asked those who were preparing his meals to slip vitamins and protein supplements into his food. So not only was he acting crazy, but he was just getting real, real, like, dangerously skinny. I have to imagine that drugs had a lot to do with that, too. Getting dangerously skinny is actually worse than getting dangerously fat. And a lot of people aren't aware of that. A lot of times you'll see someone who's very skinny and you may say, okay, they look a little too skinny. They need to gain some weight. But you see someone who's obese and go, okay, wow, that person, they're super unhealthy. They're going to they're have a heart attack tomorrow. But the truth is that someone who is way too skinny is in much more immediate health danger than someone who's way too fat. And I'm not talking about someone who's like skinnier than average, or even just someone who's very skinny, but not to the point of it being dangerous. But once they cross that line to where they're dangerously thin, to where they're emaciated, not only is it extremely unhealthy, it is short-term unhealthy where it can kill them very fast. That's why you you had uh, a lot of uh, teenage girls dying of anorexia, especially in the uh, 80s and 90s when that was uh, happening more often. Because it, it can kill you in the short term, being too thin. Uh, Because society has put the message out that thin equals healthy and fat equals unhealthy, people don't realize how bad being too thin is. Most people know you can be too thin and it's unhealthy, but it's not known by a lot of people how being too thin is super unhealthy and very dangerous, even in the short term. So Tony's brother realized this upon seeing him and was trying to get those who make his food to just make it to where it's higher calorie and, and with more vitamins, just put in, put in uh, supplements here to get him back to normal, at least physically. Towards the end, his family attempted to put Tony under a conservatorship, a conservatorship. They actually flew an addiction specialist to Park City to stage an intervention, but uh, they were not allowed into the residence. Uh, I'm not sure who denied access. I don't know if it was Tony who said they can't come in or uh, if somebody else there stopped them. I don't know who's alleged to have stopped them, but apparently this uh, interventional specialist uh, was not allowed in. The family wrote in their lawsuit, it is obvious to Pham Grande, Grande Lee and others that he was physically and mentally unwell and that he was in no condition to consider, let alone approve, significant investments or contracts or investments. Witnesses who saw Tony at this time describe him as having lost a tremendous amount of weight 
and they believed his death was imminent. I guess they were right. So basically, this is along the same lines of when very old people who have a lot of money just are completely senile and don't know what's going on, and they are tricked into changing their will or making investments or anything else that it's believed that they're not really mentally competent to decide. And it's alleged that people are taking advantage of them in their final days when they they don't have the wherewithal to understand what's going on. So this is being alleged about Tony Shi, even though he was not old, but he was in such a bad mental state, probably from a number of things together. Probably the the drug abuse, plus the uh, massive weight loss, plus just it seems like he just had something mentally wrong with him. It seems like he just had some natural mental illness that got worse as a result of uh, this unhealthy lifestyle. So this looks worse now than just people enabling him. The way I had pictured this before was just this was a guy who's similar to Elvis Presley, just surrounded himself with people that would never say you're behaving irresponsibly and you're going to die if you continue this way, and then he eventually died at a young age. That's exactly what happened with Elvis, and I thought that's what happened here with Tony, except Tony died in a fire. And it looks like it's worse than that. It looks like there were some people just taking full advantage of him, seeing that he was in this state and he had a lot of money and he was willing to throw it around for stupid things, like someone acting as his human alarm clock for one day, offering a million bucks to them, that there were people who said, hey, instead of just being on his payroll as one of his entourage or as an assistant, why don't we get him to just agree to all kinds of terrible deals that would make us all kinds of money, giving us all kinds of commission, and you know, he'll just sign on to anything. So that's what's being alleged by his family. Now, it's being said back that the family's just being greedy and that they're just trying to get as much money as possible out of the estate. The stuff that was filed by his family said things like, Tony's condition made it impossible for him to continue his position as CEO of Zappos and efforts were undertaken to announce his resignation. The loss was tremendous for Tony, who was feeling increasingly disconnected and growing increasingly despondent over time. Tony exhibited increasingly paranoid behaviors. Tony instituted a, quote, technology cleanse, cutting off use of cell phones and computers, and hired security, which had the effect of keeping away those who tried to get Tony professional help. So I guess that's probably what happened uh, when the family tried to bring the person in to do the intervention. The list of people who could access Tony dwindled to a small handful of people. Among those with greatest access to Tony included Mimi Pham, Fam's lawyer turned aspiring film producer boyfriend uh, Roberto Grande and Tony Lee. Upon information and belief, it was obvious to Fam, Grande, and Lee and others that he was physically and mentally unwell and he was in no condition to consider, let alone approve significant investments or contracts for investments. Witnesses who saw Tony at this time described him as lost a tremendous amount of weight. We read that part. And uh, Tony intentionally damaged portions of the drywall in his home. When others expressed concerns about the damage, Tony referred back to simulation theory, explaining that the walls were part of a simulation and that uh, the walls would eventually rebuild themselves. So these were all f- claims by the family against uh, 
Mimi Pham, Roberto Grande, and Tony Lee, who they seem to believe were acting in concert to take advantage of him in his final days. I personally believe that most of these allegations are true, with, with really no evidence, of course. This is just my personal opinion. But it's not hard at all to believe that people on the outside would try to take advantage. Not on the outside, but people who were not related to him, that were uh, working for him at some point, realized they had an opportunity on their hands. And the more he deteriorated, the more they were trying to get him to sign on to all these crazy deals that made all kinds of money. You can imagine how tempting this would be for unscrupulous people who were associated with him as they watched him go downhill, knowing how much money he had and knowing he could be talked into anything. Mimi Pham was the personal assistant of Tony of seven, for 17 years prior to his death. So she was with him in some way dating all the way back to 2003. So he trusted her and did not work out very well. Apparently COVID had a part in this whole thing in that this made him feel even more trapped. Remember, this was in uh, 2020 when a lot of things were locked down and shut down. And, and he, that, that's why he went to Park City to kind of put together a group of people that he wanted to be happy with and do drugs all day and just uh, hang out and make himself forget about the fact that everything was shut down and, and that there were so few things to do. And he had a hard time dealing with all the restrictions from COVID. So that was, the move to Park City was partially because of that. Now, I, I think if no COVID had ever happened, he still would have dwindled down to a, a very uh, bad state. And we probably would have seen him die in some way anyway. But I think that kind of hastened it by a little bit. So this is all going to be heard in uh, Clark County District Court. Because Zappos is based in Las Vegas. And he was a resident of Las Vegas. He just had uh, temporarily moved to Park City, which is supposed to be during COVID. Remember, he died before any vaccines were available. He died in uh, November of 2020. So the world hadn't changed back all that much at that point. But again, I don't think that would have saved him. What a mess. Like, you would picture, if you had the type of money he had, that just all your problems would go away. You would think that you could have anything you want, you could do anything you want, and it's not really not like that. Sometimes all money does is put a target on your back, especially if you're known to have that money, and especially if you're known to be someone who can be convinced to part with that money. So sometimes having money is the worst thing that can happen to people rather than the best. Some people are really just not made to be super rich or otherwise they will destroy them. Some people can't handle it. Some people die because of it, like he did. So this is really someone who I believe if he was just a normal working guy would have had a much more normal life. I'm sure he still would have had some mental illness he had to deal with, but so do a lot of people. There, there's a lot of people out there who deal with major mental illness and just work around it the best they can and manage to live out a full life. But he was he had too many opportunities to go off the rails and too many people who were enabling it or even encouraging it for their own benefit. 
things which would never have happened if he was not in that type of position and didn't have that type of money. Very sad. I don't know how much of this was his own hereditary mental illness that was destined to happen and how much of this was brought on by drug use that may have changed the way his brain worked. It's hard to tell. Probably a combo of both. Sometimes what is good about someone is also what's bad about someone. And it seems like that might have been the case here with Tony Shi, That the way his mind worked differently that allowed him to be innovative and successful and approach things differently than the average person, which worked out for him very well in the business world, also made a mess of his personal life. That he just didn't approach things the way normal human beings do and couldn't because of the way his mind was. I've really known a number of people like that over the years who have success in some area because they're different in some way, but then them being different in that way also ruins them in other ways. Okay, so let's move on to a lighter topic here. Let's talk about Alan Kessler and Burger King. Why am I covering Alan Kessler and Burger King? Well, because Alan Kessler's part of poker because he sometimes listens to this show. He talks to me sometimes, and uh, I found it amusing. And also, as an added bonus, I am someone who will frequently uh, talk about or complain about customer service issues. And you guys know that, and we've talked about this type of thing many times on the show. And I thought that my commenting on somebody else's customer service issues would be a segment worth doing here, especially just for the entertainment value of the whole thing. So let me tell you what's going on with uh, Alan Kessler and Burger King. Because <laughs> this is uh, funny. People thought he was just messing around, but no, no, that's that's really Alan Kessler. He was really complaining about Burger King on Twitter. So before we begin, I want to talk about Burger King and McDonald's and a lot of chain fast food places, because some people don't know this. If you go to Burger King or if you go to McDonald's, you're not necessarily going to a restaurant that's owned by Burger King or McDonald's. It may be owned by just individuals or small companies that are running a franchise location. So they get to use the Burger King name. They get to serve Burger King food. They obviously attract customers based upon being Burger King because people know Burger King. People know the Burger King menu. They know what they like about Burger King. And uh, that brings people in a lot more easily than just uh, Joe's hamburger stand. So they are franchised units of Burger King. They are individually owned and operated. They have certain agreements they have with Burger King about the way the place has to look, about the menu that they serve, about uh, certain standards they have to adhere to, and and things like that. But um, Burger King basically has its hands off for most things. They basically let the owner do what they want within, like, semi-reason. And the standards that the franchisee has to adhere to depends upon the corporation and how much they want to assert these standards because it it can be a pain in the ass for them to assert these standards and it can drive away franchisees but at the same time 
if their standards are not high enough, then people will start having bad experiences and, and not knowing they was just one bad individual owner, they may quit all Burger Kings and it'll hurt the whole company. Uh, what Burger King gets out of this, of course, is they uh, make money from the franchisee in various ways. There's fees the franchisee has to pay to Burger King. Uh, the franchisee has to buy the food directly from Burger King. So the, there's a number of ways that uh, Burger King has a guaranteed income, even if the restaurant itself is failing. So the restaurant itself could be losing money hand over fist and Burger King will still be profiting. So it's a model that a lot of these uh, corporations like because they have guaranteed income and they can't lose. The problem, the downside with franchising is exactly what you might think from what I was just describing, is that often the individual owners of these franchise locations do not care about how people see the brand. They're just thinking about their own profit. And sometimes they're weird. Sometimes they have weird policies there. Sometimes they're assholes. And the customer service is terrible, uh, you know, all the way up to the owner there. So people have bad experiences there. And as I was saying, they won't realize the franchisee situation. They'll just think, okay, well, Burger King sucks because I just had this terrible experience here. I'm never coming back to another one. Not realizing it was just that owner who did that and that other Burger Kings may be fine. So Burger King will suffer as a whole if a franchisee acts badly. So it's a balancing act. It's a balancing act where the corporation wants as many franchise units as possible because it's guaranteed income, but the trade-off is harm to the reputation of the brand. There are certain fast food brands that just will not franchise for this reason. They want to adhere to a high standard. They want to have the full control of all their locations and make sure that uh, everybody has an experience that is similar at all locations. And they, there's certain standards that people will know will be followed. One well-known example of a fast food outlet that does not franchise at all is In-N-Out Burger. So in-N-Out Burger is a beloved chain, mostly in the western U.S. There's a few units elsewhere, but it's mostly in, in California, Nevada, and Arizona. But In-N-Out, people love the food there, but it's beyond the food. The experience at In-N-Out is you will be treated very well. The employees will be very friendly and very accommodating. At In-N-Out, the customer really is always right. You're not treated like you're treated at a typical fast food place. And they're very good at getting orders correct. At least they were until the recent worker shortage. But we'll forget about that for this discussion. But up until the recent worker shortage that was brought on by uh, a bunch of uh, political factors that we won't discuss, the workers at In-N-Out were under tremendous pressure to get it right. That if there were a lot of botched orders, they would be fired very quickly. And if a location manager did not fire bad employees quickly for botching things, they would be fired and replaced with a different manager. And everybody was overpaid for the standards of fast food, where the manager would make more than managers of any other fast food place, and the employees all the way down to the bottom employees would make more. So everybody got paid more, but was expected to do a better job. That was the in and out model, and it's been working. They've been very successful. And they don't have any franchised units. You cannot buy an in and out you cannot run an In-N-Out. In-N-Out is run by the corporation, every single location. A similar situation exists with Tommy's Burgers. That's uh, popular in California. You may not have heard of it if you're outside of California. But uh, original Tommy's, 
There's a lot of those all over the place. In fact, you can find one in uh, Barstow between L.A. and Vegas. You can find some locations in Vegas itself. Plenty of them around L.A. Tommy's has no franchise units for the same reason. They don't quite have the reputation of In-N-Out, and they don't have as high a standard as In-N-Out, but it's, it's along the same lines, that they want control of everything. So most of these fast food outlets are franchised. There are some that are corporate-owned, but they tend to be mostly franchised. And there's a wide variance of the experience you will have at a franchise unit. And this is important to know as a customer. So if, if something bad happens at Burger King or McDonald's or Taco Bell, that you have to say, wait a minute, who am I mad at here? Am I mad at Burger King or am I mad at the owner of the franchise? Well, Alan Kessler, I don't know if he knew or understood all of this before. I know he's aware of what franchises are, but maybe he didn't think of this being the case at Burger King. Maybe he just thought he walks into Burger King and it's it's similar to In-N-Out, where it's just a, it's like a corporate location, and uh, if something goes wrong, you complain to the corporation. So this is what he tweeted on October 24th. Powers that be at Burger King, and he did the at Burger King so they would receive this. I had a horrible experience at your West Tropicana location a few days ago. That's in Las Vegas. I spoke for 15 minutes to customer service, and they assured me the store manager would contact me. So far, crickets. So Kessler did not get that call from the store manager of the West Tropicana location of In-N-Out, of of Burger King. Lee Bradbury, who is uh, a Hoosier A, we had him on the show a lot of times. He commented that he had a lot of issues with that particular location. He also lives in Las Vegas. A lot of other people bashed Alan, saying, come on, Alan, Burger King, you're really complaining about that on Twitter? What's wrong with you? People, a lot of people said things like that. Someone tweeted to him, you talk about a trip to a fast food place the same way you refer to losing to a one-outer. <laughs> and someone else asked him, what in the world sort of experience that you can't just tell the manager about it in a two-minute conversation max. And he said, manager's non-responsive. I was online with their customer service for 15 minutes. Okay, let me stop right here. Let me stop right here and tell you a few things, Alan. First of all, the online customer service is foreign, 100%. I, I have no knowledge specifically of Burger King's online customer service, but I can tell you without having any knowledge, it's gotta be foreign. So you're probably speaking to someone in India or the Philippines that has no power. They just take a report. They're paid very little, and they are taking a report from you. They do not care. They've probably never been to a Burger King in their life. They only can do what their tools allow them to do. So the customer service, you, you can rant at them all you want about how awful the experience was there. I don't even know what happened to Alan there at Burger King, but whatever happened, you can rant, rant, rant. They don't care. They don't know. They don't care. There's nothing they could do if they did care. All they can do is forward this on. But who does it get forwarded to? Now, in Alan's fantasy, perhaps this gets forwarded to a high manager at Burger King who will then dress down the location for having treated Alan this way. But that's not the way it goes. You know who they typically contact when you have a complaint about a location that's a franchised unit? They contact the manager of the location. (laughs) So what if the problem is with the location? What if the problem is with the manager or the owner of the location? Well, they report that to the manager or the owner of that location. (laughs) 
That would be like if you had a complaint about Poker Fraud Alert Radio. And I said, okay, contact Todd Wittellis to complain about this show. And then you you write to me and say, yeah, the, the host of this show is terrible. I hate him. He's boring. He takes 25 minutes to do the intro of the show. He complains too much. Can you do something about this? And then I say back, okay, well, uh, I'll talk to him. And the whole time you're talking to me. You're complaining to me about me. What, what do you think I would do if you complained to me about me? Nothing, right? Like, I, I guess I may take your opinion into consideration. But if I don't agree with you, complaining to me about me obviously would have no impact. Well, that, that's what happens with most of these franchise locations. is They bring your concern to the people you are complaining about. <laughs> so you're not going over their head. You're going right to them. Your complaint about them is to them. And you, you don't realize that when you're complaining to the corporation of a franchise unit, typically. I don't know if, for sure if this is how Burger King operates, but even if they don't, they don't do anything. Burger King does not assert tough standards upon their franchisees. So if the manager of Burger King thinks Alan Kessler is a pain in the ass and does not want to talk to him, or if they just know they have a shitty location and they just really don't care, because Lee Bradbury said they're a shitty location and he didn't enjoy going there and finally had to quit after a few incidents, then they're just not going to answer. It may not even be aimed at Kessler. They may just say, hey, we're not going to respond to any complaints. And I've seen that before, too. I've seen before where I have a bad experience at some kind of fast food place, and I attempt to reach the manager, and I can't ever reach them, and I leave a message, and they don't call me back. And you know what that means? It means they don't care. It means they're a franchised unit, and the owner doesn't care, and the manager doesn't care, and therefore the employees, of course, don't care. So nobody cares. What do you do at that point? Answer? Nothing. Which... I usually don't say. I usually don't say if a business treats you badly that you just do nothing and walk away. But in this case, you do nothing and walk away. Why? Because there's nothing to do. If the owner of the business will not do anything about it, and if it is a business that is operating as a franchised location of that business, then a bad review is not going to hurt them. So let's go back to the Joe's Hamburger Shack example. Joe's Hamburger Shack does not have any name recognition. So if I go onto Yelp and I bash Joe's Hamburger Shack that the burgers taste bad or the manager's an asshole or the owner's a jerk or there's something else wrong there, well, people may read the review and say, you know what? I was going to try Joe's Hamburger Shack, but uh, I'm not going to go now. So I'm glad I checked Yelp. Well, who's going to check Yelp about Burger King? Just about nobody, because you know what to expect at Burger King. You know what items they sell at Burger King. You know what you like and don't like at Burger King. So if you're going to go to Burger King, you're just about never going to bring up Yelp to check out the review. You're not going to read reviews for Burger King, unless maybe you've already had a problem there. So writing bad reviews about franchise locations of major chain fast food restaurants, it's not going to help you, and it's not going to affect them much. They could have a terrible rating on Yelp. They could have one star on Yelp with 155 reviews, and it's not going to matter because almost nobody checks it before they go to Burger King. Whereas, like, Joe's Hamburger Shack, they would check Yelp. Not all the time, but they're going to get checked a hell of a lot more than, than a known uh, fast food brand. So writing bad reviews won't help you. And if the owner doesn't care, the franchise owner doesn't care, and if the corporation doesn't care, and all they do is report your complaints back to the owner... 
then you're stuck. You're in an endless loop. There's no way to get out of it. The only way out of it is to say, I am never setting foot back in there, and I'll tell whoever I know this place sucks, go to a different location. And that was exactly what I told Alan. I said, Alan, I complain about things almost as much as you do. Not quite as much, but almost as much as you do. And I am telling you to walk away. I'm telling you to give up. I'm telling you just, you're never going to get satisfaction. The manager is not going to call you. The corporation will not discipline the location here on West Tropicana for anything you claim. You're going to be ignored. You're not going to get any satisfaction. This is the way the whole thing's set up. It sucks, but that's the way it is. So the solution is either just quit going to Burger King entirely or find a different location of Burger King, which is reasonable distance away, and go there instead. And maybe better, because it very much varies from location to location. I first discovered this situation in the mid-90s, the early to mid-90s. I discovered this in uh, Riverside, California, where I lived at the time, with a Denny's. Because Denny's has the same situation. Some of them are corporate-owned, some of them are franchised. I, I don't know what it is now, but it, back in the mid-90s, it was kind of like half and half, actually, between franchise and corporate-owned. There was a Denny's really, really close to me, almost walking distance. I didn't walk there because the area was bad, especially in the mid-90s, but it was very, very close. And one day at Denny's, not even that Denny's, but at a different Denny's, I was accidentally served a a kind of a strawberry pie. I forgot the name of it, but they had some kind of strawberry pie there that was accidentally served to me. It was really strange. I think there was something wrong with the waitress, like something wrong mentally with her. And she just dropped this pie in front of me because I had asked about it. Like, what is what is this pie like? And then she goes, okay, well, here's this pie, and let me describe it to you, and then just puts it in front of me and leaves. I'm thinking, okay, what do I do with this? <laughs> and then she eventually brings me the bill, and there's, it's not on there. I'm like, okay, like, whatever. Like, I just ate it, and then she, it wasn't on the bill. It was very weird. So what came of that was I actually enjoyed that pie that she brought to me when I just asked about it, and she brought it as if I wanted it, and described it as if she was just showing it to me, but then just walked off. And then I just ate it and said, okay, if they charge me, they charge me. And they didn't charge me. It was really weird. Anyway, I got to like that pie. So I went to order it at the Denny's by me in Riverside. And they said, well, which pie do you want? I said, what do you mean which pie? The strawberry pie. No, there are two strawberry pies. So they had two totally different types of strawberry pies there that were similar, but not identical. And one was like two bucks more than the other. Well, the one I liked better, it turned out, was the cheaper one. So that was good. You know, like, uh, I I would have paid for the one that was more expensive, but it was a very nice discovery that of the two strawberry pies there, that the cheaper of the two was the one I preferred. I'd actually try the other two. I I definitely preferred the one that was cheaper. And so what I started doing is I started uh, buying whole strawberry pies and keeping them in the refrigerator, and then I could have pie for the next few days because they're just me living alone. So I had the strawberry pie. I'd buy a whole pie, which is much, much more cost-effective than buying uh, by the slice. And I'd actually do a pie for takeout. I'd just order a pie at Denny's, and I'd come pick it up. But remember, there's a $2 difference between the one I was getting and the one that was more expensive that I didn't like as much. So there was a lot of confusion there. So I'd order the pie. I'd get there, and they'd charge me for the, the other one, which is $2 more. So I'd say, no, 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 this one is the one that's cheaper. And they say, no, 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 we know it's this. 
I said, no, it's, it's, I'm telling you it's cheaper. We'd go in a back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and I couldn't prove it. And, of course, I couldn't just whip out my phone and show them a menu or something online because this is the mid-'90s. So it was just my word against theirs, and they're acting like they've got to know because they work there and I don't. Eventually, the manager comes over, and finally they say, okay, yeah, you're right. It's, uh, it, it is a cheaper pie. So I, I can't tell you how many times I went through this stupid argument over and over. I just didn't want to pay the extra $2 out of principle. I knew what the price was supposed to be. Had they raised the price, I would have paid the $2 because it would have been worth it. But I was not going to pay them two extra dollars because the employees were incompetent and didn't understand the price and, and wouldn't even bother to look it up or ask somebody. So every like we got in a lot of arguments about this stupid thing with the $2 difference between the two strawberry pies. And I was getting tired of it, but I, I just was not going to relent. I kind of started considering that maybe I should just start going to the other Denny's that's uh, further down the road wasn't super far but it wasn't like right next to me like this one was and maybe they'll do better but i thought okay you know they'll probably make the same stupid mistakes and who wants to go all the way over there when there's one almost right next door so i kept going there well finally one day i came in and uh got into the same stupid debate about the pie price and uh the manager who was a new manager that came out and told me i'm wrong and I said, no, I'm right. I've done, we've been doing this over and over. You can check my credit card receipts. Nope, we've been charging you the wrong thing all this time then. This is the actual price, they told me. And they were, they were just incorrect about this. So the manager was just stuck there on, on that price, being the $2 more price for the one I was getting, and would not listen to me and got very rude and obnoxious with me and finally said, look, we're not discussing this anymore. This is the price it's going to be. This is what you're going to pay if you want to get this pie. Otherwise, don't get the pie. But that's it. I'm not talking about it anymore. I said, well, check my receipts. No, no, no. We're not checking anything. We'll call the corporation. We're not calling anything. I'm right. You're wrong. You want to get the pie. It's this price. End of story. Goodbye. So I, I said, forget it, and walked out. And I said, well, that sucks. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm going to miss these pies, but I'm, I'm not going to let them do this to me. Again, they hadn't raised the price. They were just charging me the wrong price, and, they were, and this new manager was being a jerk about looking up the truth. So... I called up, just to make sure I wasn't crazy, I called up Denny's, the corporation, to clarify this. I thought, what if it was just wrong all this time? What if, what if really the, the more expensive one has been the one I've been getting, and that's been all the reason for the confusion? And finally, we got a manager who's just putting their foot down saying, no, we're not going to discount this. We're just, uh, you're going to pay the price you're supposed to. Well, no, the, the corporation verified for me that that was the correct price, that the cheaper one was the correct price, and they were wrong over there. So I said, okay, well, uh, can you do something about this? And they said, yeah, well, we'll let them know. I said, what do you mean you'll let them know? you let them know not to charge me more? No, we'll let them know you complained. I go, no, no, but I, you're not understanding. I, I just, uh, I'm complaining about that manager. I'm not complaining to have you give a message to the manager that I'm unhappy. He already knows I'm unhappy. Oh, well, that, I'm sorry. That's all we can do. I said, what? They're charging the wrong price. And, and you're saying that you're just going to tell them that I said they charged the wrong price? Yeah. What, what they choose to do about it is up to them. I go, this is insane. I go, so, so I asked them. I said, I don't understand. How can you let your locations act this way? Don't they have to answer to somebody? Or like aren't, uh, I don't understand why this location can just uh, charge whatever prices they want when Denny's tells them what the prices are. And they said, because uh, the owner can set the price whatever he wants to set to. I said, but that's not what the owner did. The owner, there's just confusion there. The owner didn't set the price there. And I said, wait, 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 hold on. What owner? Aren't you guys the owner? They said, no. It's a franchise location, they told me. 
and we basically don't get involved in matters of price, even in ones like this, where they're just making a mistake and charging the wrong one. And I said, oh my God, okay, whatever. So I said, let me just, out of curiosity, this one down the street, and I gave them the address, is that a franchise location? And they said to me, no. I said, wait a minute, so you own the one down the street, but not this one? They said, correct. I said, okay, and let's say hypothetically the one down the street charges me the wrong price. Oh, then we'll do something about it. Then we will tell the manager they need to start charging you the correct price because we set the prices here at corporate for the corporate locations. So if they charge you the wrong thing, then tell us and we will lay the hammer down on them. But this franchise location, we can't do anything about it. And my 22-year-old self was like, what the hell? They're both Denny's. To the customer, they appear to be the same Denny's other than two different locations in the same city. But apparently, there's a huge difference where one can do whatever the hell it wants and treat the customer whatever the hell it wants, whatever way it wants to do it and be complete dicks and charge you the wrong prices. And the one down the street has to adhere to all these strict rules. So guess where I started going? Down the street. That's where I went for the rest of the time that I lived in Riverside whenever I went to Danny's, whether I was going to eat in there or, or whether I was taking out a pie. I, I went every time to that Denny's down the street, and believe it or not, which you probably would believe, they never made a mistake with a pie price. They got it right every single time down there. So that was actually a life lesson to me, as dumb as it sounds. I learned right then that there's, there's a tremendous difference between a corporate location and a franchise location, even within the same company. However, with Burger King... Most of them are franchise locations. I don't even know how many are corporate locations anymore. So your best bet is either to quit going or to go to a different location and hope to get better. Funny enough, on Family Guy, many years later, of course, I'm watching Family Guy, and they made a joke about moving to a new town and then going to the Denny's that's very close by and then deciding after one or two visits that you're going to go all the way across town for the good Denny's. <laughs> That's exactly what I did. It's like Family Guy is uh, basing their script on my life. I don't know if Seth MacFarlane had the same experience with a crappy Denny's by him and went across town for the good Denny's. That's exactly what I did is I went across town for the good Denny's. But that really applies to today. You know What happened to me in like 94 a Riverside Denny's that really applies to today with Alan Kessler and the Burger King thing because they're just not going to do much to a franchise location. They never will. In fact, I really can't think of any business that asserts very tough standards on a franchise location. Some more than others, but it's never very strict standards. So something you can always ask if you're having an issue at a chain location of of any kind of uh, restaurant, whether fast food or not, is ask them, is this franchise or corporate owned? And if it's corporate-owned, you can usually get a hold of a uh, district manager and they'll really lay the smack down on them if they really are in the wrong. Because they, they do not have the auton- autonomy at these corporate locations to just uh, go ham and do whatever they feel like doing or treat the customer poorly. Corporate locations are very sensitive about that. But corporations are not at all sensitive about the way franchises the franchisees behave. Which is strange because if they're really doing this all to preserve the corporation's reputation, you would think they care about both, but often they don't. 
So my advice to Alan Kessler here, just don't go to that Burger King anymore. And by the way, if a particular location of a fast food place just seems really awful, it probably is because the owner is awful, and it's never going to improve. Now, why would an owner be awful at a fast food place? Like, what makes the guy wake up and say, you know what, I'm going to be a complete dick and give terrible service and let my manager abuse people, and I don't care. Why, why, would, a, a, why would a franchise owner, after spending all that money, because it, it costs a lot of money to start these things up, after spending all that money, why would anyone take that line? Well, the answer is that it's often hard to turn a profit at fast food locations as a franchisee. A lot of people believe it's the path to riches. Oh, I'll get, get myself a Burger King. I'm going to just let the money roll in. Well, how? Think about it. The items are very cheap. You're not making very much on any transaction. So you need a ton of transactions coming through every day to make you any kind of decent money or any money at all after all your other expenses. The expenses you pay for the food, the expenses you pay to the corporation for being able to use their name, the expenses you have to pay to employees, all the other overhead. So you have to make enough money on these small transactions of people buying fast food, which doesn't cost very much. You have to make enough from all those transactions to cover all of that, just to break even. That's why you often will see owners of these franchise locations actually working there as the manager. A lot of times the manager is not the manager. The manager is the owner because they, they can't even afford to pay a manager. So you have the owner working all day and all night and they're in a terrible mood that they've become a Burger King employee. They bought the Burger King for financial independence and said they end up becoming a Burger King employee. It's, it's kind of a nightmare. So they're in a foul mood to begin with. And all they can think about is preserving every possible penny. So if you're in a Burger King and say, hey, can I have some extra ketchup? And they say, sorry, only uh, two ketchup packets per order. And you say, what the hell? Why is this guy such a dick? Well, it's because he is counting how much it costs him every time that you take a ketchup packet. Because they, they pay for the ketchup packet. So if you take too many, that, that eats into his profits. So the corporation doesn't think about this. They look at the bigger picture. The franchisee often does not. The franchisee will think, crap, if I give away too many ketchup packets, then that eats into my profit. If I give away too many napkins. Like, seriously, a lot of them will restrict your napkins. <laughs> it's that crazy. So if all they can think about is penny-pinching to the point of where they drive away customers. Like, I'm not even saying this is smart. Like you, you want repeat customers. You want Alan Kessler to enjoy your Burger King so he comes over and over. That's, that's what you want there. And a lot of times, these franchise owners, all they can think about is the extreme short term. And they drive people away, and then it makes them fail even more. And then it puts them in a worse mood. So it's a vicious cycle. So you'll just get, you're just going to have franchise owners who suck and will never improve who don't see the big picture. And I'm not, not even talking about the big picture of the corporation and its reputation, which the franchise owner doesn't give a shit about. I'm talking about their own bottom line. They don't realize that by driving away customers who otherwise would like to come there, that you do this over and over and it's going to kill you. But they, they don't think about that. They just think about the moment. So the only solution, just go somewhere else. Don't write bad reviews. Don't complain to corporate. Just go somewhere else. 
Okay, well, I'll tell you about a place where people are going somewhere else, and that is Resorts World. Resorts World is not doing well. We've talked about that before on the show. Talked about Resorts World's problems, but it just seems to be getting worse and worse, and we see more and more signs that it is getting worse and worse. And I'm wondering when they're just going to give up and sell it. It's not going to close, but they might sell it. And it wouldn't surprise me if they sell it. So Resorts World was supposed to be one of the major, major destinations of Vegas once it opened. And it was anticipated for years. It was supposed to change everything about the way that the North Strip is viewed. Because the North Strip is kind of viewed as old and kind of scummy. Think about what was there and what is there. Circus Circus is a great example. The Stratosphere. The Sahara. I'm talking about the old Sahara. Even the new Sahara. Uh, the Riviera before it was wrecked. The Las Vegas Hilton, a.k.a. Westgate. These are not known as the premier properties of Vegas. If you think about the premier properties of Vegas, you think about the Bellagio, the Aria, the Cosmo, the Venetian, the Wynn. That's what you think about when people say the premier properties of Vegas. You don't think about the first ones I named in the North Strip. In fact, some of these in the North Strip are seen as uh, lower-end or semi-lower-end properties, and they're away from all the action, and the area is known not to be very good. So these are not properties that people want to go stay at. They tend to stay there out of desperation because there's uh, it's too expensive to stay at the Bellagio or Aria over the weekend. That's why people go to the North Strip properties. But Resorts World was supposed to change all of that. Resorts World was supposed to make it to where the north end of the Strip becomes a destination again for high-end customers. And they actually kind of fooled me. I have a good feel usually for what's going to work and what's going to be a fail. And I'll, I'll see plans for a casino hotel and I go, there's no way it's going to work. And just about every single time I said that, it failed. And when I see something I think is going to work, I say so also. And usually I'm right about that too. But I wasn't with Resorts World, at least not so far, because I predicted Resorts World really was going to change everything, that uh, there was so much money being put into it that it was going to be a game changer and that it's close enough to the win to where the win and Resorts World would kind of be considered a new area of the Strip. So remember, the win is kind of between Center Strip and North Strip. It's just a little bit north of uh, Spring Mountain Boulevard. So, Spring Mountain Road, I guess it is. But it's still kind of seen center strip, just kind of the very edge of it, when it really isn't. So, I thought what this would do is between the Wynn and Encore already being there and being well-established as a high-end property, that with Resorts World fairly close to it, not directly across the street, but fairly close to it on the other side of the street, that this would change the whole perception of that area and that we would have a new high-end area of the Strip and maybe even sometime in the future, this would take over as the premier area of the Strip. Kind of like how the Strip took over from downtown as the place people wanted to go when they visited Vegas, which only happened a few decades ago. So I thought that would be the future of Resorts World, at least the first part. But it was not. It was not at all. 
Resorts World definitely made some mistakes. I think one of their biggest mistakes was opening when they did. They opened in late June of this year. I was in Vegas for this. I didn't just go for that, but I wanted to go back to Vegas anyway because it had been a while since I'd been there due to COVID, and I had recently been fully vaccinated. And I thought, okay, well, it's safe for me to go. There was no Delta yet in the U.S. Everything seemed cool. And I went to Vegas without a care in the world, and uh, while I didn't stay at Resorts World, I visited it in its first few days, and I ate at some restaurants there with some friends, and I, I spent a good deal of time there. And my impression of Resorts World, and I've told you guys this on previous episodes, so I won't go into it too much again, but my impression was, yeah, it's nice. It's a nice higher-end property, but there's nothing special here. There's nothing memorable. The only memorable thing is now gone. That's the Rolls Royces of different colors they had in the lobby. Those are gone now, apparently, and have been for the last two months. So... That was the only thing that was really memorable there. Everything else is just kind of a ho-hum, high-end property with nothing all that interesting. But more importantly, they opened before they were ready. There were a lot of maintenance problems in the hotel rooms. There was no real entertainment there. There was high-end entertainment they had booked, but it was all starting like November, and they were opening in June. So there was no real entertainment. Even their nightclub was not open yet. So what did people do there? Well, they came, they wandered around, they ate, they gambled, they left. And it wasn't very memorable or something people wanted to return. So people who came there, both locals and tourists, didn't say, hey, I want to go back there soon. Because they didn't have that memory of seeing one of their favorite performers there or going to a really cool nightclub with a lot of really attractive people or... uh, doing some kind of activity there that they couldn't do anywhere else or uh, seeing a really unique feature like the uh, Bellagio Conservatory, for example, that you want to go back and see again, especially when the changes. No, like it's, it's all right. It's, it's, it's a nice looking place. It's a high end place, a lot of nice restaurants, but like, what's the theme there? Why are you going back? And there really isn't. It was just kind of too generic. Especially missing all these things that they weren't yet ready to open, such as the nightclub and the entertainment. So they got off on a bad foot. And like they used to say in the Head and Shoulders commercials, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And I think the first impression that was made with a lot of people was ho-hum. So the buzz around Resorts World was that it was unexciting and people just didn't really have a desire to go there. Something else people noticed at Resorts World was that they really didn't want to be in that area. Right across the street was a McDonald's and Denny's, which tended to attract kind of a trashy local element that's kind of strolled in. And that's not exactly what you're looking to rub rub elbows with when you're going to a high-end resort. I'm not trying to be a snob. I'm just trying to tell you the way people who pay a lot of money for a high-end resort think. They, they, they don't want to have a Denny's and McDonald's across the street with, with trashy people milling around. They want to be able to walk around the area and, and either see other tourists or uh, 
just ha- have it be a, a, a nice place. But you don't want to feel like you're just dropped into an area that was once uh, aimed at uh, lower and lower middle class locals who are milling about there. It, it makes people feel uncomfortable and makes them wish they were over there in Center Strip where they don't encounter this. Encounter this. Also, you look right out your window, and what's right next door? Circus Circus, which does not have a reputation for being a classy place. And honestly, it shouldn't have that reputation because it isn't a classy place. It, it is a uh, a low-end place there in Vegas. So it's right next to Circus Circus. It's across the street from a Denny's and from a McDonald's. I wonder if that Denny's charges the right amount for the strawberry pie. I should check on that. But it just didn't have the high-end vibe that these other properties I named had. You didn't feel this way at the Venetian, or the Wynn, or the Aria, or the Cosmo, or the Bellagio, or even Caesars. At those places, you'd walk out, you could walk around to other hotels, there wasn't much of a trashy element, you were just kind of among Vegas tourists, and you felt like you were there in the action. Even at the wind, which is kind of on the edge of the whole thing, you still felt kind of close enough to the action. Wasn't that far of a walk to the Venetian, for example. Resorts World was just far enough away, just far enough past the wind, to where it was kind of grouped in more with the Circus Circus type of Las Vegas experience. And people had a hard time, even subconsciously, justifying why they want to go back and pay all that money there. Plus, as I said, there's not a whole lot of exciting things going on there, at least not yet, that makes it appealing to want to return. See, a lot of what makes you return to things is a subconscious desire to come back because you enjoyed yourself. And it's not always a conscious decision of, hey, I really liked it there. I'd like to go back. There's the subconscious feeling of like just the happiness you had when you were there or some kind of other feeling that you liked and it just drives you to go back. Hey, I haven't been to Vegas in a while. Hey, you know what? You know what kind of feels cool right now? Is it like if I could just be at the Bellagio right now on a Friday night? That'd be kind of awesome. Yeah, I wish I was there right now instead of home. Like that's what the, these high-end resorts are hoping that you're going to be thinking. And that you don't have to be actively planning, like, yeah, I really enjoyed myself at the Bellagio, and I'd like to go back there sometime. Not like that, just you kind of start getting a feeling like you'd like to be there again. Or when you think of Vegas, this is kind of where you picture being. And if you're not getting that feeling, then you're not going to want to spend a lot of money at a place like Resorts World. You're going to go somewhere else that you do remember getting that feeling in Vegas. And that feeling can come from a lot of things. Or it can come from a combination of things. But if your hotel is a combination of being in a semi-bad neighborhood, kind of a trashy-looking neighborhood, next to a trashy hotel like Circus Circus, and there's nothing exciting going on there, well, then, then you're going to have problems succeeding. So Resorts World is now aiming at locals, which I never thought I'd say. Why? Because in Vegas, there are the properties which are totally aimed at locals, such as the stations, casinos, such as the coast casinos, such as things like uh, Arizona Charlie's. There's a number of hotels. They're, they're not on the Strip, 
but uh, off-strip hotels, casino hotels, that are aimed at locals. The Red Rock is one of the higher-end locals' hotels. It's, it's a pretty decent place. It has a lot of hotel rooms, but this, this is where you go for like a staycation. There's not that many people who come from out of the area and stay somewhere like the Red Rock. You can, but it's way out there. So these are all aimed at locals. This is where locals go. And locals like to be among other locals. They don't like to be among the tourists. They found the tourists annoying. They, they, uh, they like to be among themselves in Vegas. And that's something a lot of people also don't know. A lot of people don't realize how much tourists irritate locals. Even though locals know that tourists need to be there for the economy's sake, they also are kind of irritated by them. They, they just kind of prefer the locals come and do their, or the, the tourists come and do their thing and money is made from them, but they don't have to really deal with them directly that often. That's the way most locals see tourists in Vegas, except for ones that have to directly work with the tourists. And then that's the way it goes. But uh, anyone who doesn't directly work with tourists, they really don't want to spend time with them. And if even if your job is working with tourists, like if you work at a casino, you don't want to hang out with tourists when you're not on the clock. When, when you're home, you want to go out for leisure, you want to be away from the tourists. And I actually got to feel this way when I was a Vegas local, even though I wasn't originally from Vegas. I lived in Vegas enough years to where I started to become annoyed by tourists. And the only time I wanted to see tourists was when I would go to the poker table. I wanted them at the table because they tended not to be that good. But other than that, I didn't want to see the tourists. And in fact, anywhere that was frequented by tourists, I would avoid and try to go to a different location. For example, the in and out that all the tourists went to, not the one that's new on in the link area, but the one that was on Tropicana, I never went there. And when people would say, hey, let's go to In-N-Out, I go, where? They go, you know, the Tropicana? I go, nope, let's go to Sahara. And I always took them to the Sahara location because that one was the locals In-N-Out and the Tropicana was a zoo that was full of tourists and I hated it. So that's the way most locals feel about tourists. And that's the truth. Another dumb thing that people assume about Vegas that isn't true. There's delusional people who believe that Girls in Las Vegas, I'm talking about local girls in Vegas, that they, they're just ready and willing there to hook up with tourists. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. Local girls hate hooking up with tourists. They think they're being used. They think that, uh, that they're being taken advantage of. They just don't like the whole thing. So uh, the way to turn off a local girl in Vegas, if you're visiting, is say you're a tourist. And a lot of people didn't realize that. In fact, uh, there's some really delusional people, like like couples that will come there and think, hey, you know what we've always wanted to do is have a threesome with another girl. Let's, let's find a local girl to do it with. Yeah, unless you're paying her, that's never going to happen. Never going to happen. But uh, anyway, back to Resorts World with the local situation. Resorts World is not the type of place that has to worry about getting locals in there. The high-end... Vegas hotels do well enough with tourists to where they don't need to attract locals. They're happy to have locals there, but they don't really do very much to bring locals in. At most, they'll give them free parking, but often not even that. So they're not going to give locals discounts. They're not going to have locals promos. They're not going to give very good offers to people who live in Vegas and have Vegas addresses. If they play there, you'll get the better offers if you live out of the area. They just are not looking to bring locals in. Why? Because locals have a different spending pattern than tourists do. Tourists will go to shows a lot more often than locals will. 
Tourists will go to high-end restaurants a lot more than locals will. Tourists will go to nightclubs more often than locals will. So basically, tourists, they want all these expensive experiences that they're going to have on vacation, and locals are like, eh, you know, if I feel like it, maybe, but otherwise, no, I kind of just want to go there and have a good time without spending too much money. That, that's, that's the way most locals approach casino hotels in Vegas. So the high-end strip hotels, they're not interested in bringing in locals. They, they, they just want tourists coming there, and that's where they put all of their marketing energy, and that's that also informs the way they give deals to people or give offers to people. So while it is very expected for the casinos aimed at locals, and even ones like Palms are aimed at locals now, it wasn't originally, but it's understandable why it is because it's not on the strip. It's understandable for places like that, for the stations to do it, for Red Rock to do it, for the coast casinos to do it you know there's a lot of casinos around vegas where the whole marketing scheme is to bring in locals but resorts world is not supposed to be one of them but now resorts world is doing so poorly that they're actually trying to appeal to locals they announced that locals only perks will be available for those with a nevada id and a genting rewards membership genting rewards is their rewards card there, kind of like Caesars Total Rewards or MGM M-Life. There's as Genting Rewards because the parent company is Genting, based out of Malaysia. Furthermore, Genting Rewards will now do tier matching if you bring in a loyalty card from a qualifying competing casino program, such as Caesars or M-Life. So that's a new thing, too. They didn't do tier matching. Now they're doing that as well. The specials for locals are... Up to 35% off hotel rooms, 20% off food and non-alcoholic drinks if served Monday through Friday, excluding holidays, and even some retailers will offer a 10% discount to locals. The restaurant Fuhu, which is a contemporary Asian Asian restaurant, now offers locals a $65 price-fixed menu which is uh, basically a menu where you're, you're paying one price and, and they serve you a number of courses. They have a three-course menu that is uh, only available Sunday through Wednesday and only for locals. At the uh, Zook nightclub, which I'm not sure if it has opened yet or is about to open, but uh, that was the nightclub I was talking about that wasn't ready in June and wasn't ready for several months. Uh, on Thursday, locals will be able to get in for free! And once you're in there, there will be other discounts as well. Also, their uh, Red Tail outlet there, you can get uh, discounted pitchers of beer and wings. And uh, there's a uh, place called uh, Starlight on 66. I'm not sure what that is. You get a 20% discount there. A lot of different discounts available at Resorts World. For locals, This is a press release they put out on October 28th, which says Resorts World Las Vegas introduces exclusive offers and savings for locals. And this is uh, on their own website, rwlasvegas.com. A lot of stuff you can get as you're, if you're a local that you cannot get if you don't have a Nevada ID. This is a sign of things not going well during the week. Notice the days these are available. Monday through Friday. Thursday. 
Sunday through Wednesday. The different days, depending upon what we're talking about here, I, I listed them for you. But notice none of them are for Saturday or Sunday. Well, I'm sure you can guess why. It's because Saturday and Sunday, they're not doing badly. There's enough demand to where they can sell their rooms on the weekend for a uh, fairly high price. But on the weekdays, people have noticed that the rooms are dirt cheap compared to what you'd expect. In fact, we were even talking about when he had Brandon on the show uh, maybe about a month ago, we were talking about how Paris, that is Paris in uh, Las Vegas, the uh, Caesars property, which is okay, but not great, was actually slightly more expensive than the middle tower, the Conrad Tower at Resorts World, which nobody would have ever guessed because Conrad is far nicer than Paris. But it was actually cheaper the Conrad Tower during the week. So they're really, really struggling during the week. People just do not want to come down there during the week. Weekend's still busy enough in Vegas to where Resorts World can charge high enough prices and, and everything fills up there. But uh, boy, they're struggling during the week because they're just not a destination in Vegas and there's just not, not enough people that come during the week that want to come there, especially because there's a lot more availability elsewhere. So there's availability at all the uh, Las Vegas properties during the week. So if you can stay at uh, Bellagio or Aria or Cosmo or Wynn or Venetian and not pay all that much money, then you'd rather stay there than Resorts World, even if Resorts World's a little bit cheaper. So this is not what Resorts World was going for when they spent these $4 billion to build the place. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to get locals down there to make up for this. They're trying to get locals to fill up the place when the tourists are not coming during the week. That's why locals get these hotel discounts. Locals get these food and beverage discounts. Locals get this uh, special price-fixed menu, and locals can even get into the nightclub on Thursday nights when presumably they are uh, not doing well enough at that club, and they got to get bodies in there. And the tier match, I mean, that's going on elsewhere, so I can't say that's really the sign of things going downhill, but they, they weren't doing this at first. They were not doing tier matching. Now they're doing tier matching, which unlocks certain guaranteed benefits for people who haven't played anything there yet. The the risk that a place always takes with the tier match is that people get all these perks without having to play to earn them and then just may use the place for the perks and barely play. And then once their tier match expires a year later, they just bounce and never come back. So that's why some places resist tier matches, but uh, they're finding that they need to do this as another way to bring people in. So this is a bad sign. If Resorts World is aiming at locals, it's a bad sign. They were never supposed to aim at locals. Never supposed to be a local-centric place. When was the last time you saw the Bellagio with a locals-only deal? When was the last time the Aria had one? Or the Cosmo? The Win of the Nation? When, when did they have locals deals at these places? I, I will sometimes ask. You know, I've, I've sometimes asked before when I was, uh, you know, a Vegas resident. I would say. Uh, Hey, what do you do for locals here? You have a local discount? No, 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 no. And you know, I'd be polite about it. I wouldn't get pissed if they said no. I kind of expected them to say no. 
The Rio, by the way, has a locals discount, last I heard. So if you have a Nevada ID, you can get locals discounts at like all the restaurants there. I don't think the hotel you do, but uh, the restaurants all have a locals discount last I checked, or most of them do. So if you do have a Nevada ID, you should take advantage of that. Because the Rio has laughably been trying to market themselves as a locals place, but they never caught on. Locals didn't want to go to the Rio. <laughs> Nobody wanted to go to the Rio except for the World Series. Anyway, I have to picture, especially because Genting itself is now struggling. Genting is having all kinds of problems. They were very diversified. They owned a lot of different types of businesses. They owned cruise lines, but they are in trouble. And I have a feeling they're going to be shedding assets soon enough. And I think this might be an asset they shed. And I don't think they want to do it yet because they're just bringing in the entertainment now. And they have, they have a lot of high-end entertainment that is on contract to appear there. Not long residencies, but there's a lot of uh, short to midterm residencies there of, of very big names. Even uh, Celine Dion's going to be there. So they, they're hoping that once they get fully operational, which is you know, basically coming right up, that things will turn around. But I don't know. I think they made a number of mistakes. And I don't know if they can recover from it. Reminds me somewhat of the Revel in Atlantic City. I've said this before, but the Revel, that was a very expensive property, very nice looking property, but it was laid out poorly. And a lot of it was poorly conceived. And they were kind of customer hostile too, which didn't help them. And uh, there was no way this place could keep up with this high operational costs. And it completely failed. And then it was bought for very cheap compared to what it was built for. And now operates as a ocean resort in Atlantic City. But they're apparently struggling too. So it's very possible even if Genting sells Resorts World, and even if the theme changes, it's possible that it's just always going to be battling that area and that it's going to have a hard time ever being perceived as a high-end destination. It's isolation is a big problem because people like going to Vegas and walking around. And if you go there, and if you're not comfortable walking around in that area at night, and nothing's very close, except for the wind, maybe Circus Circus, <laughs> which is the, the downside at a plus, then uh, you're going to feel like kind of trapped there. You're going to feel like, hey, I can't really just walk around Vegas like I did when I was Center Strip. And you think about when you enjoyed Vegas more, and it was when you could just step out the door and walk around. Can't really do that very well there. It's not impossible. It's just not as easy, and you don't feel as safe. I said all along, as soon as I saw the place, I I think it's a big mistake they didn't revitalize this area themselves. They didn't just buy up the whole area, even if they don't do much with it, and just completely change it to where the uh, trashy element has no reason to come there anymore. That's what they should have done, among other things. The problem is you still have Circus Circus next door. You, You can't do anything about that unless you buy Circus Circus when I don't think it's for sale. I think this was uh, a mistake. It's an expensive mistake for Genting, one of many recently. So we may see some assets being shed. I remember I was even uh, discussing recently with someone who likes uh, taking cruises on one of Genting's cruise lines and was a little worried that uh, 
they shouldn't book a cruise because what if Genting goes under? And I said, no, they don't, you don't got to worry about that because you can just pretty much rest assured that even if Genting goes under or is about to go under, that what they're going to do is they're going to sell the cruise line to somebody else. It'll still operate. It's not going to cease to exist. So that's pretty much the case with the resorts world. It's, it's not on the verge of ceasing to exist, but I wouldn't be too surprised if it's going to be shopped pretty soon, if not already. They probably want to see if they can turn it around once fully operational, and then if it, if it just never runs on all cylinders, it just never produces the revenue that's anywhere close to what they were hoping, I think they're just going to ditch it, especially with the company in trouble. Shoeshine Box asked in chat, Druff, if I had the second vax... On the 28th, can I play day 1E or F? Um, I think you probably can, but I'm not sure about that. Uh, I'm forgetting if it's 7 or 14 days. I kind of think it's 7, but if it's 14, you can't. If it's 14, you're out of luck. If it's 10, you're okay. But if it's uh, if it's 14, you're out of luck. But I, I don't know the rule. By the way, Shoeshine Box, if you'd like some tips for the main event, I know you've dealt it a lot, but I don't know how much you've played tournaments. I know you haven't played the main event before, to my knowledge. If uh, I know you're considering playing, and if you do, and you'd like some tips from me, I will give some to you, as long as you don't use them against me. If you end up at my table, don't use my tips against me. But I, I will give you some tips in from what my opinion is, is the wisest way to play the main event, which differs a lot from the other World Series events. Okay, let's move on to our next topic. I want to talk about a scam at Atlantic City Casinos, which seems a little bit simple to me, but somehow they pulled off quite a profit from it before being caught. So, five people from New York City, it seems like they're all from uh, Chinese descent, ripped off uh, Atlantic City casinos between August 26th and August 28th of this year for over $1 million. The five accused are Quintao Zhang, Zihuan Zhang, Shuai Lu, Peng Kai, and Sen Ji. So it doesn't say they're Chinese, but sounds to me like they're Chinese. They used a uh, bogus check scheme to steal over $1.1 million over that uh, three-day period in Atlantic City. They hit Borgata, Caesars, and Ocean for $284,000 each. The Golden Nugget and Hard Rock Casinos each lost $134,000. And Attorney General Andrew Bruck said the defendants were caught executing a sophisticated financial scheme spanning multiple casinos over a million dollars in fraudulent checks. So what they did is they had uh, fake cashier's checks from uh, TD Bank and uh, Bank of America. They uh, presented these at every casino and were able to get chips and gamble with them and then uh, cash them out. I, I don't think they even did that much gambling, but whatever it was, they ended up uh, getting uh, $1.1 uh, million out of the whole thing before uh, being caught. 
the only uh, casino that was able to lower the damage, so to speak, was the Hard Rock. Because uh, what happened was there was a $150,000 check and $134,000 check. And uh, the Hard Rock said, like, you know what? We're not going to accept the $150,000 check. We're only going to take the hundred thirty-four k check. Now, I, I don't know why they would accept one of those huge checks but not the other. But uh, Hard Rock denied it. And then um, Golden Nugget, they didn't deny the 150000 But I, I believe what happened there was that um, I think it was just too much to do at once. So they told them they had to stop at the 134000 at that point. It wasn't that it got denied. It was just said, you can only do one of these at a time. They uh, were able to arrest this Quintao uh, Zhang, who's 53 years old, in uh, Amsterdam. So not even in the country. Obviously, these people uh, bounced from the U.S. I wonder if they're Chinese nationals. But Zhuhuan uh, Zhang, who's 65, Shui Lu, who's 30, Peng Kai, 33, and Seng Ji, 29, are all at large. And uh, they're still trying to find them. So I don't know if they're going to get them if they've ditched off to other countries. I'm surprised they even caught up with a Quintao Zhang quickly in Amsterdam. I don't know how long it took to get him or what led them to him. But uh, they're still investigating where the others have gone. The indictment accuses them of conspiracy, theft by deception, and attempted theft by deception. I am surprised that you could go to a place like, well, any of these casinos, Borgata, Caesars, Ocean, Golden Nugget, Hard Rock, and present them with a check like $134,000 and get them to accept it. I don't care if it looks like a cashier's check. You would think there would be some kind of process to check on this. It doesn't quite explain in this article that I'm reading on the Courier Post Online how they managed to get these accepted. I had always thought that for amounts like that, they really have to verify it closely. Maybe these people had some kind of existing relationship with the casino, or one of them did, to where this was approved. But it's hard to believe you could just walk in as a new player and say, uh, yeah, here's a cashier's check for um, $134,000. Uh, can you please uh, give us chips for that? Oh, okay, no problem. It looks real to me. All right, here you go. Yeah, okay. Uh, now that you've done that, how how about another $150,000 check I've got from this other bank? <laughs> I mean, I don't laugh. It's, it, it was really done at Borgata, Caesars, and Ocean. So at those three places, they had a $150,000 check and $134,000, and they, they got them both exchanged for chips. And I guess they got away with all or most of that money. And then the uh, Golden Nugget and Hard Rock, as I said, only took one of those two checks. But they just brought two very large checks to each place, and somehow they were accepted when the checks were completely bogus. And like the fake cashier's check scheme has been around for a long time in various forms, not necessarily aimed at casinos, though some there too. But I would think for that amount, it's, it's not like you jack them for 300 bucks each. And uh, the casinos are like, we're not going to bend over backwards to try to determine fake cashier's checks for small amounts of money. But for 100-something thousand, 200-something thousand, how how could they just 
give that as if it's fine without checking with the bank. How do they not call the bank and check? So my guess here is that they had some kind of existing relationship where the casinos were greedy and wanted these uh, Asian whales, or what they thought were Asian whales, to keep losing money there at high limits. And they didn't realize that these checks were bogus. In fact, it's even possible that there's an additional level of this scheme where at first they would show up there and chunk off money fast, but much less than what they're going to be scamming, and set up the appearance that they're high rollers, and then after hours present these checks and the casinos would trust them and be greedy for the money. It's, it's got to be something like that, because I just can't picture how they could get these honored if they're unknown. This is just too much money. And it's one thing to catch one place sleeping and accidentally do it, but how do you get all five casinos to do it? It looks like only one of them was a little bit uh, suspicious of it, which was uh, this... Uh, it was uh, Hard Rock that by denying that check. So this is uh, prosecuted on the state level, by the way. This was not prosecuted by uh, the federal government. And the Attorney General's office in the state of New Jersey, the Department of Law and Public Safety, made the announcement of this. The false checks were presented by the two women. I guess Queen Tao was actually female. I thought it was a dude, but... Uh, uh, Zihuan Zhang and King Tao Zhang, who I guess might be related, both women, they're the ones who presented the phony checks at these casinos. And the other three, who were all men, were helping them with other aspects of the scheme. It doesn't mention how they, uh, how they did that. And the statement from the state of New Jersey doesn't really explain what they were doing. It's just a lot of stuff about praising the hard work of the people investigating it, blah, 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 blah. I'm taking a look at the indictment here. Yeah, I'm not even seeing uh, anything in the indictment that explains what they did other than presenting these checks. So I, I'm really wondering how they got this by these five casinos. I mean, is it really that simple? Can you really just bring in realistic-looking cashier's checks for six figures and get them to hand you chips for it? Because <laughs> if that's true, it's pretty damn easy to scam these places. And they don't figure it out for a while. So, like, you go do this in the middle of the night and you make out with all that money and you bounce out of the country and don't leave a trace of where you've gone, then I, I can't see how they can do anything about it. That's really strange. The strangest part of this whole thing is how they were able to do it. It said in this portion of the indictment regarding Sen Ji, it says Sen Ji did that. It said King Tao Zhang, Yu Huan Zhang, and Sen Ji did create or reinforce a false impression that a TD Bank official check presented was legitimate. Okay, but that, that's how they. That, I mean, that's what they did. But yeah, I, I, I don't. I don't understand the details to this. There's got to be something I'm missing. And I've read the indictment. I've read the statement from the state of New Jersey. I've read the article about it on this website. None of them explain how they were able to do this. Not what they did. I see what they did. I don't see how they were able to get away with it for the time that they did. Maybe these casinos are just too trusting when they see a legitimate-looking check. 
But this is pulled all the time by foreign scammers by mail where they will uh, offer to buy something from you and you're supposed to ship it overseas. Like let's say you've got a car up for sale and you'll get an email from someone, hey, I I live in such and such place uh, overseas. Can you ship the car to me? And you go, well, no, we can't do that. How are you going to pay me? They go, here, how about this? We'll send you a cashier's check for this uh, very large amount. And um, what you can do is uh, just tell me how much overage there is, send that back to me, and then you, then you can send the car a short time after that. And you, you can check with your bank after putting in the cashier's check that it's accepted. So let's say the car is uh, up for sale for $10,000. So you'll, you'll get a cashier's check for like... Uh, $25,000 and you're told to check how much it's going to cost to ship to wherever they claim to be, which isn't even re- really where they are. And so then you're told, like, for example, to ship it to England and you say, okay, well, it's going to be uh, $5,000 to ship and it's 10000 for the car, so that leaves uh, 10000 so I'll send you the 10000 back. But i got to wait for my bank to say it cleared. So then your bank says it's cleared and then you, you, you're pretty convinced you, that you've just made the sale. So you uh, send the person their $10,000 and then they vanish. And then it turns out you get the bad news from the bank that it, uh, they found out after the fact that it's a fake cashier check and it actually didn't clear. And they're debiting your bank account back. And now you're out the money. And even if you didn't send the car anywhere, <laughs> where they usually are not really interested in receiving the car, they don't even give you a real address. Uh, you're out 10000 bucks. So that, that's, that's a form of that scam. But it all revolves around you getting a realistic looking cashier's check which you deposit and your bank even accepts and for several days your bank does not tell you that it's bad so how they pull this off at a casino for that type of money when it's so well known that realistic looking cashier's check can be made is baffling to me if any of you know you can text me 775-372-8355 okay moving on I'm going to get to our uh, last topic we have here. That's about uh, Yasiel Puig. Yasiel Puig is a former Major League Baseball player. He first started playing in Major League Baseball in 2013. He was from Cuba. He actually paid some pretty bad people to sneak him out of Cuba, who then later extorted about $2 million bucks out of him which the Dodgers paid. that They were threatening they were going to kill him if he doesn't pay them $2 million bucks, uh, after the fact for getting him out of Cuba because they felt they were owed that after he was so successful in Major League Baseball. And the Dodgers actually, you know, they were his team at the time, they actually quietly paid that $2 million just to be done with the whole situation. Anyway, Yasiel Puig, when he first came up to Major League Baseball, was a very exciting player. First of all, he was just killing it. Uh, he was just hitting everything. They couldn't get him out. He was uh, hitting home runs. He was hitting for a high average. He was just destroying the baseball. And he was excellent defensively. He had an amazing arm where he threw tons of batters out from right field who would try to run and take extra bases on him, and he just kept nailing them, kept nailing people at home plate, trying to get to home. I mean, he he looked like he had a very, very bright future. In his first, first year with the Dodgers, 
he he slumped a little bit at the end of the 2013 season, but still he hit uh, 319 that year, which is excellent, with uh, 19 home runs in just 104 games, and played excellent defense. So he really looked great. However, he was inconsistent following that, and uh, there were other problems. And that was with his behavior. He was very immature. He was uh, a big headache in the clubhouse. He was always disruptive. He wasn't, like, angry. He didn't uh, start fights with people. But he was just always causing some kind of ruckus, and he wasn't uh, someone that was easy to have around. He was always a distraction. Now, when he's hitting that well and fielding that well, then it was worth the distraction. But when his numbers started to slip... Uh, the Dodgers started to have less patience with him. Uh, he got actually demoted to the minors in 2016, mainly because of his behavior. And also, he just wasn't hitting all that well. He had only hit uh, 260 with seven home runs in half the season. So those weren't awful numbers, but just definitely didn't uh, correspond to what was believed he would be and what he was in 2013 and he was still a headache in the clubhouse and with his antics so they uh they had demoted him so he was uh on the dodgers for several years and he had some better years than others in 2017 he did manage to hit uh, 28 home runs which is the most he ever hit and uh hit 263 that year Stole some bases, still played good defense. So 2017 was a pretty good year for him, and there was optimism that he had maybe matured some and had rebounded from some of his declined production. Uh, he started to have problems the following year, and uh, the Dodgers finally traded him at the end of 2018. So the 2018 season, he just uh, didn't do very well with the Dodgers. They they retired to him, and they shipped him over to the Cincinnati Reds. And from there, his his career never really re- never really recovered. Plus, he was getting older, and you never even know what his age really is because some of these Cuban players lie about their age in order to appear more viable when they're young. That is believed they'll develop further. But even if he really is the age he claims he is, he's not that young anymore. So he was born in 1990, meaning he's now 31 years old, or about to be 31. Uh, yeah, he was born at the end of 1990. The Dodgers uh, traded him at the end of 2018, as I said. He didn't have a terrible year in 2018. He did hit, tw- he hit 23 home runs and hit 267. But uh, with Cincinnati, he, uh, he had kind of a mediocre year uh, where he... He hit 22 home runs, but he only hit 252, and he wasn't uh, walking that much. And uh, so they they traded him to Cleveland. And uh, with Cleveland, he lost his power. He he hit for a decent average, but in uh, 49 games, he had just two home runs. Then after 2019, he didn't get re-signed. Now, some people were surprised about him not being re-signed, because let's look at his last few years. In 2017, he had his best year aside from his rookie year. Then in 2018, he still hit 23 home runs and hit 267. In 2019, he hit uh, 24 home runs, even though the 
final third of the season, he only had two home runs. So most of them were in the first two-thirds of the season. But still, his overall numbers were decent, 24 home runs, 267, and he's still playing good defense. So why did no team want to take a shot with him? Well, first of all, remember that uh, 2020 was the year of COVID. And uh, that was already kind of a crazy year, and the the year did not start until uh, later on because the baseball season was delayed for several months, and it was only a 60-game season. But uh, nowhere seemed to be signing him. It, it There were reports that some teams were maybe interested in him, but he never ended up getting signed. So the months passed, and he just never ended up uh, getting a job in Major League Baseball. Uh, there were rumors he was signing with the Braves in July of 2020, but then he tested positive for COVID-19, and uh, that ended up not happening. He tested positive just like days later, and somehow... That just derailed the whole thing, and he never got signed anywhere. And uh, he just could not get a team again. So the last time he played was in 2019. And it was wondered for a while why he was not getting teams taking a shot with him. Because it seemed like it was not going to uh, be very expensive to sign him because of uh, the lack of interest in him. And yet, the last few years he played, he did okay. I mean, he wasn't the superstar they thought he'd be in 2013, but he was productive enough, worth taking a shot on for a a, a relatively small amount of money, uh, Major League Baseball salary speaking. So why was no one touching him? Why didn't he get some teams that just really needed an outfielder that were willing to take a shot? at getting him like fairly cheap and seeing if he could be productive. But nobody would touch him. And then a story came out which seemed to shed some light on why he was not uh, getting a lot of interest. So, first of all, he was already over 30. Not much over 30. I mean, he was 30, but uh, he'd hit 30 already, and he'd always been a headache. So, it's not just signing a player and hope he hits well, you, you have to deal with all the BS that comes with him. So that, that was one of the big factors that was keeping teams away from him. However, it turned out that there was a lawsuit against him that was scaring teams away. There was an allegation that he followed a woman into a Staples Center bathroom. Staples Center is where the Lakers play. So he was at a Lakers game and followed a woman into a Staples Center bathroom and groped her while masturbating, all of this without her consent. That was what the lawsuit contended. And uh, supposedly that was a big factor in teams deciding to stay away from him. That with everything else, they said, look, he's not a superstar. He probably won't be. At best, he'll kind of just be decent. And he's a big headache in the clubhouse. And we may have the embarrassment with signing him and then turning out that he... uh, sexually assaulted a woman in a Staples Center bathroom. We, we just don't want to touch it. F it. If he were a superstar, we'd take a shot, but not, it just there's too many downsides with him and not enough upsides, so F it. That's, that's what pretty much all the teams said. And so that's the main reason that he has not been signed for 2020 or 2021. He did not play baseball either year. And there were some bizarre elements, however, to the allegations against him. Now, I will say, in most cases, when women come forward and say that a famous man sexually 
abused them in some way, whether it's like workplace sexual harassment or just unwanted touching or even rape, usually the story is true or mostly true. Usually women don't just outright make it up. But there are some cases where the women outright make it up, especially when there is money involved. So if there is, if this first appears, if the allegations first appear as a lawsuit, that's a big red flag that perhaps it isn't what it appeared to be, that perhaps the woman was just after money. Because there are evil, scummy people out there that will target famous people to try to extract money out of them. There are males who do this and there are females who do this. So in this case, I was wondering if maybe this female was one of those scummy people who was just trying to extort money out of Yasiel Puig via a frivolous lawsuit that would be damaging his reputation. So here were some weird elements of this case. And I've described it before on the show, but I'm just reviewing all this, and then we're going to give you the update, because there's a big update today. There were some bizarre elements of the case. First of all, the woman was a lesbian who had a female fiancé. Now, that by itself doesn't mean she can't be followed into a bathroom and sexually assaulted. I'm just saying that uh, that already was a little bit odd when you hear the rest of the things that uh, came out in this case. This occurred in the Chairman's Club, which was an exclusive area of Staples Center, some kind of club you have to uh, either buy access to or comes with the very best tickets there, whatever. Uh, This isn't open to the general public. And uh, both of them apparently had access to it. And it happened after a Lakers game in this chairman's club in the Staples Center, and somehow nobody else saw it occur. After the supposed attack, the woman texted with Puig and even used heart emojis and asked when he'd be back in town and when they could meet up again, which you wouldn't expect if he had just uh, sexually assaulted her. Like, what, what happened? He sexually assaulted her and masturbated, and he's like, oh, by the way, can you give me your number so I can text you? <laughs> and then once he did, she's doing it like nicely and sending uh, heart emojis, asking when she could see him again. Very, very suspicious. And the woman doesn't deny this. The woman admitted that, yes, she did text with him after, did use heart emojis, and did ask when they could meet up again. But she claimed just because she was scared of him and just did this to prevent another attack, which didn't make a lot of sense. Because it's not like he attacked her in her house. She, supposedly, he's followed her in the bathroom. And then Puig claims that she set him up, that just basically it was her idea to go into the bathroom and, and mess around with him, and they did. And then she made these allegations much later and is now suing him to make money. So I thought when I read all this, I go, this is, a lot of this is weird. Like, did he just pick like a random woman in the chairman's club to just follow into the bathroom and sexually assault? And if so, why did nobody see it? Why didn't she scream? And, and why, of all things, would she give her phone number to him instead of reporting it afterwards? Why would she give her phone number to him and, and text loving messages with him? It was, it, I didn't believe this. Oh, I'm so scared of him. That's why I did it. Just, it didn't make any sense. Like, wh- why did he pick her, of all people? And then why was she so communicative with him afterwards as if they're so close? So this really looked to me like this was some kind of setup. Well, what happened was his uh, law firm... Worksman Jackson and Quinn LLP put out a press release in April of 2021, which which basically told Puig's side of the story. So according to the lawyers here, this woman pursued him. This woman was uh, messaging him on Instagram. This woman was asking him to meet her. This woman arranged them to meet up in this... Uh, Chairman's Club, 
that she sought him out in in the chairman's club and the, and then she said that she wants to go in the bathroom with him and mess around so uh that she made the contact with him initially that she was talking to him on Instagram before this game. She was the one who arranged the whole thing. And I go, okay, this this really makes a lot more sense now. Rather than just Puig's in the chairman's club and the Staples Center just decides to follow a random woman into the bathroom and assault her. And then, and then somehow they're talking after that on uh, in text messages lovingly. I That makes a hell of a lot more sense that he was set up here. And the attorneys mentioned that she let two years pass before filing this lawsuit. So what she was looking to do was uh, have all the evidence that could uh, exonerate Puig disappear, such as witnesses, you know, who, who remembers who's in there two years ago. Any security footage, obviously, was deleted from two years ago, given that uh, no, no issues were raised all that time. So they obviously overwrite the footage at that point. So the attorney said on Puig's side, in other words, this lawsuit appears to be to have been calculated to ensure Mr. Puig would have the least amount of evidence possible to defend against these fabricated allegations. Well, that's right. I mean, that's what it looks like to me, too, that she waits two years to file this. So this way, uh, anything that could help him is gone. Can't find witnesses, don't know who they were, no video. And and uh, he does have something in his defense, those Instagram messages. So I thought, okay, great. Puig didn't do it. He was set up by some scummy woman who looks like she's not even straight, some some lesbian who forced herself to be with a dude in order to get a payday and uh, pursued him, pretended to be interested in him, and then the the plan was to let it uh, lie there to where there's no footage of what really happened and no witnesses that could be identified that were there to see it happen and then sue him and then hope he settles. Really scummy thing to do. It looks very clear that's what happened. And and I'm not someone who says, "Oh, this woman's lying." Oh, I yeah, you know, I, I think it's I'm going to take the man's side. I look at it logically, and in most cases, I come down believing the woman. But not here. Not this looks. The whole thing looks so shady. And if you look at the facts here, even stuff she admits happened. She admits about the Instagram messages, and she she. It seems like she's not even denying that that she originally pursued him on Instagram, and originally said she wants to meet him and to meet her in the chairman's club. So. This wasn't him just following some random in. This is not at all the way it was portrayed at first. He put this out through his attorneys on his Instagram and his uh, Twitter accounts back in April of 2021, hoping that the word would get out publicly that Puig was innocent here and that teams would not be afraid to sign him. They'd be very clear he was set up by some scummy people who were looking to get a payday because they knew he was rich and could be tricked into doing this. So the only thing he was guilty of here, it appears, is just being naive. So I supported this. I thought this was a smart move to just put it out there since nobody was signing him anyway. Might as well. Might as well just get the truth out and maybe some team will read it and say, hey, you know what? Looks like Puig was falsely accused here. This Nothing is going to come of this. Let, let's sign him. Let's give him a chance. It turns out he probably isn't a rapist. Well, they kind of went the other way, and this was just announced today. He now has a uh, a different law firm. Before he had uh, Worksman, Jackson, and Quinn, which I think they were more on the right track. But he has a, a new law firm. Not sure why he switched, but uh, Lesowitz Gebelin LLP, based out of Beverly Hills. 
And they just put out a press release today, October 29th. Yasiel Puig has reached an agreement to resolve all claims in the civil case brought against him by an anonymous plaintiff arising out of what Puig asserts was a consensual encounter at a Lakers game in 2018. In the settlement, Puig specifically denied any admission or implication of any fault or wrongdoing whatsoever. As specifically stated in the settlement agreement, Puig believes the plaintiff will retain $100,000 or less from the settlement payout after covering her fees and costs. Settling this case now in response to court-mandated settlement procedures allows Puig to focus on his time and energy entirely on efforts to return to Major League Baseball in 2022. If Puig had not settled, the trial was set for May 2022, right in the heart of baseball season. Also, by settling now, Puig stops incurring legal fees of his own in connection with the case, which had already exceeded the amount of the total settlement payment. Puig, at age 30, remains in his prime, and then it goes on about his uh, baseball stats, blah, blah, blah. Uh, With the civil case completely behind him, Puig looks forward to a fresh start in Major League Baseball in 2022. And then this is what Puig himself said about it. This is on Twitter today. I learned so much this past year. I learned about how the world can be very cruel and how it can put you in positions you never thought you'd be in. I wanted so much to show the world my truth, but the battle was filled with red tape and legalities and time. So much time. I want to let you know that I've settled the civil suit against me that made some people question my person. My gut instinct was to always have my day in court. I begged the system in every way, but that day would not happen until May 2022 or later. I was given an option by the other side to settle for what experts claim is a nuisance settlement amount of 100k to the claimant and approximately 150k in costs and attorney's fees. By the way, there's no chance he wrote this. He doesn't speak English that well. He he almost didn't speak a word of English when he came eight years ago, and I don't think he's writing things like a nuisance settlement of 100k to the claimant. I would only settle this case if the settlement included the fact that I maintained that I did not on any occasion inappropriately touch, annoy, or assault the claimant, and that was agreed to. I want to make this settlement public so that everyone can see why I made the choice I made about settling, especially with having my day in court, that my 2022 season would also be affected. Not to mention the fact that I've spent four times that amount in my own legal fees when all added up. Right now, the only thing on my mind is my beloved baseball and the chance to play the game I was born to play. Thank you to all the continued supporting me through this trying time in my life. Thanks especially to my agent, Lisette Carnett, Anthony, my business manager, and to all to my attorneys, Lisa Witt and Gibbelin, who have all spent the last week of sleepless nights making sure things got worked out. Forward only, Yasiel. Okay, so I think this is a big mistake. Let me explain why. He gave this person $100,000 after setting him up and paid one hundred fifty k to her attorneys, which... She doesn't get, but still, he's at 250K in this whole thing. 100K is pure profit for the criminal who set them up. And that's what she was here. If, if, if this is what it appears to be, she was a criminal. Okay? So, when someone does this to you, this is more than just settling a nuisance claim. A nuisance claim is like, let's say um, someone trips and falls while they're visiting at my, at my home. And they really did trip and fall. They didn't purposely fall, but they, they tripped and falled. They tripped and fell. And then the uh, the next day or next week, whatever, I, I get notification that they're suing me because uh, there was something dangerous in my home that made them trip and fall. And so I see they're trying to exploit the situation to get money out of me because they happen to trip and fall in my home. 
I would not want to pay that out, and I would vigorously fight it. But if I were to make a nuisance payment for that sort of thing, let's say back and forth, back and forth, and I, I realize there is some chance they can beat me in court for a lot of money, and they say, okay, how about uh, $5,000, and we drop this. As painful as it might be, it's possible I'd consider giving them the $5,000. I probably wouldn't just at a principle. But I'm saying that it would be at least reasonable to give them like $5,000. Let's say they're suing for 150000 and you think there's a chance they could win something that's pretty substantial. You may say, okay, let's just, to put an end to this, I'll give them their damn $5,000 and, and just be done with them. That, that's a nuisance settlement. Now, you can say one hundred k for Yasiel Puig might be a nuisance settlement since he's a rich baseball player. But the person who is seeking it, that's $100,000. And I have a feeling this person probably didn't have that much money. And uh, the, the whole reason they did this was to get money out of him. If this person was really rich, they, they wouldn't be pulling the scheme. So what you're doing, you're giving them a large sum of money, even if it's not that large to you. You're giving them a large sum of money, but the bigger problem is you are showing that you're paying something that's not huge money, but something that's not like $5,000. You're giving them 100000 which is semi-substantial, for something you claim you didn't do. And not everybody is going to look at this the same way I am. I look at it like Puig was a victim here. But some teams may look at it and go, I don't know. I mean, his story seems kind of logical, but he did give her $100,000, and that's a lot to give to someone who's uh, maliciously setting you up like this. So we're just going to steer clear. We're not saying he's guilty, but this is now bringing enough doubt in our mind that he was innocent, and this may happen again now. I mean, what will happen now? Like, maybe we'll hear about another woman he did this to, kind of like Trevor Bauer style, where... uh, there was one woman who alleged that he did a lot of uh, bad things to her when she, and, and knocked her unconscious and everything else during rough sex. And then it turns out that uh, a year prior, there was some other woman who made uh, similar allegations against him. And uh, now every team's going to wonder, like, how many women are there that, that he did this to? So with Puig, I have a feeling, especially with what happened with Bauer... With Puig, I'm afraid that other teams are going to see this and say, well, look, he settled with her. He he gave her $100,000 plus paid her attorney's fees. Maybe there's something to this. Maybe he did just pay it to go away, but maybe there's something to this. Because um, I still think $100K is too much to be considered a nuisance settlement. Even if you say Puig can afford it, I, I think it kind of sends the message that uh, she's being paid something large enough to where maybe there's something to it. And if it's what I think it was, that this was a complete setup from the start, that she pretended to be interested in him on Instagram and set him up to meet her there and went into the bathroom with him with the plan to two years later sue him for it, that's really nasty. And I think with all the evidence he had in his favor, with these Instagram messages, that with, with the, uh, the heart emojis afterwards and asking when he'd be back in town... I think that probably would have been enough to where uh, it would be pretty clear to a lot of teams that this was just a setup, that he was not any kind of predator, that he really was just set up here. Like, if I were a general manager of a team and I saw this, I'd go, okay, this really looks like a setup. And, and you know, these teams can even ask for more information. They, they can call Puig in and say, you know what, we're considering signing you. 
but we need more information about this. Show us everything. And then they can make an intelligent decision on it. But now that he has settled, now it kind of looks like maybe he had something to hide and he didn't want it coming out. It probably wasn't what the woman was claiming, but maybe it wasn't what he was claiming either, these teams might think. Now, I don't think that. I actually think that Puig really was completely innocent here. But once you pay out a settlement of 100k plus 150k attorney's fees, this doesn't look like a nuisance settlement anymore. It really doesn't. It doesn't matter what his net worth is. It doesn't look like a nuisance settlement. If I find some really rich guy and file some completely bogus lawsuit against him, in fact, let's make it even worse. I set him up in some way and then hit him with a bogus lawsuit. I mean, I, I have a feeling that guy would fight tooth and nail and never give me a penny. To actually set someone up for a bogus lawsuit, not just sue them with something frivolous, but actually set them up to sue them for something frivolous. And then you end up settling six figures with them. That, that doesn't look totally like that uh, you were innocent if you're settling for that amount. It's just too much. But I don't think you should have settled for anything. Now, if he settled to pay their attorney's fees, but they don't get anything, okay, you can say, to make this thing end, he was willing to pay their attorneys since they weren't in on this. They were just doing what they were asked by their client. But as long as she didn't get anything, this way he's demonstrating that he's refusing to pay any damages to someone that he did not damage. That he'll pay the attorney's fees just to make this go away, but he is not going to pay them a penny because he did not damage them at all. And that's a pretty strong statement. I'll pay the attorneys, I'm just not going to pay you. You're not going to get a penny. But he gave her $100,000 for setting him up. And I believe that's what happened. Now, if he had no other black marks and he wasn't a clubhouse distraction or if he was just killing it on the field to where tons of teams would be clamoring to have him back in their lineup, then I would understand that you just have to suck it up pay this piece of shit who is uh, scamming you and then suing you so you could continue your baseball career if that's what's really holding you back. But I don't see any other team looking to sign him right now and I don't see how this is going to help him. I really don't. The only point that they raised that was decent was that the trial was right in the middle of baseball season. But I think they probably could have worked around that. If it was set for May 2022, his attorneys probably could have made enough delays to where this would be after the baseball season. I think there is enough they could have done. I mean, look at all the delays that happened in my much smaller situation with Mike Possel, where uh, just this is over an anti-slap motion, and he kept delaying, delaying, delaying. So if Mike Possel can get all these delays... I'm sure Yasiel Puig and the attorneys he hired could have managed to delay a lot of this uh, and not have it interfere with baseball season. Like, yeah, let's just say I filed some kind of stupid, frivolous lawsuit against a baseball player just because I I just didn't like him. I just wanted to be a dick. Or maybe I was hoping to get some money. I could just force him to interrupt his season and and start dealing with my case in May or or, or June of the season. Like a... You can't just do that. You can't just uh, interrupt someone's life like a Major League Baseball player who's who's uh, constantly at work, constantly on the road. Uh, you can't just interrupt this and uh, 
hit them with a major trial for something that's, that's probably uh, pretty frivolous. It's, it's one thing like a criminal case. It's another thing for a civil case. Now, I don't know all the procedures here on, on how his attorneys could get this delayed until uh, the offseason, but I bet they could manage it in somehow, some way. Otherwise, uh, every athlete would be vulnerable to these type of cases where their season would be interrupted unless they settle. That would make them incredibly vulnerable. So I'm sure his attorneys could argue that, that this was specifically for this reason, and there's enough doubt that this could be a frivolous case that they should, uh, at the very least, not interrupt his season. But he shouldn't have paid her. Unless there's something I'm missing here. Unless he really did something wrong. Like, for example, if she did set up the whole thing, but then uh, in the bathroom he took it a lot farther than she wanted it to be. Like, maybe she just wanted to kiss him there, and then he whipped out his dick and started jerking off and groping her. Well, even if this was a setup, then he would also know that he did some things against her consent. So they were kind of both wrong there. Like maybe that's what happened, but I don't think so. I, I have a feeling that this was planned exactly the way it went. Feign interest in him, meet him in a private club in Staples so there's not many witnesses, and then when very few people are around, say, hey, let's go in the bathroom and mess around, and he follows her into the bathroom, they mess around, everything seems good, she then just kind of pretends to have interest so he doesn't get suspicious about anything. And then uh, two years later, pops him with a lawsuit. I mean, good plan. It worked, right? They got 100 k And in fact, this woman's name was never made public. She's, quote, an anonymous plaintiff. Not anonymous to him, just that I guess he's not able to publish who she is. So this was a mistake, the only way it's not a mistake is if he had a team that was just about to sign him, but said, we're not going to sign you until this is behind you. So as long as this is pending, we're not going to do it. You get this settled and the whole thing is done, then we will sign you. If something like that, fine. He's got to do it to preserve his career, especially because it's not going to last forever. He's almost 31 years old. This is probably his last shot. If he doesn't get back in baseball soon, he's never going to come back. So I, I think this is a bad move. Now, some people are saying... Look, everybody can tell. Everybody can tell what the truth is here. Yeah, he gave her 100 k she didn't deserve, but anyone who looks at this will be able to see what it really is and, and won't hold it against him. Well, if that's true, then he doesn't need to settle the case. It's either a frivolous case or it's not. And him settling doesn't make it any less frivolous. In fact, I, I still think that settling for that much makes it look like maybe he did something wrong, even though I don't believe it. So that's the update here. That matter's closed. Athletes in general have to be very careful. Anyone has anyone who's famous, athletes, actors, even big name poker pros. Anyone who is famous has to be aware that there are those out there who will seek to take advantage of them and seek to set them up for fake wrongdoing, especially of a sexual nature. So if you're a famous athlete and a woman just comes on to you, a stranger you don't know, and then wants to go somewhere and mess around with you, and you know nothing about her, uh, maybe you better think twice, or maybe you need to get some proof beforehand that she wants to do that. So, for example, text messages, Instagram or Facebook messages, whatever it is. Like, so if you can get the woman saying that, you know, she can't wait to go in the bathroom and bang you in there, uh, then you can show that later and say that she was saying she wants to do this with you, and then you went and did that. Then you, you have that proof. 
but just her showing interest and saying she wants to meet you there at the chairman's club, but then doesn't tell you until she's there in person, she wants to take you into the bathroom, mess around with you, uh, then you're vulnerable. And it can be tempting if the woman is hot and you seem to be getting along and it just seems like she's really into you, maybe because you're famous, maybe because she thinks you're good looking, whatever it is. And uh, it's tempting to just do it and say, come on, what's going to happen here? But this is what can happen. And this this don't happen to regular guys very often. This is going to much more happen to high-profile dudes who can be targeted this way. So they have to really be careful. And fortunately, thanks to all the different uh, electronic means of communication, you can create your own paper trail, which protects you later. So I know I'm not speaking to anybody who listens to this show, presumably, that is famous enough to have to worry about this. But my advice to people who are famous enough to worry about this would be if you want to mess around with women like this who are strangers to you, that you don't know what their motives are, that you need to get something, even if they don't realize what they're saying, but get them in some way to write to you that's verifiable later that they're consenting. Even if you're not directly asking, do you consent to what we're going to do? Like, yeah, just get them to talk about it. Like if this a woman says she wants to uh, to come over, then somehow direct the conversation to something sexual where where you talk about what you know, what you'd like to do together, and then get her talking about that. And then once she comes over, then it's going to be a lot harder to claim that you raped her. But if she just says she's going to come over and visit, uh, then she can make a lot of claims that uh, you tried to you forced her to have sex with you, and she didn't want that. So it becomes much harder to squeeze money out of you with these frivolous and often uh, scammy actions when you have a lot of evidence against them. More than just, oh, she was talking to me before and after or whatever. It's not always enough. You've got to get as much as you can to paint a clear picture that it was all consensual and that she claims it wasn't, that she's lying and or set you up. And it sucks that you have to do this but there's just enough people who will be targeting you that you have to be careful if you're in that position. Now, as I said, probably nobody listening to this show, unless there's a celebrity listening here that I don't know about, I don't think anyone listening to the show will be in that spot because just nobody is famous enough. But I've also said, and this will affect some of you, especially because we have a, an older male audience for the most part, that if a much younger woman shows a sudden interest in you that you can't explain, then there's probably some motive to it that isn't very pure. And we've seen some cases where guys in gambling are set up. And what happens is the pretty young girl comes back to your room or comes back to your house or wherever you're taking her. And then when your back is turned, she lets some dudes in to either hold you up at gunpoint or beat you up and steal all your stuff. In some cases, we had some murders occur in situations like these. Even, uh, and we have several of these cases we've talked about over the years. So, if a woman is showing interest in you who you don't think otherwise would have that interest. And that doesn't apply to Puig here, because he can say, well, he's a Major League Baseball player, he's a young guy, you know, but, you know, why wouldn't she be interested in him? So that's a different story. But if, if you're a dude who's 55 years old, 
and a, a pretty 25-year-old is hitting on you and just really aggressively going for you and you can't quite figure out what's so appealing about you to her and you're realistic about it, then maybe there are some motives that aren't very good, especially if it seems like the woman has reason to believe that you would have cash on you or other valuables because maybe you just won in gambling or you're frequently winning in gambling or in poker and people might know about this. That That's when you've got to be careful. If you're not, it can cost you your life. Or at the very least, you could get hurt and your stuff stolen. There's other cases where guys get drugged, where they go back to the room with a girl and then they have drinks with them and then they just find themselves knocked out and then they wake up and their stuff's gone. So in general, if women that normally wouldn't just come up to you and act interested in you do that, you have to be suspicious that there's something going on that isn't right. Once in a while, maybe once in a great while, you'll blow an opportunity, but most of the time you'll probably be saving yourself. The reason that's a pretty good rule of thumb is that Women don't usually approach men that way, especially like much older men. Because when women are interested in much older men, it's usually not about looks, for obvious reasons. So even women who like older men, they like older men for reasons other than looks. Like they, The women who like older men tend to know that the younger guys in general are better looking. But there's a lot of stuff they don't like about guys their age. And uh, they like a lot better about older men. So, so they trade that off and they accept looks that aren't quite as good for, for attributes they, they much prefer. Sometimes it's just money, but other times it's, it's other things, life experience, maturity, uh, whatever. So when younger women have interest in older men, it's usually not just like approaching guys out of nowhere and just aggressively hitting on them. Usually there's a reason you can see very clearly as to why they are interested whether noble or not so noble. So if, if you can't figure it out, if they just have an interest in you that just comes out of left field, then it's a problem. And if you're a celebrity, it can be a problem in a different way. But yeah, I would not have done this if I were Puig, unless I'm missing something, unless he was semi-guilty, unless the team's about to sign him or very close to signing him, then I understand. There's also just the factor of just not giving the scammer what they're out for. And there's a lot of value in that too. And I know you can't die on that hill all the time and just destroy your career over it. If, if the choice is save your career and pay off a scammer 100000 or, uh, or or stick to your principles and have a ruined career, you know, they, I understand why some would choose that. But here, I don't think he's saving his career. And you really should seek to give scammers nothing. I even had the questions about Mike Postle, who hit me with a frivolous lawsuit. I don't think I was set up for it, but I do think I was included in bad faith. And I, I think he knows that now. But I had questions from people, not not Postle. He never offered any kind of settlement. But uh, uh, I, I had people, just third parties, who were observing it, asking me before the whole thing uh, was done. They asked me, well, what would you settle for if, if Possel let you out now for uh, for a few thousand dollars? Would you give it to him? I said, absolutely not. I said, the amount I'm going to ever settle with Mike Possel is... Zero point zero. Because I, I didn't feel I owed him a penny. 
And I, I felt very strongly that I'm not going to give him a penny because this is frivolous and I was not going to give him anything because he deserved nothing. So I was very, very insistent upon that. But again, he never offered that. But had he, I would have refused. All right, on to our COVID topics. First, the Pfizer booster was shown to be successful at uh, resetting the waning effectiveness of the Pfizer vaccine. And that's why I got the booster shot. And there was a study from Israel, which was the first place to get the booster, about the effectiveness of the booster. And it's very encouraging. They studied during uh, July 1st through August 30th, which was right when they had the big uh, Delta surge throughout the country. So remember, Delta was really uh, ramping up in a lot of uh, countries in the summer, including the U.S. So July 1st through August 30th, the Delta variant was raging through Israel, and uh, they had given some boosters already. So they were able to see how the Pfizer booster did at preventing breakthrough infections And they were able to compare that to people who did not have the booster. And uh, the good thing was that the data was very promising. Pfizer said that the efficacy of the booster was 95% even during Delta in July and August. Now, Delta is pretty much what COVID is now. It is believed that there may not be any more regular COVID in the U.S., that the original COVID is probably completely gone, and Delta is really pretty much all the cases now. It's a tiny percentage of other variants, but uh, it's almost all Delta at this point. So it's basically the current COVID we're dealing with is Delta. So that same variant, Delta, in Israel from July 1st through August 30th, it was found that the, uh, th- those who had the booster were back to 95% protection, which is the protection people had after the second shot, before Delta showed up. So that's, that's what Pfizer was thought to do, that it prevented any kind of symptomatic infection for uh, 95% of the people who took it, which is very good. And this doesn't mean like per exposure, This just means period. This is saying that uh, out of uh, 20 people who would have gotten sick with COVID, 19 of them don't get sick with COVID. So that's very good. Yeah, you could be unlucky in that 5% and and be the one who gets sick from it. But also remember, if you've had the vaccine, it greatly reduces the chance that you're going to be hospitalized or be in serious condition or die. That it really holds back serious illness even without the booster. But with the booster, you're back to preventing getting symptomatic infection at all. Not completely, but back to what it seemed to be before we started noticing the protection was falling apart at around the five-month mark. So that's very good news. So if you got the booster, and if it's been not that long, it doesn't take that long for the booster to take effect. I'm not sure when that is that you're considered protected 
further by the booster, how many days you have to wait till after. But, uh, you know, if it's been a week or so, probably, I would say, then you're probably just as well protected as you were after the second shot, after you were considered fully vaccinated. Like two weeks after the second shot, you probably have that same protection again. So you may have felt a little iffy about COVID, especially if you had uh, Pfizer with Delta showing up and with all these breakthrough infections we were seeing over the summer. And I felt that way. I started feeling less and less confident. I went from acting like COVID didn't exist to being semi-cautious again. Not like I used to be, but but still semi-cautious and feeling uncomfortable in, in crowded indoor settings and even very, very crowded outdoor settings like Dodgers games. And I, I went from that to feeling good again about being indoors with a lot of people, thanks to the booster. I, I hated the side effects, but I'm glad to see from this study, which I looked at after I got the booster. I only looked at it recently. It's actually a report from September, but I just didn't find it until this week. And that's very good news that I, I didn't waste my time getting that booster. So the point I'm making here is that if you had the Pfizer shot, which has a lower dosage than the Moderna one, so that's believed to be the reason it's been degrading. So if you had the Pfizer shot and it has been six months or more, go get the booster because it basically resets you to your original coverage. And if you say, ah, who wants to bother with that? The booster's stupid. I don't want to do it. Well, then why did you even do the second shot? I mean, yeah, it's preventing serious illness and death, but wouldn't you like to prevent the illness at all? It's, it's, a, it's a very bad illness. You're going to feel terrible. You're going to be stuck really feeling like shit and a chance of uh, doing permanent damage to you, like lung damage. Like you, you already went through it. You already had a second shot. Do the third one. It'll reset it for you. You'll be back to the protection you had before. And then you can confidently go out again and not care and not be worried. So I really recommend that, even though I definitely didn't have a good uh, side effect experience. So that is good news out of Israel regarding the Pfizer shot, the booster. Are we going to be doing this every six months? Maybe. At the moment, I thought it was the right thing to do. I still think it's the right thing to do. You can do it after six months. If you either live or work in a setting which has a lot of exposure, then that is a valid reason I believe in all 50 states, to get the booster at six months. And usually don't even have to say that, but uh, I'm just telling you, in case you think you're cutting the line or doing something you're not supposed to, no, it's actually in the guidelines that if you live or work in a high-risk environment, and I don't mean like a hospital, I mean like a poker room. A poker room is definitely a high-risk environment, there's no question. You spend a lot of time in poker rooms, okay, good enough, that counts. After six months from your second shot, you really should go get the booster if you had Pfizer. You may say, oh, I don't want to take the risk. No, the, the truth is you already took the risk. You, you got two shots, okay? So if, I, I don't think taking that third shot is going to be the difference between uh, any kind of uh, permanent damage to you from the shot and not. I, I think if anything was going to happen to you from it, short or long term, it was, it, it's, was going to happen anyway. So I think you've already passed that part where you had to worry about what's the vaccine going to do to me. Whatever it's doing long term is probably already done. And whatever 
short term, you already know, and it's probably nothing other than feeling sick for a few days. So I would worry much less about the third shot than you should about the first or second. Once you get past the second, you, you basically might as well take a third. Now, if you hate the side effects like I did, I can understand why you may not want it. But it, it's really a trade-off. Are you willing to be sick for the time it makes you sick to have the added protection for six months? And I told you last week what I'm going to do going forward is I'm, I'm going to do kind of a compromise with myself and I'm going to take pain relievers as needed after the shot so I don't have those miserable days with no pain relievers. But that, I think that was the worst part is that I wasn't reducing the fever. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't reducing the pain. I was just dealing with everything. I got a lot of symptoms and I didn't reduce anything and I just dealt with them until they went away. And it sucked big time. But I think with pain relievers, it'll be more tolerable. It won't be fun, but it'll be more tolerable than what I just went through and what I went through in April. That's going to be my plan going forward. I don't think that's 100% ideal as far as vaccination, but that's that's kind of what I've decided that'll make it tolerable to do every six months. Otherwise, I, I would start to feel like maybe I don't want to do this anymore. A lot of people get fewer side effects than I did. I'm pretty sure I, I have an above average experience as far as the number and severity of side effects. Above average meaning on the bad side. Finally, before we get to our last topic, I'm going to throw Calwatt on again. I see him back online, and I think he will have something to say about this final COVID topic. So let's throw him on here. Hey, Druff, how you doing? I am surprised you're up. Yeah, you're not the only one who's surprised. Yeah, well, I figured you'd have something to say about this topic, and I saw you on, so figured I would throw you on, and we could finish up the show this way. Anyway. FDA approval for 5 to 11-year-olds for the vaccines in the U.S. means that California kids will be force vaccinated in 2022. Now, keep in mind, no population has yet been force vaccinated. There are some jobs that require you to be vaccinated. There are some businesses that require you to be vaccinated for you to enter. But nobody has been force vaccinated. But the kids of California are about to be forced vaccinated in early 2022. I think this should be something in the parents' hands. This should not be their hands being forced. If you want to vaccinate your kid, that's fine. But I think this shouldn't be something that should be required. In fact, even uh, the most vulnerable populations here, that like the elderly population, is not forced vaccinated. Even though they can transmit and they can easily die from it. They are not being forced to get vaccinated, but uh, kids will be in California, which is about an eighth of the U.S. population. Very big story, which is being ignored so far. I'm sure you'll hear a lot more about it in early 2022 and maybe even December of this year as the reality starts to hit people. There are a number of immunizations and vaccines that are required for kids to be in public schools in California already. Yes, well... Polio, diphtheria, measles, hepatitis B, virus, varicella, chickenpox. Like you have to have all of those vaccines, which you could say is a mandatory vaccine, in order to send your kids to school in California. Well, that is a point that has been raised to me by those who have said that this isn't bad. And my response is that all of these vaccines 
have been around for a long time. And we know the long-term profile of all these vaccines. So I'm not anti-vax. Benjamin has gotten a lot of vaccines. He did when he was a baby. He's gotten boosters. I have not hesitated to do that. I didn't feel forced. I didn't feel pressured. I'm not one of those people. And as you guys know, I'm getting the vaccine for COVID for myself. I've now gotten three shots of this when uh, it's not even required to get the third one to do anything. I could do so everything. How, that's a reasonable stance. So how long before you would feel comfortable? Just well, um, five, three it, years, it five would, years? No, it would have to be a lot of time because when I say comfortable, I'd have to see this is something you have to decide for yourself as a parent. And I'm not even saying I absolutely won't get Benjamin vaccinated. I'm saying that uh, this is a tough decision because there is a risk that COVID could end up causing long-term problems for your kid. For, it's very unlikely it's going to yeah. kill your kid, especially if your kid is, is uh, not one with pre-existing conditions. So death is pretty much off the table for kids Benjamin's age and your kid's age, which is uh, kind of similar. So yeah. that's not the concern. The concern might be long-term problems that can come from it. But of course, the vaccine, there are concerns for uh, how this could affect development or bringing on long-term problems. So it's not an easy decision. So my, this is not so much a feeling I have that it's uh, a terrible thing to do and you shouldn't vaccinate your kid. I'm saying that this should be something that's left up to the parents. Where, uh, so like the, all these other vaccines, we know the long-term profiles. And yeah, it's possible something got missed and we'll discover something later. But for the most part, it's pretty clear what the risks are and aren't with all these vaccines that have been around for a very long time. But the yeah, co- that's what I'm asking, though. How long would this vaccine have to be around before you'd be like, okay? Because currently you're saying okay to polio, chicken pox, measles, and a bunch of others. I don't know exactly how long those were around before they were required. But how long would you need this COVID vaccine to be around before you would be like, it would be automatic? I'm not even sure. It would have to be, for it to be like automatic, it would have to be where I think enough years have passed. It has to be a lot of years to where kids who got it, you could see them growing up and that just about none are having issues that are attributed to it. So Maybe 10 years. Yeah, like something like that. But I'm not saying I would wait 10 years for Ben to get vaccinated. I'm saying that as far as feeling like, okay, this is no danger. Then yeah, so if it was ten years, you would be okay with it being mandatory if if it was still around. Probably, yeah, and okay. and so like like I got the COVID vaccine not because I was convinced it's a hundred percent safe for me. I was convinced yeah. that it's far safer to get the vaccine for me than to chance getting COVID because of my age. But well, that's uh, just it, right? I mean, most health things are a trade off, yeah. to some extent. Yes, because you know, even some of these very well known vaccines, occasionally people have. Or reactions to them. yes yeah. yes so yeah. it is a trade-off and it's like a math problem so the problem is you're like i i while the math problem was very clear with me getting vaccinated that i should do it it is not at all clear in my opinion as far as kids having to do it so while i can understand people doing it it's also something that shouldn't be forced i think if the government's going to force you to do this to your kids that there's got to be a damn good reason for it it's different between recommending and forcing and forcing is it's got to be pretty extreme to make people do that. So yeah, and that's where the the public health concern comes in, right? So if it is a public health issue, that means it involves everybody. But you're right. You know, we don't know where that trade-off is with kids in terms of we we don't know what the long-term effects would be if they get it. We we don't know a whole lot of stuff. Yeah, sure. we don't know a lot of stuff. And and what I've said with uh 
with, with as far as kids getting it, as far as kids getting this vaccine, the, the problem is I don't think there's enough gain on the other side. It doesn't seem like kids are transmitting much because look, look at California, for example, where this is going to take place, where the mandatory vaccine is going to take place. California schools have been open for two and a half months. There has not been one school outbreak where kids are spreading it around the classroom. I'm talking about COVID. We've had outbreaks of colds and things like that. In fact, it even happened to me. But we didn't. Ha- there's no COVID outbreaks in the entire state with uh, with kids sitting indoors with lots of other kids every day for several hours. So this is a non-problem, and this is great. It's very nice to see that schools are safe and that the kids have been able to return to school. And we haven't had COVID outbreaks. We've had. We've had uh, cold outbreaks, but we haven't had COVID outbreaks. So I, th- I think that's great. And uh, so there's nothing to fix. We've had two and a half months of a real-life experiment involving many millions of kids. And the experiment has gone great, which is schools are safe. We don't have to do anything further. And uh, now we're going to be forced to do things further. So that's where I just don't think the gain, either from a public health standpoint or from uh, even an individual health standpoint, is enough to where you can even consider making it mandatory. And making something mandatory, making it available or recommended are two very different things to me. And in fact, I would not have been happy if it was mandatory for me to get the vaccine, even though I did. So you can say, well, why would you object to that if you chose to do it anyway? It's because I chose to do it. I, I wasn't forced to. But uh, yeah. at, at I least... Mean, what you're saying makes sense to me because it, it is a trade-off and we don't know exactly how bad it could be one of the things i think of is a a friend of my mother's had a a long-term limp and some other issues and it turns out that she had polio you know and it's Mm. the kind of thing where i'm sure we don't okay we don't know exactly whether there will be long-term effects from the kids getting COVID. there could be and we're seeing it in adults but we don't know whether that could be because it could be that you get COVID and kids are growing and their immune systems are are strong enough to repel it and it's not going to cause long-term problems but it could be that they're like adults where they get it and some people that get it just never recover from it in terms of ever being back to normal lung function you know yeah well the the lung damage is very uncommon with the kids for our age it's not very uncommon i actually know people personally who got covid last year and, and have lung damage who are around my age, even some a little younger than me. So that's uh, it, it's not something that is uh, your favorite to get if you get COVID, but it's something that's not like super rare. You're, if you know enough people that uh, are middle-aged, you're going to know some who got permanent lung damage from COVID. So that's, that was what was yep. kind of scaring me the most here. And uh, with kids, it, any kind of like effect from covid that is definitely traceable to covid and isn't just a, a problem the kid happened to come up with that uh, happened to be around the same time as covid because that's another thing that makes it difficult to see what covid is really bringing on is that during childhood a lot of health problems naturally show themselves for the first time because any health problem is going to appear at some point and a lot of them first appear in childhood, and they don't all appear when you're a baby. Some of them will show up when you're when you're eight years old, you're ten years old, you're fifteen years old, and, and then you'll have them for life. I even had some problems come up with me that were in my twenties, like the tension headaches I get. I didn't get those till I was in my uh, early to mid twenties, and it, apparently that's very common for them to first show up. So, and the same with my mom, who I inherited them from. So, uh, some things show up at different points of your life that you're destined to have, and uh, the problem is. 
those that showed up after people had COVID uh, sometimes can be wrongly attributed to it that it was long COVID. So it's it's not even an easy thing to to figure out of what problems kids had are uh, from COVID or, or or not from COVID. But the truth is, there really isn't that much that has been seen as far as any kind of long term problem from COVID at the moment. But there could be things we discover down the road. Uh, there could be things that we don't see right now. But then again, there can be from the vaccine. And uh, the, the developmental thing with kids is a much bigger deal as far as injecting them with a vaccine with an unknown long-term profile. I didn't have to worry about developmental issues because I finished developing decades ago. I didn't have to worry about fertility issues because I'm not going to be having any more kids. I'm too old to want to start with that again. So, so I, I found I did a little research because I was curious about this. So the first mandated vaccines in schools started in the 1850s for smallpox. I had no idea it was that long ago. Um, but the interesting timeline is the big trials for the polio vaccine started in 1954. And by 1963, 20 states mandated it. So you've got about half of the, well, less than half of the states that within eight, uh, seven or eight years, no, my math is bad, eight to nine years mandated it. Okay, well, that's that's more reasonable. That's that's a long time. Here we're we're dealing with uh, about one year since the vaccine came out. So that's uh, that's a huge difference. Also, polio was a bigger threat to uh, to kids then than COVID is presently. I've always said that if if everybody was affected by COVID the way kids are being affected by COVID, then it would be almost a non-issue. We'd, we'd hardly ever hear about it. There'd be no masking. There'd be no distancing. There'd be nothing shut down. There, like life would be normal because overall it wouldn't be killing that many people. It's uh, 99% of the people dying of COVID are 35 or over. So uh, that's the reason, because of the sheer number of people who are affected by COVID, it becomes something that people are understandably concerned about, but you just can't cast your concern about old people and middle-aged people onto kids because they have a completely different risk profile. And you've got to look at it like, okay, how concerned will we really be about this whole thing if, if everybody experienced it the way kids do? And the answer, I think everybody knows, is we wouldn't be. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. I was just curious to hear what it was. Anyway, you were going you were going to say something else. So I was going to ask w- what is your plan with uh with your kids as far as the COVID vaccine? So our older son who is 12 has had both vaccines already. And it looks like in the next week or two they're probably going to be approving it for kids. Um and I think it's very likely that uh we're going to give it to our younger son uh who's 10. Okay. Well, you know, this is your choice, and I haven't even made up my mind of what I'm going to do with vaccinating Ben. I'm, I'm not going to jump at it right away as soon as it's available. I know that. Uh, what I think will the I... biggest part of it is, um, well, we, we would like things to get back to normalcy, and then also I'm, I'm obviously not an immunologist. I'm not an expert in any of these things. I've tried to do research to understand exactly what the ramifications of it are and the way the mRNA vaccines work. It seems relatively harmless, you know, in terms of it's basically just sending a signal to your body, you know, hey, be on the lookout for these proteins because they're bad and, and do something against them. That said, I don't know enough to really make a qualified decision. So what I've been doing is just following the advice of experts and people I know who are doctors and immunologists and what they're doing and what they're doing with their kids. And I'm kind of, you know, kind of just going with that. 
Yeah, there's just some weird things that happen with the vaccine that they can't even fully explain. I'm not even talking about like terrible things, just just weird side effects people get that are oh, I'm not saying semi rare and... side effects. I mean, there definitely could be. There definitely could be long term side effects, um, and that's an unknown. And then also, if your kid does get COVID, there could be long term side effects from that. We know there are in adults. We know that there are long-term side effects in adults. We don't know whether that's going to be in children. So it's kind of like, okay, you know, there are unknowns on both ends, but experts are saying that, uh, you know, they're vaccinating their kids and they uh, recommend it to everyone. And, you know, that's good enough for me. I don't argue with my mechanic when he tells me something's wrong with my car. I say, okay, let's do it. Let's fix it, you know. I actually have something that I'm wondering if I can attribute this to the vaccine, though I'll, I'll never get an answer, in that yesterday my elbow, on the same side where I got the shot, started hurting really badly if I put any pressure on it. It's, and it's it's not from an injury, I can tell. So it just started out of nowhere. Now, this wasn't right Did after you the vaccine. your right shoulder or left shoulder? It, it, it left. It was left. So the, the, the left uh, elbow now has this mysterious pain that's really sharp if I put any pressure on that elbow. And uh, at first I thought, okay, you know, I probably did something in my sleep. And then, uh, you know what? There's a good chance it has nothing to do with it, but this is the arm where the vaccine was, and it was not that long ago when I got it. So, I mean, I, I can't even rule out that the vaccine did something weird here. Now, it's probably going to get better, but it's, it's weird. I've never had this before. And you can't even tell by looking at it. It looks totally normal. But it doesn't feel normal. And well, I it, used to. It used to be that whenever I had some kind of pain in my body, I'm like, "Oh yeah, that's because I did this, or that's because I did that." Right? But now, once you reach a certain age, <laughs> you, know, you just wake up and you're like, "Well, shit, I don't know. Maybe I slept wrong or something." Well, that's you the know, problem. Is yeah, it, it could have been. It could have just been something I did sleeping, or, or just some other weird thing that happened in my body that has nothing to do with the vaccine. It, well, it didn't so immediately follow. We're washed. We're old cars sitting out on the front lawn, slowly rusting away. I mean, yeah, you know? I, I, I do notice that for sure. <laughs> and it's Kristen uh, Bicknell. I mean, I, I get notifications when she tweets for some reason. I don't follow her or anything. I have no idea why I'm getting them. And one just popped up when we're on the show. She's driving me crazy, man. She's quoting a tweet that says, vaccines are spreading COVID. The data will be overwhelming and the narrative <laughs> will cave. We will stop the Great Reset. Just, she's quoting some idiot, obviously. And she's saying, my sample size is small, obviously, but everyone I know who has COVID-19 over the past few weeks has taken two of the COVID vaccine shots, you know? First of all, you know, like she says, small sample size, but also if anyone she knows is getting COVID and has had the vaccines, they're probably getting a very mild case of it, whereas they could be in the fucking hospital, you know? I'm sure she's a very nice, intelligent person, but she is driving me insane with some of the crap that she's tweeting out. She's retweeting a guy who is saying that the vaccines are spreading COVID. Yeah, well, she's, she's drank a lot of this... Uh anti-vax kool-aid and that's why i've tried to discourage people who are putting out things like this i said you know you can be against a lot of the stuff the left is pushing for regarding covid and a lot of things they're saying regarding covid and i'll agree with you about a lot of this stuff but you you can't just make up fake data or 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 just uh, retweet 
crackpots who are just making up crazy conspiracy theories. She, because she didn't just drink the Kool Aid drop. She took the Kool Aid in every orifice, man. She's got the Kool Aid enema. She's got it. She got it all going on. The Kool Aid douche. Everything. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean seriously, because it's ridiculous. I mean, forget left, forget right, for any, forget any of this crap. People that are experts in these fields all over the world. You know, in places that don't give two shits about the right or left in the United States, all agree on what's going on with this stuff. I mean, it's just absolutely insane, you know? With the vaccine, the numbers show very clearly that that it's working very well to prevent death and uh, and very serious cases, and that furthermore, it's uh, before it starts to degrade after several months, it also works very well to just keep you from getting sick at all. And, and there are breakthroughs that occur, but... Really, the you didn't hear much about breakthroughs happening until several months passed from when people got these vaccines. It's you have to look at just shows though, Druff. Like what the problem with when people identify with a certain thing, they will just do the most incredible mental gymnastics to make sure that that narrative continues on. You know what I mean? Like, forget about the fact that there are thousands of experts the world over. And that there are millions and millions of people that have had the vaccine and, as you said, shown results, demonstrative results in terms of how it has helped. doesn't matter. Some idiot on Twitter or Facebook says something like this guy said, and she's going to be like, oh, see, you know, I mean, it's just absolutely fucking stupid. Yeah, I'm not even one who blindly follows experts. And I just had this discussion today on uh, Justin Bonomo's uh thread about this of all people I, I wasn't directly talking with him he didn't respond to me but um some other people were going back and forth about this and i said the thing about trust the experts like the experts say this so you just got to believe it i i've never been one to just blindly go along with that I, i'll never just go well the experts say it so i it must be true you have to look at the experts and if there's any possible corruption or motivation that they have outside of uh, just their scientific opinion, or if they go into certain studies with certain pre-existing biases that they want to prove. And if they do, then you've got a problem because then you can't trust them as much as you otherwise could. So that's why I always encourage people to try to do their own research, to look at cold data and then say, okay, does this make sense? And if you look at the cold data regarding the vaccine, it's very clear it works. It's very clear that there are very few serious adverse events from it, at least to adults. And uh, so, so the risk-reward is very, very much in favor of taking it, especially for people who are over 40. And uh, if you look at the cold data and ignore all the studies and ignore all the opinions of the experts, that is what you'll see, that that's the right thing to do. And that's why I have had it injected into me three times. So that's what someone should do if they have any question they shouldn't just go along with conspiracies online and at the same time you you sometimes do have to question things that the experts say like i i keep hearing over and over go back to the school thing with uh with covid oh we've we've you know we got to do this and this and this for the kids and i go wait a minute they can say all they want i know here in california got 10 million kids in school we haven't had a single outbreak in all the schools from covid so and these kids are not vaccinated i'm talking like elementary schools how come, how come there's not a single covid outbreak in any of the elementary schools in california with the millions and millions of kids for two and a half months so that is cold hard data that is data you can look at and regardless of what they say on cnn or elsewhere you can say wait a minute maybe this is a non-problem for the kids so what? here's the thing about experts though like you i i understand what you're saying 
that there might be individual experts that have a bias, right? When I'm talking about experts, plural, I'm talking about the global consensus. You know what I mean? With scientists all over the world that don't give two shits about the political agenda in the United States clearly are not biased in that regard. And it's not coming from the left or the right. When I'm talking about experts, I'm talking about in the aggregate, right? And the aggregate is overwhelming in terms of this. And the other thing is the, the experts, certainly they're not infallible. They're people, right? They, they can get things wrong. But I think in the aggregate, they're going to get it right. And also the experts' opinions and why they're stating these things are based on the data. And they have spent more time with that data than you or I ever will. You know what I'm saying? So I understand what you're saying. There may be individual experts that could be potentially biased and you're, you're not interested in it from that perspective. But I think when you look at it from an aggregate point of view, that when you have this kind of consensus on a, on a global scale, that there's no reason not to listen to them, you know? And it's, I, I don't know, I mean, it's amazing to me. It would be like if, if someone who didn't know anything about tech decided to discount my opinion on, on something related. I'm like, look, man, I've been doing this almost my whole life. I'm pretty sure that what I'm telling you is correct. You know what I mean? I don't know. Well, it's, I'm, I'm a little less trusting of this than you are because I feel there is an institutional bias that has developed either out of just a, a lot of people being of the same political mind or also because of, also because of, of just pressure. What is the global institution? Well, the problem is that there's a lot of people of the same general mind that that want to show that they they have believed that there are certain people who are reckless about COVID, certain people that are careful about COVID, and they want to prove that being careful is right. And if you go into the studies this way, and if, and like for let's just look at the U.S. for them. I know you're saying global, but let's look at the U.S. I I have a feeling if you look at the COVID studies on things like masking, you won't find a single person involved with these studies who who voted for any Republican in any election in 2020. Like forget Trump. Right, I was like any. Take like, the U.S. out of it, Drift. Let's look at the experts in Singapore. Okay, what agenda do the experts in Singapore have? Well, it depends about what. See, see, I, see. I actually agree with. See, I agree with you about the about the vaccine and its uh, effectiveness and and whether people should be taking it. At least adults should be taking it. I, I we're in agreement here, and that's why I'm a uh, very pro-vax conservative and in fact did it myself so uh and and that's where i'm at odds with a lot of other conservatives who i actually try to sometimes convince if i think they're they're open to being convinced that they should take it and they should stop all this anti-vax stuff because it's stupid it makes them look stupid so um and and i have succeeded in fact some people listen to the show have texted me that they were not going to take the vaccine before but after listening to me and knowing that i'm one of them that i did it and i laid out a good case to do it that they did it and i, I was happy to hear that from some people and but, but what i'm saying I get is, it, and i think that that stance makes sense like i understand where you're coming from and i 100 percent give you credit for you've been very consistent on that i'm just saying that you know if we want to say that there is some kind of an institutional bias we have to get out of the mindset of institutions in our country because the institutions in every country on this planet are in agreement in terms of what the deal is with this stuff you know what i mean and you can't ascribe a political agenda to quote-unquote institutional bias without trying to name the institution and their institutions the world over that have no interest in our politics no interest in politics here there or anywhere 
And they're all pretty much in lockstep on this. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you how it happens. It's it's what what can occur is number one, nobody wants to be the one saying, "We think it's safe for you to do what others are perceiving to be reckless." Because if you're wrong, then it looks like you have blood on your hands. So if you say take the overly cautious approach, then at worst everybody's been overly cautious and and and. and no additional people got hurt. So that's why it's much easier to try to take that side when there's uh, when you're trying to prove something regarding something's danger and, and what uh, factors should be taken in order to uh, prevent things from happening. That, that's number one. Number two is that th- there is some pressure to not be the country that screws it up, to not be the country that looks like they were stupid, along the same lines. So so um, you, you can be under pressure in other countries to not be that reckless, stupid country. In fact, we even had that in Norway somewhat. I always talk about Norway, the masking thing, where they didn't mask all the way through August of 2020, and they had great COVID outcomes because everyone was just keeping distances, and, and uh, they just had very low incidence of COVID. Well, finally in August, you know how COVID is kind of random, too, where it just kind of pops up yep. where it hadn't been before. So it it, it starts to go up a little bit in August. They start to get a little bit of a, of a COVID problem. They're still doing very well overall, but it, it's definitely gone up in August of 2020. Oh, everybody wear masks now. So all of a sudden they started pushing the masks really hard in August because they didn't want to look stupid that, uh, that they're getting a COVID problem now in August 2020 because they didn't mask. So if they quickly throw the masks on, then they look like they're responsible. And okay, we, you know, what can we do? Just every country's getting it. This is our turn to get it. So it's kind of along those lines. That you, you don't want to be the guy. You don't want to be the scientist saying, oh, no, it's okay not to mask. It's okay not to do this or that. Um, it's fine. Just go about life normally. And then a bunch of people die. Oh, sorry about that. I guess I, I, I was wrong. And then you, you look like and, you... And I, I agree with that. I mean, I understand that that could be a motivation. But we actually have seen cases where leaders have decided to buck the trend. So a prominent case would be in Brazil. Jair Bolsonaro has been very anti-vaccine and, and very much not prescribing any of that. Um, they have the second highest number of deaths to us. And interestingly enough, uh, they are trying to charge him with crimes against humanity for his stance. But he, he very much did buck the trend and and go against all this kind of stuff you know i mean it's not like it hasn't happened anywhere i i just think it would be it it defies credibility i mean at some point either you're going to believe people or you're not going to believe people and there will be a segment of the population that just is never going to and that's fine you know just write them off but i i think it's dangerous that these things get politicized like public health issues should not be politicized there should be as much research as we can to figure out what's going wrong and then okay how can we all address it what's the best way to do this and almost exclusively every country around the globe has decided has come to the same conclusion and you know that's good enough for me i don't think it's the political left in japan that is pushing the narrative that we should get vaccinated you know they and they're saying we should get vaccinated well with the vaccination thing i i will say that that's the one that's the most obvious in the whole covid equation the thing that is the most obvious is that you should get vaccinated especially if you're over 40 and that if you look at the just the cold data and forget all the studies and everything else the cold data it should be not just clear it should be super clear and that's why i don't understand the ones that won't do it who who are in an age range where th- there's a decent chance of something bad happening to them from getting covid why they don't 
get vaccinated. Regardless, even if they think there's yeah. that the thing was rushed and there's some risk, I admit, yes. And I've always said, I've said actually to the to, to the left and to those who are trying to convince people who are anti-vax to take the vaccine, I said the wrong approach is to say you're stupid, it wasn't rushed, it's totally safe, they did enough testing. No, they actually didn't. But it's understandable why they didn't, because we couldn't wait four years for this to be studied. We had to get this out fast and take some risk. So I said, well, you shouldn't be telling them they're crazy that it was rushed, and they're crazy that there's some risk. You say, yes, it was rushed. Yes, there is some risk, but the risk is much, much, much lower than getting COVID. And that's why you should take I, it. I agree. That you should be the message. anyone by calling them stupid. Like, it's just not going to happen. That causes people to kind of dig their heels in deeper. But I also think that there is a... There's a certain amount of anti-intellectualism the world over where there's a certain segment of people that are just they're not going to trust the actual narrative. And you you say that you can't understand why someone would take that stance. Well, I mean, look, man, there's a there's a segment of the population that are flat earthers that vehemently believe that the earth is flat. Like it's not even a joke. You know, there's a certain number of people you're just never going to reach. That's just, you know. Well, yeah, and, and, and I've actually brought this up. I think the politicizing was very bad, and I think the problem is you can't come to people and tell them certain lies because you want to make certain political gains and, and say, well, these lies aren't a big deal. It's not going to really hurt anybody. We're just going to exaggerate something a little bit, and we'll, we'll get these political gains from it. And, and uh, the problem is then you get people not to trust you. And then when you're telling them the truth, it's like the boy who cried wolf. This is why in public health matters, you've always got to tell the truth. You have to take politics completely out of it. You can't tell little white lies. You can't tell little exaggerations. You can't tell people lies that are called noble lies, ones that are for their own good to get them to do the right thing so you lie to them because all that happens especially in today's age where it's so easy to transmit information through social media you get caught in these lies and then nobody trusts you anymore so that's that's why public health they should make sure that they're always telling the truth and that it's not getting politicized so this way the number of people who are distrustful of uh, officials is much lower that's the problem what I see is a lot of the problem is there were enough lies throughout 2020 to where now you have people in 2021 who say I'm not taking the vaccine because they don't trust these people and I go no 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 look what were the lies that you perceive were were put out by official organizations well okay there's a lot of them um, that um, that Trump could have prevented uh, COVID that uh, COVID uh, if Trump had done the right thing we'd be past COVID by now or that uh, if, if just everybody wore masks, yeah, I mean, we wouldn't have a COVID problem. Now. Right? But I mean, these, these have been I, said all over the place. I do, think, I do think that things could have done better, but clearly it's not true because there are governments the world over that Trump was not there and they're still having problems. Yeah, or or that um, it, it, it was unreasonable to think it could have came from a lab. That it, it, it's, it's so unreasonable, we can't discuss it on Twitter, and in fact, it's going to be, or Facebook, and if you try to say it, you're going to get your account banned. And then in 2021, oh, you know what? But hold on, Let's hold discuss on. That's this. Not, that's not a lie that is being put out by the government or the CDC, right? That is something that, you know, people are discussing on Twitter. Well, right, but... about what lies do you think that the CDC or official government organizations put out that are causing people to distrust them? Well, I'm telling you that the people who were, uh, it was all over the place that experts agree, I actually saw this on Twitter, not not from Twitter users, from Twitter itself and from left-wing politicians, that experts agree it didn't come from a lab, this is a conspiracy theory, it's not true, 
We can't talk about it. It is racist to talk about it. And see, then the next year when it, when it starts being discussed, okay, maybe it did happen. We're, we're, we're looking to the possibility. People say, wait a minute. We couldn't discuss this last year. Forget just whether it was true or not. We could not discuss it. It was being censored last year. This is a terrible look. This is the type of stuff that has to stop. They have to... But I, they, I, I agree with you that, you know, there, there were people that were saying that. And there, there were, there have been a number of inquiries into it recently, and they have all concluded that it was not from the lab. But I agree with you; it should be discussed, right? It is reasonable to think, hey, there was this lab there that was studying these exact same things, and that's where the outbreak happened. It's reasonable that you would want to look into that. But I'm not aware of any official government organization in the United States saying well, you can't talk about this. And I, I heard people on Twitter saying it. But I didn't hear any of the government officials. So. No, what happened was the government officials said this isn't true, th- this is conspiracy nonsense, and then the social media sites ran with it and said, well, okay, we're going to prevent racist disinformation from being put out here uh, I, I on social I media. I don't, I don't recall any uh, official government people saying that, but... Oh, yeah, no, they did. There was, it was said all over the place. And it, now, there was no edict from the uh, government, you can't talk about this. And now, in fact, that would be a First Amendment violation. But there was statements of theirs that this is totally not true to the point where you shouldn't even discuss it. And that, not that we can't discuss it, but we shouldn't be. And that it's racist to do so. And then the social media company said, okay, well, uh, we're going to enforce that. And then uh, that, that's a terrible look. If you want to see why people don't trust it, and I know why, because I've had these conversations with people on the right who don't want to take the vaccine, who don't trust anything they're being told. And I'm not one of them. Yeah, I Obviously, I, I took the vaccine. Yeah. And I say, and they tell me this is why. And I, I say, you know what? It, it it makes sense why you don't trust them because you've been lied to a number of times. But look into this independently, the vaccine situation, and you will see it's wise to take it. And that's why some have taken it, because they go, you know what? Yeah, you're right. Okay, so they did BS us before, but they happen to be telling the truth now. And that's why... See, when what, the, I, what, I've, what I've seen happen is people on, on the left have been saying the kind of things that you've been saying. I, again... I don't know. I, I would have to look it up to see if I could find any government officials that actually said that, uh, you know, this is a, a conspiracy theory that that's not what happened. Um, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm just I'm just saying in general, if you want to have public health health officials trusted, they have to always tell the truth. They can't be influenced by politics and they can't they can't tell lies, even ones that they think will just get people to do the right thing. That, uh, well, they won't do what we need them to do if we tell them the truth. So we'll we'll tell a little lie here, which is really aimed at them for their own good. Even if you do that, which isn't really meant for anything nefarious, that's also a huge mistake. And that's you cannot let public health officials become distrusted by the uh, the uh, any sizable segment of the population or you have a problem when the really important things are put out like people should take the vaccine then they don't want to and, it, and it's too bad and it makes me sad to see this and this is why as i've said i've, I've put a some effort into trying to get other uh, conservatives to take the vaccine who otherwise wouldn't and uh, and I come to them and say, you, you know, I'm not bullshitting you here, and I understand why you feel lied to, and I and I do too. And uh, this happens to be one time when they're not lying. So, I, I mean, I, I agree with you that that is not the right approach to deal with people. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the all of these statements and kind of the uh, political warfare that I've seen been going on has been from individuals that identify with one camp or identify with the other camp. That, that, that are hurling this shit back and forth. I'm not going to say that the government has always been perfect on everything that they've done, 
but I that's not where I see it coming from. You know what I mean? Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you where I see it coming from, and uh, uh, then we'll move on, and we've, we've gone on a long uh, tangent here. But yeah. um, so when I was in a debate with someone on uh, the forum uh, about the school thing, they showed me something put out by the CDC, and I, I can search for it and send it to you later, uh, where three different studies about school outbreaks with, with COVID. I go, oh, wow, I haven't heard of these. Let me go see. Let me go see. Maybe he's right. So I, I go take a look. I couldn't believe what I was reading. This is from the CDC. One of them talked about a school, a school outbreaks in Arizona, and they were trying to prove about uh, ones with mask mandates versus no mask mandates. And I go, okay, but what do they mean by a school outbreak? Because I saw one of the studies he linked on that, off that same page was neglecting to look at how school COVID rates compared with community COVID rates. So if you're having a yeah. massive community uh, outbreak, of course, parents are going to have it and give it to their kids because all kids live with adults. So if a lot of adults right. in the community have it, a lot of kids are going to get it. That doesn't mean they're getting it in school. So uh, it didn't compare that at all. I go, okay, that one's garbage. Next one was even worse. Why? Because the quote school-related outbreak was defined as two COVID cases in 14 days of student or staff in the school. <laughs> in the whole school doesn't have to be from the school just two cases in the whole school in 14 days including staff is a school related outbreak so they they said well look, look how many we had i go that's not a school related out like that's just not being honest that's not a school related outbreak and a school related outbreak is actually pretty easy to figure out because you will start seeing patterns where a class where a kid is verified to have covid if there's suddenly 15 covid cases in that class but zero or one in most of the other classes, well, that's a pretty clear school-related outbreak where uh, uh, two cases, you can't conclude anything in a giant school. So, yeah, and you know what? I, it actually really surprises me, to your point earlier, that there have not been more school-related outbreaks. And the reason that really surprises me is, again, one of the ways that we know COVID can be spread is when you're indoors with around a bunch of people. I am actually really surprised that we have not seen the kind of uh, you know much larger outbreaks in our schools i really am i'll say this i think that an original belief about kids with covid has turned out to be true and that is that they're either not transmitting at all or transmitting uh at a very low rate and that uh yep. because it's been proven that they can receive that they can catch covid just as easily as adults can but they, but I don't think they're transmitting, and I think nobody wants to talk about this because it's politically inconvenient for for certain people to own up to that. Because that really changes a lot of the narrative for the teachers' unions, and a lot of stuff will change if that if that fact is acknowledged. And I, I can't say I for sure it's a fact, but I think it's, it's, it's getting to look pretty likely. And and yet you're not seeing talking about it, and that there's a reason that's not being talked about in in uh, a lot of the media. This should be a huge story that we've been into school for two and a half months and we have no outbreaks. Like that, that should, that's great. That should be huge news and it's not. Well, so, and then the question would be why? And I agree with you. Like I, I am actually surprised that there hasn't been more of that. But then the question would be why? And is it, I can tell you that our kids, um, they were actually in school even last year and they had, uh, first of all, they social dis- distanced all the kids. Like, they weren't allowed to sit at tables anymore. Everyone had their own individual desk. Um, same thing with the lunchroom. There was, like, four people per table, and they were all, like, very spaced out. And they were all mandated to wear masks all the time. And kids are, that's a group of people that you can just absolutely force them to do what you're requiring them to do, Right. I'm not saying that it, it was the masks. I'm not saying it was the social distancing. It could also be that 
for whatever reason, uh, kids don't spread it, as, as you said. But the question you need to ask then is why is this not happening? And it could very well also be it could be the precautions that have been taken in terms of the the distancing and the masking and that kind of stuff. Well, and that's why the, the I want to see we those. Don't know. That's why I want to see those studies. But it turned out that yeah. uh, if anything, those studies seem to be proving my point because they were showing that there were schools that had no mask mandates, and yet there was no outbreaks. They tried to make it look like there were outbreaks because there were two cases in, in a big school in 14 days, but the truth is there were no outbreaks. And then I go, well... Yeah, I'd be real interested <laughs> to hear because it, it it really does seem strange to me that there have not been more outbreaks in schools. One, one of the things that they were saying, though, is that the difficulty of studying certain things like mask versus no mask is that it's not... They can't just run a real controlled experiment, you know, and in the same school give half the kids masks and half the kids not or – you know what I mean? It's It, it would be a – there would be ethical questions involved in, in – Well, yeah, and stuff. but but at least we've had a, a giant experiment running for the last two and a half months and, and everything looks very good as far as kids uh, – and, and yet there's no adjustments to this. So that's uh, – and, and, Those kids are – you're talking about kids in California, I would imagine, right? No, everywhere. I in, like. Everywhere. I was. Okay. I was trying to find outbreaks in other states. In pretty much every school district I'm aware of, but not everywhere. And and I've also looked at other states, and the only time I've seen any kind of quote school outbreak was when there was also very high community community transmission, like in Texas in in in, in, yeah. in mid to late August. Where oh, what about all these schools that closed in Texas in in uh, mid to late August? And so yes, uh, what else was happening in Texas in mid to late August involving COVID? Maybe a very 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 high transmission for everybody. Maybe these kids yeah. are going home to parents who have it and catch it from them. You ever think that might be happening? Like it's a and makes total sense <laughs> if the community gets it. You should see it more in the schools too. Yeah, yeah, it's a, especially because the kids. No kids live by themselves. They all live with adults. So if a ton of adults have it, then a ton of kids are going to get it. That's a hundred percent. All right, that's it. Enough COVID talk. We're shutting it down. If you have a kid, go out for Halloween. If they want to. I'm talking about like a small kid, not like a 16-year-old. But if you have a small kid or even a kid in uh, 10, 11-year-old range, whatever, still enjoy trick-or-treating, don't be afraid of COVID. Really, there's not any danger to you trick-or-treating. You're outdoors. The kid is outdoors. There's no danger of the candy. Don't be afraid of the candy. The candy, it's, it's not going to transmit on surfaces. So that's thats not how COVID transmits. It's not like a cold. So that'll be fine. So if your kid wants to trick-or-treat, don't deprive them of it out of COVID fears. That is my advice to you if you have children. If you hear this before Halloween, which this will be in the archives before Halloween. And the World Series main event coming up. And... What am I going to do? <laughs> we did not discuss that today, did we? We're getting closer to the main event. Am I going to sit out as I have the entire World Series? I have not played a single World Series event. I have not been to Las Vegas during the World Series. As we sit here in the early morning of October 30th. But am I coming to the main event? Well, that is still being decided upon. There will be an announcement soon enough of what I decide. I'm not selling pieces either way, so there's no reason for any notice. I can decide at the last minute if I please, because I answer to no one for the main event except for myself. 
I never sell pieces of the main. Never have, never will. But we will be back next week. One week from today, I think. Should we? Um, I don't know. Yeah, probably. Sometimes next week we'll be here. Twitter.com slash PokerFraudAlert for information. Good night and shalom. <laughs>